Your journey continues on the enigmatic episode 100 spectacular of So Many Insane Plays. All right. Well, this next card is one that uh, we have kind of reviewed already, and that's Soul Net. <laughs> so for a reminder, a single generic mana gets you a poly artifact. One colon, you gain life every time a creature is destroyed unless it is then regenerated, <laughs> which is awesome. Obviously, this is um, <laughs> it doesn't flow 100%. It doesn't match 100% in functionality, but it's pretty much another member of the Lucky Charm cycle, right? And it suffers from all of the same problems and benefits of the alpha rules with respect to the same way the alpha uh, Lucky Charms did. I would assume, Steve, that um, that you are of the opinion that this functions the way Crystal Rod does, and you can pay as much man as you want when a creature yeah. dies. Yeah, I mean, well, we spent a long time discussing this as part of the charm cycle. <laughs> I, yeah. I am of the view that there's an inherent ambiguity that you need a rules person to resolve. But Naturally. Yeah, we already, we already covered, covered that. that. I, if I were that rules authority, I would have it function that way. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Uh, obviously, the soul net, the effect, right, triggering off creatures dying is not nearly as, what's the word I'm looking for? You can't rely on it in as much in the alpha context as you can in modern day magic. I could easily toss this into a commander deck today and expect to trigger it with reliability because there are so many ways to sacrifice my own creatures and not just creature combat. That's not the least reliable way, in fact, but there's so much removal going around, et cetera, et cetera. In the alpha context, it's not actually a given that creatures are going to just die, right? There are just so many ways. There's, you know, you've got the ubiquitous swords to plowshares, but then there's obviously unsummon and, and there's other things that would cause creatures to just sit in play and be ineffectual rather than dying. Like, I think Solnet is actually pretty darn weak in the alpha context. Yeah, what I agree think? with you. I, I don't think it's as powerful as the charms. Yeah. The the art is by Damian Willich and has always kind of made me laugh a little bit because of how <laughs> literal it is. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I do kind of wish they had maybe gone back for another revision on this one because just the notion of showing basically a ghost caught in a net is, well, I would like a little more Creativity. subtlety or yeah. elegance. <laughs> yeah. It's just the notion that you're just kind of trolling for ghosts is uh it doesn't speak to me really the card was printed in a a funny pattern again basically every core set up to seventh edition it got a new art in fifth edition which was used again for sixth and then another new art in seventh the seventh edition art is by ron spencer and is genuinely hilarious because it's like taking the 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 alpha concept and taking it to the extreme where there's these three i'm just gonna call them like spirit creatures in space literally in space like there's stars in the background and they all three appear to be stuck in the same net together and are all straining against it it's really bizarre a big bird like an eagle that's solid green some kind of beetle or uh pincered caterpillar and then who knows what's going on in the background some red thing. So three red, green, and blue creatures stuck in a net together. It's Which version really is this? Comically literal. The seventh edition. Oh yeah, that's weird. That's a weird Ron Spencer. <laughs> I don't know yeah. why. Yeah, 
the I really enjoy actually the fifth edition art, and I genuinely this is Andrew Robinson. I genuinely believe that if this had been in Alpha, we would we would like this card more, <laughs> and it would be better, more highly thought of because this one is showing a figure standing next to a dragon, which you have to assume is yeah. recently deceased because it appears that there's a soul escaping from the dragon, and the figure is trying to either catch or retain the soul using a net. Again, the literal net part of the soul net, I really think should have been reconsidered <laughs> long ago, but I do think this fifth edition art is uh, is really kind of neat and evocative. All right, let's move on to uh, a personal favorite of yours, I know, Steve. Just because I like counterspells. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of people who are getting a lot of use out of spell blast in in the year of 2020. That's true. <laughs> so I that's why I said that. It's X view for interrupt. It says target spell is countered. X is the cost of target spell. Uh you're playing this in your alpha league yep. deck right now, yeah. No, it's interesting to think about what kind of counter spells can be designed out of alpha. So there's straight up counter spell and there's power sync, you know, which is make people pay X or it's it's countered. And then, which, by the way, mm-hmm. creates the precedent for something like Force Spike, right? And then there's Spell Blast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have created so many interesting variants of counter spells. Remove Soul, counter target creature. Counter spells, you know, we have all the way from Force Spike to Spell Pierce to Mana Leak. You know, we've got that covered good we've down. We've got the counter spells that, that mm-hmm. cover specific mana costs from Mental Misstep to Spell Snare. To uh, what's the one Nix that co- the one that zero converted cost zero? Yeah, we've got the ones that cover ranges right. like prohibit, prohibit with kicker. Um, we've got those that counters one spell type like um, uh, flash, flash counter, counter and uh, what's the null? Oh, I guess a null's two. Envelop, Envelop counter sorcery. What's yeah, the one that Envelop. just counters artifacts? Uh, well, this artifact yeah, blast there you was the go. first one, right? Um, but I don't. Has there been a blue one that just countered artifacts yes. without any well, other effects? The one I'm there there's the one, one that from, also uh, balances. There was a three mana one. There's the one you, that oh, steel sabotage, steel sabotage. It also bounces. Oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah, there's one from uh, Mirrodin Block that I can't remember the name of it, but it's counter an artifact, draw a card. I don't know if we've ever had just a straight blue counter an artifact, well, and I think the reason is well, the closest blast. is steel sabotage in blue. Yeah, and and a, know, a null, but a null yeah. counters enchantments. So, I mean, we've really <laughs> run the, you know, the gamut in terms of counter magic in Alpha. I think it's more surprising that Alpha has power sync than spell pierce, because spell pierce at least, like, is, is, is a small step from counter spell, right? It's like, okay, we want to match. We want to match the power level a little bit by making the blue player pay one more. Power sync is a bit convoluted and complex. That that to me that to oh, me yeah. is a bit more out in the limb. Uh, as we've already said. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I think the power. I think this is the third most powerful though. I think it's the bottom most powerful in alpha because both pa- power sync and counterspell can get you for blue blue. Now spell pierce can sorry spell blast can still counter something for blue blue, but it's much more likely I think that you're paying a significant amount. I think in general, so that's that's kind of the weird dynamic about it is that that power sync isn't just about how much you pay; it's that you get to force your opponent to tap down. So it has a tactical advantage that's quite significant, right? Um, so it may be the case that you pay more for power sync on than you would for spell blast, but 
if PowerSync didn't function that way, if it was more like a spell, a spell, uh, sorry, a force spike, like they pay one or or, or they're not, mm-hmm. then then it would be, then it might flip, and that spell blast would be more powerful. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the it's funny that the first mana cost targeting ones you went to were mental misstep and then um, spell and snare and then Nyx. The there's a good reason why mental misstep. Well, <laughs> mental misstep was restricted in vintage and banned in other formats because of Phyrexian mana. Let's set that aside. There's a really good reason though why spell snare was a go-to counter in the early days of modern, and that's because. It's not possible to cast a spell snare and not be up yeah. on mana. <laughs> right? You're inherently you're paying it's one two. to remove something that's two. Yeah. Spell blast always inherently yep. has the opposite problem. No matter what you're doing, you're always paying more than your opponent. <laughs> and counter spells like that, um, we, historically we know are not good, <laughs> which one of the reasons why counter spell originally uh, has been phased out of magic at just two mana. We don't get just two mana unconditional counters anymore. Because R&D has learned over the years that at two mana without conditions, the effect is just a little bit too powerful and covers a, little, a few too many bases. Once you get up to three mana, they're comfortable having counter spells with slight upside, like scry or exile the card, that kind of thing. And so we found the sweet spot, but the, in practice what we've learned is that paying more than your opponent's spell for, uh, to counter it is historically not the way well, to go. It, it's a bad deal for you at every point I, along I don't want to overstate... I don't want to say it's bad because Sean Hammer-Regnier's... Less desirable. Well, Sean Hammer-Regnier's uh, Pro Tour New York the deck from 1996 had four counterspell, four power sync, and four spell blast. <laughs> so, so it was clear... In 96? Yes. Yeah, well, that's standard. because there was no new counterspell introduced in Ice Age that was any yep. good. They just recapitulated. Or, of course, I mean, and because and Mana Drain was obviously not legal, right? Yeah, in standard. That, that yeah, was standard. it was not legal in standard. Yeah, right. So th- that's because, yeah, our Wizards had started printing new good counterspells until a couple sets after yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great point, actually. That, that I, you know, I wonder, it's a... There's no counter spells in Arabian Nights or Antiquities. Yeah, there's, there's only one that's any good in, well, in I, Legends. I, unless unless you kind of well, there's fate. there's Force Spike, which I think I think Force Spike, if it had been legal yeah, in Standard, would have been an interesting card in the mid nineties. Yeah, and it has been legal. But in But I mean, yeah, I mean, it was legal later in the invasion period, and it was an interesting card. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Anyway, the the point is, there's a reason why Spell Blast wasn't. I mean, it didn't even get printed in the er- all the early core sets. Like, it was it wasn't even in fifth edition. I'm sorry, it wasn't even in the. Sorry, scratch that. It was in ABU revised fourth fifth. Then they put it in Tempest for some reason, which I can't <laughs> explain. And then it was in sixth edition, and not again until M14, which and I probably shouldn't have been in M14. And it was also printed at uncommon in that set. It's just completely inexplicable. I don't know what they were trying to accomplish. But it, uh, history has shown has not been kind to spell blast. It's it's just. I not find that good it fascinating card. that and I didn't. I don't think I realized that they really did just recapitulate alpha counterspells in Ice Age. There was no creativity there. I mean, I think the the, yeah. the partial exception, of course, is deflection, which really isn't. You know, was unprecedented yeah. at the time, but well, fit the, the the type. It two wasn't totally yeah. unprecedented. There was a reverberation in Legends, but. Oh, that's true. Um, that's true. But I, yeah, I mean, 
But that was only I mean, damage, right? Is there so after Ice Age, what's the, so the, obviously Force of Will is the breakthrough counterspell in alliances. Oh, you know what? There is the, well, the next not breakthrough. Well, the only one because we got yeah, Arcane. That was, that's what I was going to say next. The next alliances. breakthrough counterspell was Arcane Denial, yeah. which also came. Yeah. Well, no, Arcane Denial was in alliances. Yeah. It was in alliances. So homelands. There was memory lapse, which was in homelands. That was actually yep. another break. That was significant, I think, as well. That was significant because it was unconditional at the two mana slot. And even yeah. though it was obviously there were tempo implications about giving them their card back, the uh yeah, the fact that it was unconditional meant that R and D hadn't really learned their lesson yet, and they wouldn't learn that lesson for a while. <laughs> if memory lapse was yeah. Well, interesting. I wonder if I wonder what it'd been like if memory lapse had been printed just in blue. <laughs> oh jeez. That's too yeah. that's too good. Oh, you know what? There is another counterspell in Ice Age. We're wrong. There's Force Void. Oh, right. The recapitulation of Force Spike. With Cantrip. Yep. Also not good yeah. enough. Yeah. So they... Force Void is an interesting place. It's a mental magic all-star. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyway, let's well, let's get back on track with, with, with respect well, to Spellblast. Well, I think that the point though. is that it's, it's a very... You know, natural place for counter spells is X plus blue, is a is a very logical thing sure. to do. P- power stick is more interesting, and I think it was more interesting to actually have a conversation on the evolution, the early evolution of counter magic. So, what tell tell me what what the reprint history is again of spell blast? It was in the core sets up through sixth. It was also in Tempest, which was between fifth and sixth edition, and it was in M fourteen. That's the last printing is M fourteen. Wow. Yeah. Again, very strange. That M14 printing stands out to me. I, I don't know what they were trying to accomplish with that. I'd have to go back and examine that whole set to try and figure out why it's even there. Yeah, I'd have to study that to figure out what they Maybe it was just like, yeah. let's, let's throw this in there and see if it's any good. Let the hive mind figure it out. Well, and the interesting part, too, is that M14 was firmly in the cancel era. Oh. Cancel is the go-to common counterspell in M14. They Again, they reprint it, and, and you've got Essence Scatter, too. Which is a very Remind efficient us what card that is, very good I don't in know standard. Essence scatter. That's counter target creature. That's the okay. creature only for one U. Ah. Yeah. So at the at common, you've got lots of counter spells in this set. Cancel, essence scatter, what? even negate. Why did is they remake remove soul as essence scatter? I guess. I think they probably wanted something that was less directly referential ah. to the soul. That would be my guess. Yeah, but. So with the, that suite of common counter spells, which covered pretty much the gamut, right? You've got creature and non-creature, and then you've got any spell at cancel. I just can't explain why they felt compelled to put a situational and bad counter spell in the form of <laughs> are, spell. You hate blast. this card. <laughs> well, it's uh, the hatred is strong, but I simply believe that spell blast had already outlived its usefulness by the time. Fourth, fifth, and sixth edition. So I think, around. yeah, I think the point that another way of putting it is that they have a there is a lot enormous range of counter spells they could have considered for inclusion in M fourteen. Why spell players? Yes. Peer, why spell blast instead of say power sync? Yeah, yeah. Fair point. And I think that at that point we all collectively knew that spell blast was just low powered, underpowered even compared to the things that they had at common. That's the other thing that kind of boggles my mind. They put this at uncommon. They were somehow afraid of Spellblast's effect yeah. on the limited environment. When you've got Cancel and Essence Scatter at common in that limited environment. I, I, I just don't understand well, the, sp- the logic Well, it's splashable it, in, a, in a way, perhaps, that, that Cancel isn't. 
Well, you got Essence Scatter and Negate at oh, common. They're both a single blue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't get it. But anyway, the my favorite part about Spell Blast is that it begot the card Spell Burst, which is just Spell Blast with buyback three, which you might say, Kevin, you've just been railing against the inefficiency of Spell Blast. Why would it be great if you added buyback to it? Well, that's because of the format type four. <laughs> <laughs> spell Burst became a type four all-star because it meant you, it was this counter spell with buyback that you could counter your opponent's one spell on their turn, you know, reliably. Now, Type 4 is a multiplayer format, so it's not game-ending. But it has a major groan test that did Spell Burst in Type 4 whenever it comes out. I have a, a nice doodled-on spell, bur- uh, spell Blast excuse me, from Mark Tadine, where he drew over the uh, the figure and made him a conductor. <laughs> Which is... I'm, I'm sure That's he's cool. done that a zillion times, but I just think it's fantastic. Yeah. Alright, anything else on Spell Blast, Steve? Nope. I do want to double check what it looked like in Gamma, though. Do we know if Spell Blast was in Gamma? Let's see. No, apparently not. Apparently this is one of those cards that was added after Gamma. Next, we have a personal favorite of mine, a card that I have a great deal of affinity for and have played more than the average Magic player, and that is Stasis. One U for an enchantment. The alpha word, the alpha version says, players do not get an untap phase pay you during upkeep or stasis is destroyed and unlike many other cards in alpha it does have the blue mana symbol not just the letter u pretty noteworthy steve that uh the alpha version says that it's destroyed right (laughs) you could obviously have interpreted that at in the modern day interpretation to keep that language but it's been replaced by sacrifice unless you pay you of course stasis has really had an interesting place in history kind of poking its head in here and there throughout the whole history of at least you know vintage and the the pre-vintage era the the first uh, the first world championships right and my experience with the card was all long after that i played the squandered stasis deck and extended in in far more tournaments than i should have but i had a lot of fun doing it i would argue that i probably uh, advanced the technology of squandered stasis more than more than any player, really, <laughs> because I have so, my dedication to it. But that's not necessarily a good thing. So, a couple, th- just one quick thing to remind everyone: this is the blue spell in the top-down design cycle, so it was not in gamma. It was included at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing I want to point out about Stasis, Kevin, is I believe this is the only card in Alpha that actually says just skip a step, skip a phase. So that mm-hmm. concept has actually become, you know. Now there's spell books. Skip your discard step. There's uh, uh, Eon Hub. Skip your skip upkeeps. There's Necropotence. Skip your draw step. You know there are all kinds of uh, spells or permanents that actually require you to skip a step. But for Alpha, that was a big move. That was a big move when you, especially when you had so much rules yeah. ambiguity, just to say we're just going to skip your unstep. Un- all players skip un- untap. That's a that's big move. That's a big deal. <laughs> I agree. And yet, it still fits with uh, the underlying subcurrent of monkeying with different aspects of the game in the way that Winter Orb yeah, and Smoke it, do. Yeah, it does. But, Same ditto but to Iron have a Sanctuary. card that so blatantly overrules the fundamental backbone of the rule structure, you know, the game structure, yeah. is, is a bold move. Like, Winter Orb and Smoke, just it is bold. with monkey with how you do it, they don't actually fundamentally override you know something in the rules in that in that way um so 
So the third thing I would just want to mention, and, and just to get, I, I think you make a very good point about how it's kind of had its own, its day in the sun, many different points. But the, but the third point I want to make is that this card is, I think, unjustifiably despised or has a terrible reputation mm. relative to what it actually can do and the interesting things it does. Um, I, I have never like truly abused this card, but the main combo with stasis, of course, there are several, but the, the, the two main combos historically were time elemental and stasis. You could also use boomerang, right? So that you get total asymmet- mm-hmm. asymmetry. Um, and time mm-hmm. elemental and stasis is quite powerful once legends comes out. The second, the second yeah. main, and obviously stasis and kismet was an absurd combo that was in Zach Dolan's deck, as we mentioned before. But the second combo with stasis is, you know, from back in the day, um, is instill energy on a birds of paradise to be able to pay indefinitely. And then the third, which I think is the most interesting, which we dabbled with in legacy, Kevin, is time vault in stasis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which it didn't have as much tournament presence, but is directly related to yeah. chronotog. Yeah. Stasis. Well, we were, well, Rich Shea played, and I'm jealous of him, em- envious because he got to play. <laughs> The, the stasis, I used the flame fusillade combo version. He played the control version yeah. with, with stasis and, and time vault, which is super exciting because what it functionally means is that it becomes a little bit, it becomes asymmetrical, right? Because you get the two turns, right. which means that you get to un- untap while your opponent's locked down and you can just lock them down again and keep it going, which is quite obnoxious. Definitely. Um, I think it's a fun, exciting, interesting card. Tactically and strategically, um, I don't know if a lot of players agree with that, but it does interesting things because it's it's not <laughs> cost free, right? The the blue player does have to continue to pay for it, even if they're making making land drops. The other player gets opportunities to do things, so it's a very intricately balanced card in that respect. That it it brings into focus like what are you going to do and make sure that whatever your player play or plays are count make sure they damn well count right absolutely it does bring that into hyper focus did you ever play the sorry continue your thought but then in answering it did you ever play the turbo stasis decks in 96 no it was before my time i mean i had copies of stasis and was very interested in it in my early casual days but it, like I said, in, in the tournament context, my first experience with Stasis was in the extended format, where I played the Squandered Stasis deck. I've never played any other variant of Stasis in any kind of competitive context. The the, the Turbo Stasis deck was a was a standard deck from 1996 by Matt Place that was supposedly mm-hmm. a good answer against the Necropotence decks, and it basically used a bunch of counterspells, <laughs> including Arcane Denial, Kevin. And it used both Despotic yeah. Scepter and uh, Boomerang as ways of getting... Remind our audience despotic what Despotic Scepter, Scepter is does. an Ice Age <laughs> one-mana artifact that says tap, destroy target permanent you own. So you could you could <laughs> right, destroy your own stasis on your opponent's end step and they get your untap back. Yeah. Um, and basically that de- the way that that would work is you would deck your opponent because you'd have Howling Mines and... Uh, arcane denials so that your opponent would deck. <laughs> there were no win conditions. Oh, besides Feldon's Cane is a win condition. So there's one Feldon's Cane. <laughs> it, 
in in ninety three. It's pretty great. I know. I love it. Heart. In in old school ninety three ninety four. Uh, Jayco and others have monkeyed around with with turbostasis. Same concept. Feldon's cane, but they have they have black vise. They deign to run black vise as wind conditions. <laughs> um, My favorite ever iteration of the squandered stasis deck in uh, extended had oh. oath of druids. And my creatures, you're gonna love this, Steve. I, I was I was going so deep. This was a gay as blessing oath of druids list. And my creatures were Academy Rector, one Academy Rector, and one Crater Hellion, which if you don't remember, Crater Hellion's six mana uh, red creature that when it comes in does four damage to each to each other creature. And it has Echo, so it costs uh, 4RR, and it has Echo 4RR. Well, so what that meant was in practice, if I got Stasis and Oath going, if my opponent ever played a creature, I would Oath up a Crater Hellion and kill their creature and then not yeah. pay the Echo and then it would just go to my graveyard. But then if I if they played another creature, I would oath again and Gaia's blessing yeah. and shuffle the crater hellion back in. That's if great. I hit the rector, well the rector could get me any one of any enchantment I needed, like squandered squandered, squandered resources or equipoise. But once the rector was gone, there was only one creature plus a Gaia's blessing in my deck. And so I could just go unbounded with getting rid of their creatures. It was effectively every other turn, but in that deck it was fast enough to to survive. That's, I love it. By the way, I was looking. I saw yeah, that one of the awesome. Tommy Hovey Turbostasis decks from Standard used one Yoshin Soldier as a win condition too. That'll <laughs> wow style. <laughs> style points. Yep. That's that's got some style. This points. is such a cool card. Yeah. I, I man, so, I wish I had played more Stasis back in the day. I wish that I had played Stasis with Time Vault and Legacy. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's not too late. You can play True. it old school. So Stasis was printed ABU, Summer 4th, 5th, and then never again in paper. The last paper printing of Stasis is 5th edition. There has been a recent Magic Online promo version for some reason, which I can't really explain, but it has this incredible Seb McKinnon art, which is just fantastic. And if you're not familiar with it, go look at it. But we have to talk about the original art by Faye Jones. (laughs) It's... It's so, um, I have heard so many different opinions of the art, but most of them are strongly in the positive. I absolutely love it. I love how it differentiates itself from most other art in magic, you know, full stop, but in alpha specifically. I love how it is evocative of the concept and yet not explicit and leaves so much to the imagination and just how simple it is. I I am in I that camp as well. I, I can't understand how someone can't love this art. It's so quirky. It's so <laughs> odd. It has these kind of mythological uh-huh. elements to it. It looks like an anubis that's blindfolded. You know, it's got like a crescent moon in the middle of the figure. It's got all these like symbolic... First of all, it's just full of symbolism. You know, in, in mm-hmm. magic art, you don't get a lot of symbolism. It's mostly representation. Or you know, at best, abstract representation mm-hmm. like smoke, right? We don't get a lot of heavy like right. like there's appears to be a mime in here, a paint, uh, a palette of paint. What's interesting though, I think th- the most obvious thing that's striking about this, aside from the symbolism and abstract and you know strange art, is the two dimensionality of it, the flatness of it, right? Everything is on one dimension. Yeah. 
which you know even for you know mm-hmm. the, there's but it's not just flat there's an in, it's intentionally flat right there it's not like um you know the the moon yep. is the only thing that gives it any kind of spatial depth um but you know there's some bad art in magic that is unintentionally two dimensional this is appears to be flat by design right. in a very interesting way yeah yeah very little shading the only shading is on the the anubis creature as you said just very subtle i agree with you completely and it, it, i like how it's kind of a rorschach test i mean you can if you ask a hundred different players how this image relates to the card and what it means to them. Right. I think you'll get And we haven't even pointed out like the teeter totter could be balancing the two figures, the mime or the in- clown or Anubis, or it could just be that, right, that they are in stasis, held in stasis. <laughs> exactly. It could, yeah, it could be the depiction of an action in progress that has been frozen in time. That's one, I think, interpretation. Which which owes directly to the function of the card, but that's certainly not a given. Great art. Yeah, there's not a lot of magic prints or not magic cards that I would just yes. know, like or have a print of just yes. just to look no, at that's... and think about. <laughs> really think about, right? There, there are lots of them that I would look at and, and just and lo- enjoy the beauty of, you know, your Shivan dragons and your nightmares and those kind of things. But this one, well, I think it a, goes back to what I was saying, right? That there, this is just so simple. It's like a dreamscape. Right, it's just so symbolic. Yes, that it it which is we we don't have yeah. enough of that in Alpha, and I think it's because it there's so <laughs> few of that it really stands out in a powerful way. It's also worth noting that this is the one and only magic card that Faye Jones has illustrated. And isn't she re- wasn't she related to Richard Garfield in some way? Yes, I was. I could not remember that, so I wasn't going to say anything. But that is my recollection of her involvement in why she. <laughs> uh, was connected to the game. Well, if you're going to do one card, what a great card to submit. <laughs> right? A, a classic. Yeah. <laughs> love, love me some stasis. All right, let's move on to Steel Artifact. Pretty straightforward. To UU Enchant Artifact, you control Target Artifact until enchantment is discarded or game ends. If Target Artifact was tapped when stolen, it stays tapped until you can untap it. If destroyed, target artifact is put in its owner's graveyard. I think I'd have to go back and double check, but I think that's all the same boilerplate language as control magic, right? Control magic for reference reads, uh, you control target creature until enchantment is discarded. You can't tap target creature this turn, but if it's already tapped, it stays tapped until you can untap it. That's a little bit of creature-specific stuff. And if destroyed, target creatures. Yeah, it's all the same language, except the one creature-specific caveat as control magic. I think, Steve, that this card is underappreciated in its time, both in the moment and historically. I think you know that. I think it's a a better card than than time has shown in terms of its use by players. Totally agree. I think you just nailed it. I think this card is underappreciated. So I think it's useful to compare it just straight out to control magic, right? Mm-hmm. Control Magic, obviously, I think, is seen a lot more play historically than this card. On the assumption that, well, first of all, there are, yeah, well, basically on the assumption that creatures are the primary way you lose match in Magic, you know, matches of Magic. <laughs> and, right. And in, in old school, even, I mean, there are lots of cards you want to take, like a Juzum Jin and so and a, and a Sarah Angel. Um, and so there are strong grounds for valuing Control Magic. 
But when you th- compare what Steel Artifact can take against Control Magic in any environment, the the upside on Steel Artifact is surprisingly high, and the downside on Control Magic is surprising is surprisingly high as well. Meaning that yeah. it has a greater downside than we appreciate, and, and Steel Artifact has a greater upside than we may generally appreciate. One one is that the Venn diagram of creatures and, and artifacts is is non-trivial, right? <laughs> I mean, just sure. starting with things like Juggernaut and Jade Statue and Suchi and um, uh, Tetra, you know, Tetravis Trike is not a good example though, but but that that <laughs> overlap is non not at all trivial. Um, but the Ocean s- Soldier. <laughs> <laughs> this, but the second thing is that you know you get not only these range of creatures, but you also get such a huge and significant number of spells. So you start off by thinking about things like Soul Ring, you know, but but also things like Jam Day Tome, Disrupting Scepter, Icy Manipulator. Mm-hmm. All of those Formative things... Formative cards in their context. Right, the, that are strategically significant cards, mm-hmm. right? And so that's, I think, where some of the difference really comes in, is that Steel Artifact gets that intersection, which I think gives it a, you know, a, a more, pro- in some ways, a more profound upside. Now, against, you know, because it has, a, it's u- more useful against a wider range of decks in that way. Yeah, absolutely. You'd be hard pressed to find a quote unquote removal spell that's good against, say, the deck and two or three color zoo, for example. Right. Yeah. Whereas if that Zoo deck's got Juggernauts, which they some did, some didn't, but if they have Juggernauts, then your Steel Artifact has a target that's meaty in both contexts. And there are other things they could play. I mean, if they tap out to play a Chaos Orb, you can take that. Yep. Um, often in sideboards, you'll find artifacts of certain types. So, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt. Can you talk about how you're uh, deploying this in uh, the Alpha League right yeah. now? Well, I don't think there's any question it's better... Than control magic and alpha league because that mm-hmm. Venn diagram is even larger with Jade Statue sitting at the middle of it, and art and there is a wider range of artifacts that even see play in alpha in some sense because yeah. you know not only do you have a lot of the artifacts that would otherwise see play in old school but then you have the the marginal utility of artifacts a lot of the artifact rares like Cyclopean Tomb or you get Jam Day Tome and Disrupting Scepter but then you have oh I don't the charms. You know, you have things like um, um, Icy Manipulator sees more play, Cormus Bell, Gauntlet, you know, well, Gauntlet might symmetrical, but, and so is Cormus Bell, but the charms, the charms are significant, I would say. That, sure. you know, a lot of the alpha decks have at least one charm, and so being able to take that is actually quite significant. Um, yeah. So I think, I think there's a, the, the Venn diagram is larger, and the, the artifact creatures are more central to alpha for the reasons we've talked about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to me that steel artifact hasn't actually been printed more than it, it, it has. I mean, it was in the core sets for a while, revised fourth, fifth, skipped sixth edition for some reason, but then in seventh and eighth, the um, it's the sort of card that I thought would have shown up in a, a reprint set that was maybe artifact focused or maybe a commander uh, product at some point, but uh, well, for whatever reason, ninth or sorry, eighth edition is the last printing. It's noteworthy that the steel artifact was the impetus for at least the naming on the the tempest card steel enchantment, 
which I think is pretty funny. I think that's a bit of a, in, in hindsight, and I don't know if I appreciated this at the time, but in hindsight, the fact that they printed the the Tempest card that they did, that's just this card for enchantments, right? But gave it the name Steel Enchantment it is obviously a, a direct homage to Steel Artifact because it's not like Control Magic. They could have called it Control Enchantment, right? Mm-hmm. But... But, yeah. but they straight up just called it Steel Enchantment, which is a bit of a an inside joke, right? And also, there hasn't been... Well, the notion of stealing is not a common concept in Magic. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. It's not like there's a, a lineage of things that have Steel X in them, right? If you look at cards with Steel in their name, there's basically these two and then a, a couple of cards based on like Breath Stealer and Dream Stealer. Those are other concepts stealer of secrets i mean like this notion of just enchanting a thing and having it be yours <laughs> and equating that with theft really yeah. only exists in these, these two, two cards. cards yeah um there is another funny comparison too which is uh, to use the venn diagram example that you just brought up which is the card domineer from mirrodin domineer is the intersection of steel artifact and control magic which is just one you oh, yeah. uh, gain control of uh, target uh, artifact creature, which is pretty cool. Yeah, out of Mirrodin. Yeah. yeah, I do think that the art. This is um, this alpha art is some maybe Weber art. I do think it's kind of a cool. Um, I like it. A, a homage to uh, Indiana Jones, right? But I do wish this is like going back to Soulnet. I think I, I do wish it was a little less literal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like. I think in defense of this particular piece of art, there is a lot going in here that it, it is left to the imagination. So the statue figures that are in barely rendered, you know, the, even the statuette that's being stolen appears to be a cat is barely rendered. And the thief, him or herself, is barely, is just entirely in, sil- in silhouette. So I think there are some, I think there are some interesting things here. It doesn't, this doesn't strike me as like, you know, this big adventure card. It really does feel more like, you know, this figure is skulking around some sort of ruin somewhere. I actually really like this art. There's some weird things going on with the perspective, but I like it. Yeah. Well, that's understandable. And I do think that this card, I I was, my explanation from a minute ago was a little bit incomplete with respect to stealing because it occurred to me as after I said it, that thievery, the notion of thievery in magic has at least, I think, owes a strong amount of its lineage to this exact card because for example there's a card master thief from m12 yeah this says when master thief enters the battlefield king control of target artifact for as long as you control master thief so it's pretty clear that that's obviously a direct homage to uh, steel artifact in the way that um sower of temptation is a direct homage to control magic but it's pretty clear that that further cements along with things like Aura Thief and Daring Thief and even as recently as Oko Thief of Crowns, right? That notion that taking something from your opponent is thievery. It's just uh, it's just not so directly codified as stealing in, in very many cards. Fair enough. Yeah, even bribery yeah. isn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, bribery's in that lineage as well. All right, let's move on to, uh, in my opinion, surprisingly enigmatic card. Stone Giant. <laughs> Stone Giant is a creature. 2RR, Summon Giant. 
Tap to make one of your own creatures a flying creature until end of turn. Target creature must have toughness less than stone giant's power is destroyed at end of turn. And it's a 3-4. Let me read that last sentence again. Oh, it's, there's, I skipped the word witch. Target creature, comma, which must have toughness less than stone giant's power, comma, is destroyed at end of turn. So in practice, remember, it has to have toughness less than stone giant's power, which means it has to have, to have toughness of two, unless you're using something to buff the stone giant, which is feasible vis-a-vis giant growth, gauntlet of might, etc. But in general, in the alpha context, there's not a lot of... I mean, the toughness less than two, that's only 47 creatures in the set to begin with, really. And most of them are... <laughs> okay, most of them are inapplicable, I guess is what I would say, to using this ability to begin with. Either they have flying anyway, or they're like a 1-1, like a Lay Druid or something like that, which you wouldn't get much utility out of. It's The effect is ostensibly under the guise of a utility creature, as we've spoken to before, but... <laughs> but the utility of the thing is just so small that it's comical. Do you have any experience, like experiential time with this card, Steve? Um, no. I, but I have actually encountered its descendants in a number of occasions. You know, there have they've made plenty of giants of yeah. this template over the years. The one that the one that stands out strongest in my mind is the one from Lorwyn, because I faced it. Antoine Rule played it against me in our um, Winston draft. And I'm trying to figure out what that was, which which one that was, because it um, it was a giant with these activated abilities. Unless I'm just completely misremembering something. I think it was a rare. But. So Kevin, what I think is what it's it's difficult to discern the design intent behind this card, right? Number one, it's not in gamma. Number two, it would appear to be a card that you would insert kind of like a giant spider to give a color greater reach mm-hmm. with respect to dealing with flying creatures on defense or to give mm-hmm. to provide a finisher for a stalemated game. But the clause is so strange, you know, that it basically means it has to, the creature has to be two or less. It's hard to know exactly what to make of that. It feels like a context. pure top-down design to me, and where the giant can't lift something basically yeah. heavier than itself. <laughs> something that's, right. In practice, right. the, the net effect is you properly yeah. surmised, right? An alpha strike to get through final points of damage, or a desperation move to block a flying creature... Both of them are just really inadequate when you consider what creatures are you going to be using in this, right? Yes, I suppose you could toss a Mons Goblin Raider up in the air to stand in front of an Astera Angel for one turn, but that's such a, it's such a, it's not just right. not advantageous, it's a terrible use of resources. <laughs> like, you've played a Mons Goblin Raider, okay, that's fine, that's part of an aggressive strategy, yeah. but then you put this giant into your deck. For the purposes of of what? Getting over your opponent's walls for chip damage? Because how much damage are you going to do with this creature you've tossed, right? Like, you can't toss a Shivan Dragon that's already got flying, or, or a Dragon Whelp. True. So that's, those two things are, you know, out of the question. You can't toss a, even a 3-3 Sedge Troll, right? 
there's no smallish other creature with fire breathing unless you put the fire breathing on yourself. So I suppose you could assemble a three-card combo to get a big fire breather over. But at that point, why are you just not playing with Dragon Whelp or Shivan Dragon, right? <laughs> I mean, this card just does so much work for so little benefit. The toughness clause really kills it. If you could toss a force of nature or a crawl worm at somebody, well, then we'd be talking, right? That's a reasonable strategy for getting around the, the omnipresent walls in Alpha, but not this, you know, throwing a gray ogre at them business. This is another yeah, one of those cards that very far outlived its welcome. It was printed in 4th, 5th, and then not for a while, but then it was printed again in M10. It was also in a dual deck. Venter versus Koth. It was on the Koth side of the Venter wow. dual deck. I don't get that. Uh, but I, just another inexplicable reprint in M10. Uh, this Well, M10 you know, was hearkening back to Alpha in a number of ways, so I can excuse a little bit for that. But up until 5th edition, I just have no idea what we're thinking. Plus the fact that you just throw the creature and it's just dead. I mean, at least let you damage players. Like Bloodshot Cyclops, at least you can throw right. something at a player. Yeah, I've never played with this. Every time I opened one and revised, I looked at it and thought, what in the heck? Why am I going to do this? This is terrible. I was like reading and reading and thinking, oh, okay, I can make my creature flying. Oh, yeah, okay, so I could get through. And then it says toughness less than three. And I thought, oh, come on. Also, <laughs> this flavor text is completely inexcusable. It just says what goes up must come down. Come on. Lord Lord Tennyson, this is not. <laughs> That's not excusable. That's great. <laughs> All right. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Well, it's interesting that Dwarven Warriors makes a creature. So that you know, in red, you do have these ways oh, of good point skirting stalemates. Good point, right? So or or evade providing evasion. But Dwarven Warriors specifies right. Doesn't say Dwarven Warriors doesn't say tap to make a creature with right, power right. greater than Dwarven Warriors unblockable, right? It's. Uh, <laughs> So that it is. It is interesting that they now it is worth noting that Stone that Giant regard. is it's okay on rate, right? Like you're getting a three four for four. That part is okay. That's part yeah, of what three, makes the activated ability even more inexplicable. Basically, is why are you also giving us this comparatively good body then, and then tacking on this ability? Because if I need this ability, I'm gonna just wish I had a Dragon Whelp anyway, or a Rock of Courage's right. I mean, Stone Giant is an uncommon, so it's competing directly with Dragon Whelp. And in that comparison, it really, really fails. Would you rather have a Stone Giant well, or a Hill Giant? If I'm mono red, then Stone Giant every day, right? There's no reason not to have, to have a Hill Giant when you could have a Stone Giant. But as soon as you factor in another color, then the, the equation gets a lot more complicated, right? If I'm a red-green Drek playing Land of War Elves and I'm trying to accelerate out my 4-drop, then I would consider strongly Hill Giant over Stone. Also depends on how many Tigers you let me have. In this art by Damien Willick, <laughs> he's just smashing yeah, the bones a, of something together. Yeah, it's not a very together. inspiring art, but <laughs> I do kind of like the depiction of a giant mountain man. It's not very, much like the the the, the figure that's depicted, it's not very subtle. <laughs> All right, let's move on from Stone Giant to Stone Rain. A card that really we kind of already reviewed two times. I mean, this is just this, unlike Ice Storm and Sinkhole, for PR reasons, Stone Rain was the one that lived through into Revised, as you already articulated, and it was the one that really bore the moniker of what Land Destruction became. Like, 
stone rain, like so many other spells in Alpha, became the verb to describe destroying a land. I don't think we really need to cover too much else. We've we've covered it pretty thoroughly. Stone rain was printed Alpha Beta Unlimited, right? And then it's one of those cards that just made its way inexplicably into a bunch of core sets because for far too long R and D thought that stone raining people was something they wanted in Magic. So it's in Ice Age, it's in Mirage, it's in Tempest, it was in Portal one and two. It was in Mercadian Masks, for Pete's sake. That's way too many, way too many sets. It it really was a hard lesson for R&D to learn. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> they kind of did a, a screeching halt. Like So it was in, what is this, 5th? I guess it skipped 6th edition. No, it's in 6th, never mind. 7th and 8th. Then it was in, jeez, I forgot it was in Champions of Kamigawa, for Pete's sake. And then ninth edition. Yeah. Well... <sighs> I think Stone Rain's most famous application is in Ponza. Sure. You know, sure. with with Pillage as the, you know, as a kind of a tempo play. I just think it's totally fascinating that Stone Rain is the only one that made it to Revised of the Triptych, as you call it. Yeah. But in the Ponza, well, in the Ponza deck, the idea was that that it would, you would gain, you would gain te- tempo, right? There would be a tempo play with Pillage. Pillage oh, yeah. was a massive and in a, in very prominent constructed card right oh yes absolutely as a as a kind of iteration on stone rain pillage was a very powerful design in its day right it was kind of a breakthrough design in its simple modality not that it was the first modal spell exactly but just it's a it's efficiency at targeting it was a long t- i mean we didn't have an, another spell as good as pillage until creeping mold which could hit a, an artifact or a land i think and then it's kind of a we were what am i trying to say there was a drought in quality modal spells like this in the early several sets of magic yeah which is too bad because that was an interesting design space yeah we've gotten a lot more of that in this day and age especially with as between creatures and planeswalkers (laughs) r&d is really starting to branch out into making more and more spells that can kill planeswalkers and other types of permanents of note, the many, many arts of Stone Rain. I don't have the count off the top of my head here, but as I'm looking at it, there's maybe as many as eight different arts for Stone Rain. They're all quite literal, almost to a one. It shows some 45 to 60 degree angle of something stone-like falling to the earth. <laughs> but I must admit that of them, my favorite depiction is Champions of Kamigawa. Champions does a really good job of showing flaming smoke trails in a just a really high degree of relief which i think is really cool i don't play stone rain and haven't in any context since probably 1994 but uh there are some cool stone rain arts also worth noting that it's on the short list of cards that you can get the alpha version in foil there's an <laughs> fnm foil promo version of stone rain with the old frame and the alpha art from the year 2000 good point so if you want that it's there for you Actually, I have to say, I prefer almost all the art ver- versions over the Champions one, but it's mostly What's a that? personal preference. I actually dislike the Tempest one the most, but the Ice Age Stone Rain is int- is cool. It's kind of a Foglio, yeah, um, goblin gremlin type figure in the foreground. That that goblin is great because she's got this big fur. It's not quite clear whether or not that's a, a whole coat or whether or not it's just like a scarf, but either way, she's wearing this giant fur, and it's pretty cool. She's very much very much put out by this stone rain happening behind her. <laughs> yeah. 
I think the Portal Second Age one is gets my award for the one that's the most, I would say, grim and gritty. Like, a lot of them, they equate the stones to uh, meteors. There's a lot of flame trails and smoke trails behind them. The Portal Second Age one is just straight up giant rocks falling from the sky and wreaking havoc on this poor village. It's um, it's actually pretty intense. Unfortunately, <laughs> good grief. Unfortunately, they counteracted the intensity of that art with the flavor text on the Portal Second Age one, which is simply, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> which, uh, someone, someone step in, please. <laughs> Thankfully, most of the stone rains don't have flavor text. Maybe only a third of them do. Like the Portal 1 flavor text, which was reused for cards on the list from the Mystery Boosters, has a way better flavor text. It says, I cast a thousand tiny stuns. Beware my many dawns. That, that is some good Stone Rain flavor text. I like that one. Much more literary, but... Mm-hmm. No, you don't, you don't have to be a literary critic to make uh, <laughs> magic flavor text. <laughs> And so just for thoroughness, this card is entirely unchanged from Gamma. It is the same cost, the same effect, and even some of the same art in in a way. (laughs) I don't know where this art came from. It's non-credited, but it looks like, yeah, lightning bolts striking the ground. All right, let's move on to Stream of Life. Quite famously, Stream of Life is XG, and it simply says, it's a sorcery that says target player gains X life. It's noteworthy the the connection that this has with the other X spells in Alpha, but I'm thinking in particular, Steve, about Mind Twist, right? Yeah. And the, the target player versus target opponent debacle with Mind Twist. <laughs> this card has not <laughs> suffered that same problem. It is consistently target player in every printing of the card that I can see. I can't see any exception, although I must admit that between the years of 1990, say, 5 and 2000 and let's say 20, I wasn't paying much attention to whether or not Stream of Life could target your opponent. <laughs> Apparently it could all along, though. Steve, did you play Stream of Life at any point in your life? The only time I would have ever played it... No, let me just say no. I don't okay. think so. <laughs> I am not too proud to admit that I went through a, my you know my casual phase in the early days and put some Streams of Life into various decks just because... There was a non-zero positive relationship between resolving a stream of life for ten and winning a game <laughs> in my casual <laughs> days, and so uh, I, I absolutely did it, and absolutely did it. I think for the right reasons, but at the same time, it's been uh, twenty-five years since that point, and I haven't cast one. I don't have a, a lot of affinity for stream of life, and if I was yeah. going to, it would come in the form of some black spell these days that would have some other effect tied to it, which uh, obviously stream of life is outmoded by the by every modern measure. Yeah. There's not much to say about this card because it's just never really seen play. I It, it wasn't even used in the uh, Prosperity decks because those were just Drain Life. Mm-hmm. But I will... I do think that it's worth commenting for a moment on the role of life gain in Magic. You know, where has life gain been useful? Where has it not been useful? Where has it been applied? And where has it appear, uh, failed to appear? The most... Obvious, so life gain is by itself not inherently bad. <laughs> it may seem like <laughs> it, but it's not. Well, I mean, no resource is inherently unuseful. Every one of them right. can be leveraged. Right. 
to some degree, it just depends on the efficiency with which it can be generated, right? Mm-hmm. So Zuranorb and Ivory Tower, mm-hmm. and to you know, are obviously the two examples of life gain that in the early game saw a lot of play. Now, Drain Life and Mirror Universe are equally examples, but they're double sided. They both inflict damage and gain you life. Mm-hmm. So they're con- you know they're not pure examples of life gain. Um. In all of those, you know, in tendrils of agony in contemporary sense, but again, the same thing, same principle for tendrils. Yeah. I think that what all of that suggests is that a go big life gain spell is not where you want to be. <laughs> it's in fact the opposite, right? <laughs> well, the common thread that I'm observing in all the examples you just gave, every one of them is the rate. The rate of paying one mana for one life is a very bad rate. All the good cards, Zerin Orb, um, mirror universe especially um, they all get you more than a life for your mana Zeran Orb costs no mana There's no, you can't even put mana into it it's, it's much more efficient uh, Ivory Tower right you pay a single mana and over the course of a game it could return to you 10, 20, 30 life depending on the game right rate is very important when a, when measuring the effect of stream of life not to mention anything like tendrils or drain life that has any other ancillary game winning effect associated with it and Magic R&D has codified that lesson in any uh, otherwise one-to-one like X gain X life spells of late, like um, Heliod's Intervention, where you now gain twice X life. And the I think the, that was first done in the card that I can't remember the name of, but there was a green-white hybrid card that was the first recapitulation of Stream of Life where you gain twice the life, refreshing something from Tempest Block, I thought. Anyway, the the fact of the matter is is that it's been a while since paying one mana for one life was any kind of a even an effect you could even get really. Now, with the exception of the charms that we talked about, uh, that's true. But even those, like the the utility of those, is not so much in the rate, but the reusability. Right, the fact that it's sitting on board and you can dump all your mana into it every turn. At some point, reusability starts to have cer- a certain value, but um, even then. You're paying less than you are for Stream of Life uh, over time just because you amortize the mana cost of that charm over every time you activate it, right? So to me, Stream of Life is one of those cards that it took another thing that's similar to, say, Dark Ritual and Counterspell and Lightning Bolt, but in the other direction. It took R&D a little too long to realize that this was an overcosted effect, and that's why the card is legal in Modern, because it was printed... <laughs> Four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Even ninth edition, this card was printed into. Wow! When it was probably several printings overdue for a discontinuation. Remarkable. Yeah. I do have to say that out of all Mark Poole's art, this one does not stand. It doesn't come to mind, right? When I think of Mark Poole art, but it's very nice, very pleasant, it's very, very peaceful. Ni- yeah, I like it a lot. If I had any call or cause to play Stream of Life. I would have gotten uh, an Alpha Beta one of these and got him to sign it years ago, but I prioritized other things, like basic <laughs> <Wisely>. items. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth noting, just for thoroughness, that this card is exactly the same in Gamma, completely unchanged. XG, caster gains X life. Oh, I guess it's not entirely the same. You can't target your opponent with it in Gamma. Gosh, they really powered it up, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up is another card that, gosh, this is weird. Uh, sunglasses of Urza. It costs three generic mana, 
a continuous artifact that says white mana in your mana pool can be used as either white or red mana. That's it. That's what you get. Your white mana can be red if you want it. And it's a clearly a top-down design of Urza's sunglasses because it just shows a pair of sunglasses with apparently ruby-style lenses in them. Um, I, do you think... Were they making an intentional joke about seeing the world through rose-colored glasses when they made this, or uh, is that just <laughs> is that just happy coincidence? It it it's too strong to be coincidence, I think. <laughs> so I think what we're meant to we're meant to understand here is that white red aggro players are looking at the the world through rose-colored glasses. Um, Urza's although sunglasses of Urza in uh, Gamma is quite different. Oh yeah, it actually has a, an activation of one. It's a four mana spell that has an activation of one as an artifact. It says may conv- it may convert one white mana to a black mana, and doesn't tap to activate. Strange. Yeah, so maybe maybe the joke wasn't there at the, at the beginning. Um, That's really really they, strange. So yeah. it was intended to be a a poly artifact that converted white to black and they changed it to a continuous that converts white to red. What is, it's such a strange. So, you know, I said it during sedge troll and I was, I was mistaken. There are two cards in alpha that reward you for playing two different colors. This is the other one, but this reward, yeah. so to speak, it's not really a payoff. It's no. just, this it's just like a mana rock that only works it's a for boros. <laughs> yeah, and it's also worth noting that it doesn't affect red mana. It's it's not like if you open up open yeah. up with a handful of mountains, you can cast white knight. No, no, no. You just have to it's have one white directional. mana. Yeah, it's this is a very odd card. Very odd. is my you know, it's a very odd card. There's nothing. There's no pairing. It's not part of a cycle. There's no obvious uh, interaction that powers this up. There's, you know, it's just, it's just, a, it's a mana converter in a very, in a one directional way, um, from one color to another, and there's nothing like that else in the, in the set. I mean, there's Celestial Prism, which we've talked about, mm-hmm. which can turn generic mana into a particular form of mana for a, for a price, but this is just a continuous artifact, which is another oddity about it. I think it's a good thing they made a continuous artifact because it simplifies the card. Yes. Um, this is also our second reference to Urza in the set. Yeah, it's strange that Urza being such a powerful character <laughs> in the history of magic and so formative in the early days of the storyline and on Dominaria, uh, all we get in Alpha is his spectacles. <laughs> I really don't <laughs> yeah. get it. Urza's got a desk somewhere with a bunch of glasses missing and he's looking around going, <laughs> where did they go? If you were to say design a card called Sunglasses of Urza, top down. If you knew what Glasses of Urza did, <laughs> how do you get to this card, right? <laughs> what a great question. <laughs> I have no idea. For well, So here's a here's a, just a, a trivia question for you. What in the world are glasses meant to depict in the world of magic? Like, are they helping you understand? Are they about knowledge? Because then Glasses yeah. of Urza makes a lot of sense, I guess. Right. But there's other cards that speak to perception throughout using light as purification so you could make a a case that if you were to focus light like with a lens like you've got a number of lenses that have to do with seeing face down creatures or removing hex proof or other things like that 
and light has been used in especially in white cards as representing purification magic right mostly undoing black or red magic i the notion that sunglasses though just tinting light i mean so the sunglasses here are are just purely playing off of tinting light they really should have just been a prism if anything rather than urza's sunglasses right urza doesn't wear these sunglasses because he wants to get access to red mana (laughs) that's not how mana works yeah it's very odd (laughs) it's really funny i mean i guess if i was doing it maybe here's if if i was tasked with designing a card called sunglasses of urza and i'd been given the template i would probably look for other zones to search so i love it maybe yeah if so Sunglasses, sorry, glasses of Urza allow me to see my opponent's hand. What if sunglasses of Urza allows me to look at the top card of a library or something like that? Absolutely. Yeah. Totally understandable design. But then you don't get the light component, you know, but. <laughs> it's just such a bizarre top down design, which makes it even yeah. stranger that this card actually was one of the ones that made it into revised and even as far as fourth edition. <laughs> what were they <laughs> yeah. doing reprinting this card? Was there, did they have some anecdotal evidence yeah. that players really liked it? Especially, well, t- since two things, well, you didn't say it, but these are enemy colors. Boros oh, yeah. are not allied colors. Oh, yeah. Num- number two, with Revised, you get access to Antiquities and Arabian Nights, which have vast reservoirs of interesting artifacts to include. <laughs> and yet we're getting sunglasses of Urza. Right. I mean, we could get pyramids, <laughs> you know, so we get this. Wow, that's a really good point. Yeah, this is. The opportunity cost of putting Sunglasses of Urza both in Alpha, but then in all the subsequent sets is really a head-scratcher. I'm I'm genuinely surprised. Yeah, I, I think as a rare, players would have much appreciated a candelabra over this. Oh, jeez. Yes, very much so. Mirror Universe, are you kidding? Um, <laughs> yeah. Wow, you're right. Revised would have been a much bigger hit if they'd chosen one of those cards over this silly thing. Well, Revised came out before Legends, but... By fourth, they could have put something. Mm. You know, fourth, You're fourth right. was part of Chronicles, where you know they came out where they were reprinting cards from Legends, and it was before the reserve list. Right. So they they could have swapped this out for Mirror Universe and, and fourth. But Revised could have had any number of cool things from Antiquities, right? Good grief. Yep. Or Arabians, which they did put some things in there, like Jandor's saddlebags. Yeah. But <laughs> why that in Ebony Horse <laughs> instead of? I mean, if I'm not mistaken, Arabian Nights has like 10 interesting art. I mean, 10 artifacts, some of which are really interesting. We did get Aladdin's lamp, so there's that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They put all the mo- the least interesting artifacts. Can you imagine? In there. Here, here's, here's another hypothetical that would blow your mind, Steve. What if they had realized how good um, colorless, non basic lands were, and if Revised had library, or if Revised had oh, wow. workshop? That's, they could have done that. Revised yeah. could have had Mishra's yeah. Factory. Granted, they added Factory Actually, later, but... Now that I'm looking at it, it looks like Revised has almost all of Arabian's artifacts. Wow. It, it, so, maybe you, you can double-check Revised, but I'm looking at the Arabian artifacts. Just listen to these. Just listen to this list. Okay. Aladdin's Lamp, Aladdin's Ring, Bottle of Suleiman, Brass Man, City in a Bottle, Dancing Scimitar, Ebony Horse, Flying Carpet, Jandor's Ring, Jandor's Saddlebag, Jewel Bird, Pyramids, Ring of Maroof, Sandals of Abdallah. That's all of them. Oh, wow. The only ones that aren't in Revised, if I'm not mistaken, are City in a Bottle, which makes sense why it wouldn't be there. Uh, uh, Pyramids, 
jeweled bird and sandals of Abdallah, uh, ring of Maruf and sandals of Abdallah, right? The rest are in revised. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's wild. So they went because whole they had hog. so many artifacts to take out of. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, so they went whole hog with the artifacts from Arabians and antiquities. They just didn't include some of our favorites, like because the, the the story is obviously you can't have all the artifacts from antiquities, but they included right. uh, ten of them: Armageddon clock, from antiquities, Dragon Engine, Ivory yeah. Tower, Millstone, Mishra's War Machine, Onulet, Ornithopter, Primal Clay, Rocket Launcher, and the Rack. About half of those I agree with. Right, Ivory Tower. You mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. Millstone was yeah. a formative inclusion and in revised. Yep. Right, and the rack obviously goes directly with the vice. And and trike was added in fourth, I believe, even yeah. though it wasn't in revised. Yeah, and Tetravis came into fourth as well. I mean, the, the only biggies here that in their biggies, in part because <laughs> they weren't reprinted and revised, is Feldon's cane, uh, Tanos's coffin, and Candelabra. Wow. Besides the two that made it made it into uh, fourth, Tetravis and Trike. And what Sushi, a colossal, what a colossal miss that Candelopra was not in revised, and we got Armageddon Clock and Mishra's War Machine <laughs> and Onulet. <laughs> they put Dragon Engine and Primal Clay in over Suchi. Well, also, why not Feldon's Cane? I mean, yeah, I especially when you're going to put Millstone in, well, right? Well, they ended up putting Feldon's cane in uh, in Chronicles. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, Suchi as well, right? I mean, I guess Suchi is pretty competitive in that slot. So, but. Steve, tell me this. Tell me this. If if Candelopera had been in revised in place of Ivory Tower, and Ivory Tower Ooh. became reserved, Ooh. and was never printed again, and you could only get it in antiquities. <laughs> <laughs> like, it would be more than candelabra uh, guaranteed I, i'm i'm not convinced because it's less proactive but it's still still super powerful let me tell you why because candelabra is very good in like high tide and certain combo decks mm-hmm. but ivory tower was a tournament staple in the deck oh, for yeah. so long that's true and also ivory tower is good with land tax Oh, very much. Really so. good with land tax. Yeah. What? So I'm, it, I'm really loving these fascinating hypotheticals because <laughs> think of how different the landscape of Magic would be. I mean, I don't know about I don't know if it would have dramatically affected tournaments, right? Players get cards, but but just the notion of Ivory Tower being like a $500 card today. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. It's just because it's in revised. Yeah. No, um, <clears throat> Kevin, I I think. If I was building revised, I would be looking for effects that are simple, synergistic, and potentially useful, right? So I would have put Rocket Launcher in there because that's a gap. It's a simple effect. Yeah. An artifact that translates mana into damage. A simple, important siphon. There's nothing like it. Uh-huh. I probably would have included Ornithopter. Oh. Cool card. Yeah, agreed. Um, but I, I definitely would have included Candelabra. Unless there was some sort of thinking that, well, we want... Candelabra to be the chase card set, you know, chase card from the set, you know. Um, but I, I doubt they would have had that thinking because they were designing revised in probably late '93, right? Because it was released yeah. in in early '94. So, well, yeah, it was. It, I mean, Feb- Antiquities came out in February, March, and Revised came out immediately after that. So, I don't know. 
I probably, honestly, I probably would have included Sandals of Abdallah <laughs> over some of the other things that were revised. I mean, in, in Arabians, well, right? Because yeah, and obviously you don't put City in a Bottle in, right? And you don't put Jeweled Bird right. in. Right. So really, it's just pyramids, Ring of Maruf, and sandals. And I think Ring of Maruf is is too weird. Too weird. But pyramids. It's very expensive, but it's no more expensive than the Aladdin stuff. I mean, the Aladdin stuff would only be included as the, is like flavor for flavor reasons. Yeah, I completely agree. I would much rather garbage. open the pyramids than an Aladdin's lamp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, in a, in a multiplayer game, pyramids is is you know that's very tactical. Yeah, you can make friends quickly with when that. When you and I did our uh, set review of Arabian Nights, we talked at length about the mana cost of pyramids, about the notion that that the thing you're meant to use to protect yourself from land destruction costs six mana plus two to activate, which is just laughable. <laughs> yeah. If pyramids could have cost zero, and I still would play it just as much. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they were thinking. Gosh, we, we better be careful or land destruction might become invalid. That's just a testament to how much they thought that Stone Rain was supposed to be part of magic. All right, we got, I pretty, also don't know. We got pretty far afield yeah. of, of Sunglasses yep. of Urza here. Yeah, what a weird card. Very much so. But there's a reason why the even the beta copies of that rare are only, well, they're cheap. <laughs> All right, let's move on to another fun one, and that is Swamp. What can we say about Swamp? You know, there's an A, there's a B, there's a C. Steve, can you talk to us about <laughs> the um, about the monikers for these swamps? Because you had some very creative uh, labels for the, the prior <laughs> sets. Yeah. So <laughs> this one is low branch, high branch, and alpha. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got you. Low branch and high branch. Got it. Yeah. And then the beta one, I think, is just, you know, C or you could call it like the the it's definitely dual branch. The two branches, yeah. Low branch, high branch, yeah. two branch. That's good. It's starting to sound like a Dr. <laughs> Seuss book. Yeah. One branch, two branch. <laughs> um, uh, there's, <laughs> there is. These are Dan Frazier's art, and there is obviously a lot, a lot of co- of um, compositional similarity between all three of these. Not quite as much similarity as say with the plains, but not nearly as much diversity as with the forests or the mountains. Um, do you have a favorite of these, Steve? Not really, honestly. They're just too, you know, they're they're just too fungible. <laughs> they really don't stand out in a strong way to my mind, mm-hmm. to my eye. What about for you? Uh, well, I totally agree with you. I am happy with any and all of these. I do think I prefer C because of the reasons of we stated before. Yeah, the the darker the dark. border on the cards, and also just. I enjoy the monochromatic elements of it. B has B is fantastic. It just has too much red brown in it for my taste. I, I much mm, prefer the yeah. monochrome. And then, yeah, th- as between A and C, it really is just the darker card border that does it for me. I'm still a big fan of A. I think you're right. I think I slightly prefer A and C. A if I want to go alpha. C if you want to get it. C feels the most like a uh, like a swamp in its totality because yeah. the other two you have branches and what appears to be murk, you know, like a swampy water. But it's really C that has kind of, uh, you know, uh, seaweed hanging from the branches in a much more visible way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of that on B, but you're right. It's very visible on C. C also has a little bit more uh, vegetation. There's actually a splash of green in in the middle distance. 
They're all pretty great, though. They all look great with um, with Dan Fraser's signature on them. What else can we say about swamps? <laughs> Not much. Yeah. All right. Let's move on then to one that we can talk at length about: swords to plowshares. Except no substitutes. Oh, for W, you get an instant. Target creature is removed from the game entirely. Return to owner's deck only when the game is over. Creature's controller gains life points equal to creature's power. Well, with Disenchant, this was the staple white removal spell that defined magic in the early days and became a key component, of the tactical component of the deck. Kevin, what I want to focus on for a minute is just the ups and downs that Swords has had in Vintage. Because it's yeah. been a strange ride. Yeah, listeners to our show for a long time will note the the ways in which we've discussed the ebb and flow of white just as a color in vintage and how mm-hmm. there was a long stretch in the early 2000s when white basically need not apply in vintage. Yep. And how the printing of Monastery Mentor was just a complete pivot point that was then cemented in some other ways by cards like Fragmentize, and at which point white became, for a long stretch, uh, a de facto inclusion in vintage control and aggro control decks. As as in contrast to, say, old school, where you know white has never gone anywhere. White's always been the de facto, in, in addition to blue, right? And so Monastery Mentor is really the catalyst that, that forms this conversation about the presence of Swords to Plowshares in, in contemporary vintage. I agree with that analysis, but I wanted to go back even further. There was a point, I think, after Blightsteel Colossus faded, but before, I want to say bef- before, I don't remember, maybe before Lodestone Golem, where it would have been un- basically unfathomable to be playing with Swords to Plowshares main deck in a vintage deck. Yeah. It just wasn't done. There just weren't enough creatures reliably in the format to justify it. And any of the creatures that you reasonably wanted to hit in a in a mainstream metagame were those that you would have hit with some alternative, whether it's, I don't know, Kevin, like an artifact removal spell or a lightning bolt or something like that. Right. It just, it just wasn't even remotely good enough. <laughs> and... I think, I think Mentor was part of the resurgence of swords. Not because it, not just because it brought white back into the fore, but because it really highlighted the limitations of Bolt as an answer to Mentor. Because it only took two spells, even if the spells didn't resolve, to put the Mentor out of range. Right. Absolutely. And I can't, I can't remember all the details. I don't remember whether it was like, I don't know, like Fire Ice and Bolt were both played above swords. You know, rack and ruin. There were other. There were other sweepers. Lava dart. You just. <laughs> right. You just didn't play. You just didn't play with swords. Well, there were a number of reasons for it. I mean, I'm thinking back to the Psychotog era, right? The that Psychotog deck didn't play with any dedicated creature removal, even in environment with workshop decks and yeah, and Juggernaut decks, right? And your um, yeah, and your your Goblin Welder decks, like you just didn't play with removal. Psychotog was your well, removal spell. It did have those decks did have Fire Ice for welders. Oh, okay. I remember playing Fire Ice, but it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't for you. Didn't play Swords. Right. That was just too narrow. We didn't and we didn't play Doom Blade or something like that. Right. Right. No, no dedicated removal in that sense. 
And I'm thinking back to the slaver eras, right? The mind slaver decks, uh, which obviously came in many, many derivations. Those decks had, I mean, we didn't even play lightning bolts in those decks for the most part. No, but they would have, they would occasionally have, again, fire ice or lava dart yeah. or something like that for Zenith swarms, welders. There was a long stretch yeah. when Goblin Welder was like the only creature that was respected at all. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's absolutely true. That was just unfathomable to play with swords. Yeah. Through a lot of that period. It just was so... Like, part of it was white, but part of it was just you didn't... You didn't play a card that narrow in Vintage. Yeah. Was the bigger part. Just a card that only addressed creatures was too narrow. Yeah. And and with Fire Ice, you could cantrip it. You could, you know... Right. Hit, get a two-for-one. Um, yeah, the upkeep, like ice that. your land, tempo play yeah. was pretty common. When there was no obvious tap application a, for the fire, tap the blightsteel for the turn until you win. Yeah, um, yeah. It just you didn't play with, and then it, when planeswalkers came in, you still didn't play with swords. It would have been even worse. Oh yeah, because you you needed a bolt, right? And by the way, fire ice was also very good in the dark dark confidant surge. Yeah, yeah. And also, you don't play plow on a on a snapcaster mage. So right. There were just so many reinforcing features of the format that rendered Plow terrible. Yeah, absolutely. And even if Swords to Plowshares had been, say, the right tool for the job, there was just no other payoff in white that was worth playing. Yeah, yep. That's why Mentor and then, to a lesser extent, but still an important extent, Fragmentize were so pivotal in Swords returning to the format. Yeah, and when all the good creature remo- artifact removal was in red and green, <laughs> that was doubly so. Exactly. Like, you, you've got, it was like Naturalize and Ancient Grudge. Why would you ever play a creature removal spell over artifact removal spell? Yeah. Terrible. Well, so <sighs> that's it. that's the vintage context. And now, obviously, we're in an era in vintage where Jeskai is just one of a handful of strong and viable control or aggro control archetypes yeah and how many swords do you prefer in that in that archetype right now well i main deck i mean i just played uh just guy to a to a one top eight in eternal weekend a couple of weeks back and uh i had none i had one in my sideboard sideboard yeah. <laughs> because it's still the best answer to certain things like thought not seers right yeah yes Yes, when Eldrazi came out, that's when Swords started surging again. Yeah. But that was all around the same time. I mean, it was. Maybe a couple years difference, but it was Mentor, Containment Priest, and Swords, and then Fragmentize. They all came around within like a three year period. Mm-hmm. Um, I have typically liked the Swords to Plowshares, especially when I have a Mystical Tutor main deck. Sure. And I also like it when I have JVP, especially because then you can, you know, cycle it or DAC, you can cycle it. Sure. Um, I don't know. I I like one one or two main deck, but I can totally understand why you wouldn't run it. Did you have a fragmentized main deck, Kevin? Uh, no, I played Shattering Spree main deck. Well, there you go. Because the targets I was looking out for were from either either multiple Hollow Ones or multiple Workshop targets <laughs> or multiple Moxen from yeah. PO. Boy, that totally resonates with the discussion we had earlier about Steel Artifact and Control Magic. Yeah. It's like, and and, and this point. The Swords to Plowshares is the apex of creature removal, but the metagame, depending on how it waxes, wanes, you know, how it is shaped, will shape whether you want artifact removal or, or creature removal, or mm-hmm. planeswalker removal for that matter, or, or, or hell, 
blue removal, for that matter, with pyroblast, right. sometimes taking those spots, right? Right. So there's an interesting set of Venn diagrams that, or a Venn diagram with those circles that show you, based upon what fills those those bubbles, those circles, you know, what what's most useful in that metagame, and also what the synergies are from the other direction within the color, right? Part of the reason it would be unfathomable to play white in any of the Goblin Welder or Psychotog metagames is because white was by far the worst color in Magic. This base, those those type one metagames, those and then vintage metagames, Kevin were basically four-color metagames. Well, they were five-color metagames, but the fifth color was workshops. <laughs> it was artifacts. Yeah. White was a non-color <laughs> in those metagames. I remember yeah. one time when, when Paul Mastriano won, I think it was the first NYSE, he was playing a Esper, big, you know, big blue JV, Jace control deck with plows and disenchants, and it was stunning because no one played white at that time. It was like one of the first attempts to reincorporate white, even before Containment Priest and Mentor and so on. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace, all of that. <laughs> um, yeah, white was just a non, it was a non-color. It was, it was so by far the worst color in Magic for about a 10 year period. From basically like 2002 until roughly Lodestone was printed. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would say that's accurate. That's my that's my vision of it uh, in in my memory. And the it, we we should be careful not to encapsulate just vintage in our discussion here, right? Because yeah, as as you started off by saying earlier, I mean, uh, Swords was it it's still is the apex targeted removal in Magic, and there's a reason why it, the deck was so dominant in the early days of pre-vintage and vintage and then old school, right? Swords is still the go-to removal spell in that format, and for good reason, right? You've got dominant threats like Juzam and Serendib that you can't answer with a bolt or or a number of other things. If Swords was restricted in old school, what would those decks? What would the deck play? It would have one. It would probably incorporate a balance. Is my if, guess. If you don't have balance, you'd have to have that. You would probably. But you would get. Sorry. You would allow balance because the deck usually doesn't play balance. Yeah. So the deck would play balance and one swords. Maybe a fireball, another fireball. Maybe what else would, would it would it, maybe more REB's main deck for for dibs? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean there's no there's simply no good answer. There's no card that's light that does yeah. what swords does. That's just part of its ubiquity. There have been conversations in various old school formats about how to address the deck being too good. Now it's there, are, you know, different empirical assessments of mm-hmm. that question whether it is too good. You know, I think it's debatable, but I I have often wondered that if the the card to restrict out of the deck next after Mana Drain is is not Jammed Atom, but it's Swords to Plowshares, because by running Swords to Plowshares, by not running Swords to Plowshares, you're forced to run more creature removal, which is inherently narrower, yeah, and less efficient, yeah. So you'd have to probably run. I th- actually think Martin Lindstrom's NoobCon 11 deck didn't have any Abyss or Moat main deck. <laughs> it just had wow. Fireball and Four Swords and, and Factories, of course, which are yeah. functionally, you know. But if you restricted, if you restricted Swords, I would imagine you'd have to probably run Balance and or the Abyss and maybe, maybe even like another Fireball or something. What about Cyblast? Probably not. But yeah, at least the answer is Dibs and Factories. And Sarah's. Yeah. yeah. It's not bad. There's there's just nothing. No. There's just nothing that's quite as good, of course. 
Yeah, and part of the thing is that if you restricted swords, you'd make hippie a lot better. Oh yeah. You prob the deck would probably actually have to run some bolts, maybe even, and then their mana base would be even jankier. Honestly, that would sure. probably be next. Sure. Bolt at least answers factory too. Yeah. Anyway. Well. Just something I thought about. So swords, swords is one of the rare cards from Alpha that's carried all the way to the present. Now it's not. It doesn't make the cut main deck in your Jeskai list, but it's still <laughs> sitting in your 75. Oh, yeah. It's still highly relevant, and, and depending on the ebbs and flows of the format, which creatures are most likely, it, it's, it comes right back in. And speaking of where it shines, you know where it shines in the Rav- against the Ravager decks? In dealing with Factory. Mm. Yes, that's because true. Because Shattering Spree and Fragmentize, those do not deal with a, fra- a Factory, period let alone a factory that's been boosted by Ravager. Right, where Lightning Bolt can frequently fall short. As well. Yeah. Yeah. Swords continues to be an Apex removal spell in Commander as well, which is no surprise. Pulling from It's an eternal format, right? Pulling from the whole history of the yeah. game. It's interesting that Swords just kind of doesn't have a place in Legacy right now. I'm not saying that it has no place, like uh, in the, the Terminus Miracles-based decks uh, for the last decade that's obviously been present in those decks, but Legacy, in my small amount of experience with it, has just kind of fallen away from white in kind of the same way that Vintage did in the early 2000s, but that could change at a moment's notice, I'm sure. Kevin, is this card the most played white card from Alpha in contemporary Eternal formats? Because Disenchant doesn't see any play. Interesting Uh, hypothesis. Sarah's, Sarah's fallen by the wayside. Balance is incredibly marginal. It's not even legal in Legacy. I think it is. I think Swords is the most played white card. Uh, Yeah, that stands to reason. It's certainly the most played white card in EDH, and uh, if you're factoring that in, then that's a huge <laughs> that's a huge element. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Swords to Plowshare is Art Jeff Mengus, classic Mengus, that kind of rough, rough-hued style, not a refined line, but a thick, a thick brush stroke that looks very um, bulky. Yeah. Kind of in, in terms of the lines. And and boy, does it create a strong impression. So everything I love everything about this piece. I love the castle in the background. I love the thatched cottage in the background. I love the, the wheat behind this figure. I love the garb on this figure. I just love this piece of art. Well, there's one thing I love about this card is just about how um, programmatic it is. Uh, there's a narrative implied here, right? Magic's filled with creatures. You're a you're a worm. You're a dragon. You're a wizard. Magic's filled with objects. It's a it's a pair of glasses. It's a sword. It's a cup, right? Magic's filled with actions like um lightning bolt or a fireball, a counter spell, terror. Terror is less an action, more of a concept. But anyway, swords to plowshares is is on a short list of magic cards that tells a whole story, right? The story is about this this person, ostensibly, who probably used to be a knight, maybe a wizard, and, yep. and now they're now, a, now farmer, a farmer, and there's this implication of choice, too. Like, why did they, why, you know, did, were they part of a war that ended? Did they get injured and have to go back home and just make a living? Like, there's this whole implied story to the thing and it, even though the art, the, the composition of the art is very simple and satisfying and, and well rendered, it gives the whole thing so much more weight, in my opinion, that you can't but impart 
your own interpretation of this character's life story onto this one piece of art, this one moment in time. One of the so I read a book um, about by, by Mary Beard, who's a who's a, a well known uh, historian of Rome called SPQR, and in her book she describes how many of the Roman Empire's generals, or at least the like, top lieutenants, what they often wanted after a successful wars or re- retirement was to go home and tend yeah. to an estate. That retirement was meant that the empire gave you a swath of land somewhere, maybe like in, you know, Germany <laughs> <laughs> that you would own, right? And, and become a landlord, you know, an estate. Um, and, um, so I, I don't think that there's, I don't, I think there's a historical precedent that, you know, of generals becoming, uh, farmers, not in a simple sense, not like in the Jeffersonian <laughs> sense, but more in the manoral sense. <laughs> and that flows a little more with the top-down um, design here, and the fact that it's kind of it's a bit of a shame that the notion of exile, which was what this mechanic of this card in particular became, has become so much more of a yes. place of ceasing to exist. Right when the top-down, right, which is not which is not idea. It means that it. it the idea was that not that you cease to exist, but that you're no exactly. longer involved in the exactly. battle. Exactly, and it's a shame that that context has shifted over time, because swords, swords as well as its, uh, you know, ancestor path to exile, were not meant to be about the dissolution of a being, right? Right. <laughs> Dissolving your right. matter. Well, how would you how would you have expressed that in terms of the mechanics of the game? Because clearly you can't. It's the point isn't to send the creature yeah. to the graveyard, because it well, doesn't die. To be honest, right? Th- I can't think of another better way because there's no right. <laughs> this it's almost like fourth wall breaking. Um, this card and the the intent behind it. The intent right. is this creature is no longer participating in the game of magic <laughs> that you're participating in. Right? There's no right. mechanical way to do that uh, and still be part of the game than to just create a zone that's outside of all the other zones. I mean, you could put it in your I command agree. zone. I suppose th- there's a chance that you could <laughs> say, you know, target creature is placed in the command zone and that would work from the standpoint of just because you put something in a command zone doesn't make it your commander. So it's it's uh, the, the net effect would be exactly the same, but there are now more and more increasingly things that interact with your command zone, and so I think it's a dangerous precedent. But if the command zone had been an option back in 1993, I think it would have been a more flavorful result for the situation. Yeah, interesting. So you alluded to it earlier, specifically, Swords to Plowshares is on the, the pretty short list of cards that as they were conceived in Alpha have existed throughout the game both in a very useful meaningful tactical and strategic way but also in a printing uh, sense because the card while it did take a little bit of a break in the late 90s like um after because the card existed in alphabet unlimited ice age um revised of course ice age and then fourth edition and then it took a little bit of a break (laughs) there's a nice um foil version of the alpha art i like to call these out friday night magic 2001 um unfortunately (laughs) these versions go for hundreds of dollars now and so i wouldn't recommend someone who's just casually picking up a plow to get one of these they're ridiculously expensive well good luck getting a beta or an alpha one 
Same problem there too. Yeah. For uncommons, they're insanely. But the expensive. noteworthy part is that after fourth edition, the, the last, the next real printing was in Cold Snap. So there's a, a long stretch when we weren't getting new copies of Swords to Plowshares. But then we went on a little bit of a tear. It was in a dual deck. There was a Judge printing. Um, what's the next one? What is this one? Oh, from the Vault. Yeah. Then it started to show up in reprint sets like Conspiracy and Eternal Masters, and then the Commander decks. And now. This hasn't been printed in Commander a lot, but it has been printed, it uh, looks like, three times, as well as other reprint sets. And, of course, most recently, it is now in uh, Commander Legends, and <laughs> it's on the short list of alpha cards that have been reprinted in Secret Layer Drops. There's a Secret Layer Drop Yargle uh, Swords to Plowshares, which is hilarious. It's Yargle with a giant sword, and... That's actually a pretty short list. Lightning Bolt, Birds of Paradise, Goblin King. There's only four non-land cards that have been in both Alpha and Secret Layers. So that's interesting. Swords to Plowshares continues to be, as you put it, a staple of magic basically at this point. All this all this time later, it's still a staple. Yeah. Amazing. They should have just called it staple. I want to <laughs> I want to echo the conversation <laughs> we just had about the top-down design by looking at the gamma version of the card, which is hilarious. It's a sorcery, W. It says, one creature takes up farming. Creature discarded from game, no regeneration, raised dead, etc. Owner gets creature's power in life, returns to deck after game. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the gamma version even had it better. It just takes up farming. You get it. <laughs> it's no longer in the game. It's farming. But they could have gone so far as to make a farming zone and it would have made all manner of sense. <laughs> yeah. What else about Swords to Plowshares? Um, uh, a point about the flavor text of the card. Obviously been reprinted several times, 25 different printings. Only a few of them have flavor text, though. <laughs> the Alpha Beta Unlimited ones don't. The first time the card had flavor text was in Ice Age. But then the F&M card that I referenced that's very expensive which has the old frame and the alpha art, also added flavor text. So it's the only printing of the card that has the alpha art and flavor text. And in a bit of an homage, I think, to the early days of Magic, wow. it has a quote from Milton, from To the Lord General wow, Cromwell, nice. that What's says, the... Peace hath her victories, no less renown than war. Which is fantastic. Huh. That's yeah. great. Which version is that that has both the art and the flavor That's text? That's the F&M foil promo. Rich- yeah. FNM foil, the, the hundreds of dollars yeah. promo. If it wasn't foil, I would definitely pick it up. I don't, I don't yeah, buy foils. Understood. What wow. a classic card. I mean, card. there's a lot of metrics by which you can measure the greatness of a magic card, but this has to be on the short list of greatest cards in alpha. Don't you think? Yeah. You know, there's, as you said, there are a million different ways mm-hmm. of measuring something. So let me just throw out three. So one is endurance. Mm-hmm. Right, longest staying power. Number two is um, application in a variety of contexts. Right, mm-hmm. that's pretty useful. Um, so you've mentioned a number of them. Number three would be best card in its color. Yeah. And you know, it, it, what does it compete with? Balance, maybe disenchant. Wrath of God. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Uh, not a lot of. Yeah, I mean, swords. If you were to create a list of the top fifty best white cards ever printed. I mean, how many cards would go above Swords to yeah, Plowshares? That, very few, if any. I mean, that's... Th- 
That's the point yeah. that you're making, right? That is, you, you said, what was the thing you just said to, to tip this off? You said, is this the greatest <laughs> yeah. card in the set? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, yeah, uh, yeah hard, I agree with the, with the metrics you've described there. There could be others, of course, ones about aesthetics and et cetera, but, but yeah, yeah, I just think that this score is very highly on almost every dimension. Yeah. Every gauge is going to get a high score for this. So if there's some sort of a holistic meta score, it's going to fare well in all yeah. of those. Yep. Even more powerful cards like Black Lotus um, don't score highly in every dimension, right? The, they're not broadly applicable across multiple formats the way this is, for example. Yeah, yep. love love this card. Fantastic. Takes up farming. All right. Next up, we have uh, one that we, again, don't need to review too much. Taiga. This is another of the duels. This one is a forest and a mountain. And... Uh, I'm just going to add that while I didn't play with Taigas very much in my youth because I, it's just a combination of colors that I wasn't drawn to, I will say that it has long been one of my favorite dual lands from an aesthetic uh, purpose, and it, yes. it foreshadows my <laughs> uh, altars project because this is one of a handful of dual lands that already is pictured in a snowy setting, and so when I got these altered, I didn't have to do much to them. I really enjoy yeah, yeah, I really enjoy the almost photoreal depiction of this art. It's already so. There are ten dual lands in a in limited mm-hmm. edition and mm-hmm. nine in alpha. We'll, we're co- we're going to cover all. Of them. It's amazing, Kevin. There are four more after Tiger <laughs> yeah. alphabetically. The alphabet is funny in the way it handles the duels. <laughs> so, right. I mean, we've with Swamp, we're, we've now got all the basics out of the way, but alphabetically, we're only halfway through mm-hmm. the dual lands. Um, I don't think it's premature to say this. But this is my favorite art on the dual yeah. lands. And I want to be really clear. It's not the one that has the deepest emotional resonance for me. That would be Tundra. When I look at a Tundra, I just feel internally, like deep inside a certain <laughs> type of way. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, um, but from a purely aesthetic perspective, and then, you know, Plateau makes me feel a certain type of way because I never had the original Drew Tucker sure. art version. Um, and, uh, but, in terms of pure beauty and aesthetics, Taiga is number one, in my opinion. It's it's not just that Rob Alexander made this look so lifelike. You know, realistic representation is not for me what establishes the bar for yeah. great art. I want to I want something powerful about it. What I love about this piece of art is that there's so much going on in a small frame. That you have this kind of diagonal tree line, you know, including this lone pine mm-hmm. in the foreground, this piled up snow, and then these gorgeous rolling mountain in the background that just, I mean, it, it just, it almost rolls. It just like undulates. You get a feeling if you, if you run your eye from one edge of the mountain range to the fork to the far right, it, it's just so brilliantly rendered. And I don't know whether he, you know, found some sort of Alaskan range in mind when he started painting this or whatever, but it's a phenomenal piece. I, and the only piece, you know, the only piece again that, that makes me, that competes with it, it in my, for holistically is Tundra. But this is a gorgeous piece. And I also just want to say, it's not so much about the art, but I'll just before handing it over to you, I think that this might be one of the most important dual lands as mm. well. Because obviously blue white, very, very important early color. Black, red, very important early color. But Taiga coming so shortly before Curd Ape, I think might have been 
what the most important dual land at the beginning of the first couple of years of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Very formative, very formative in the early days of aggressive strategies and because Kurt up was so central to that and very important in just unlike, you, you know, you could make a, a blue white control deck work with basic lands if you needed to, right? You got your two or three islands, you got your ones, your one planes yeah. or whatever, but those aggressive decks and those Kurt ape decks needed to curve out and hit their land drops and their types to work it wasn't yeah exactly it wasn't just about having a dual land or carplus and right. forest would have served it does does not yeah. for curtain yeah i completely agree and your read on the art matches my own i mean it's almost like you can feel the, the cold wind whipping off of these mountains it's just <laughs> fantastic i also want to throw out there that this is very high on the list maybe the top of the list in terms of limited edition duels in terms of their accuracy at reflecting the effect they're trying to represent this this <laughs> is a mountain and a forest <laughs> and as you've heard from our prior <laughs> recent reviews on things like scrubland and savannah a lot of the duels just fail that basic test i mean badlands fails that test scrubland fails that test savannah fails that test this one exceeds in that test it's one of the ways i like it so satisfying so the dictionary tells us that a taiga is a coniferous forest of high northern altitudes, especially that between the tundra and steppes of Siberia and North America. Nice. It's positioned so, between the, the tundras and the plateaus. I like that. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Then by coniferous, it means pines, yep. spruces, larches. So a true taiga might be a little bit more wooded than this, but uh, this is still pretty densely wooded. Well, it also says in this, it says some, there's sometimes swampy coniferous forests. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. That dovetails with the bayou, which is also a pretty good representation. Scores highly on my list. All right. Well, and it, I didn't ever, as a kid, I, I obviously I didn't possess alpha beta duels um, for a long time until I started collecting as a, a young adult, but uh I do happen to have one beta taiga, and it is just an incredibly beautiful card. Oh, nice. Big fan. All right. Let's move on to Terror. 1B for an instant. Terror says, destroys target creature without possibility of regeneration, does not affect black creatures and artifact creatures. Steve, we've talked a little bit, well, we've talked at length about Swords of Plages, of course, and about the, the relative veracity of removal in Alpha it should be no surprise then to anyone who's been listening to this whole show up to this point that Terror, while very efficient and and pretty straightforward on its face, suffers just incredible structural weaknesses based on yeah. the threat density of and the distribution of threats in quality throughout the alpha-based metagames. Yeah. Well, and, and also the 93-94 metagames. I mean, especially just 93. You don't even go to the 94. Yeah, that's what I was alluding to. <laughs> the, yeah. Um, so let's enumerate those. Number one, uh, Juggernaut. Number two, Jade Statue. Number three, Hypnotic Specter. Number four, mm-hmm. Juzim Jin. Those comb- the combination of the, those first three basically make the, make the, this a fatal case in the context of old school magic 93, 94. The factory as well. Yeah. Um, that the fact that like two of the ten, like four of the ten top creatures in the format in let's say historical type one, ninety three, ninety four, 
or just 1993 are black and or artifact. And that's being generous. If we add Soul Canard to that list, then it's five or <laughs> right. six, right? Um, means is, is just de- is devastating to the application of this card. That said, I actually think it's perfectly fine in alpha constructed. Um, and I think it's probably fine in 93 old school as well, because even if you're playing, let's say, against a blue black deck, Terror can still hit Serendib Afrit, Serendib Jins. Uh, if you're playing a black deck, it can hit King Suleiman, right? What, what other, what's other way do you have to remove King Suleiman? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, I think it's actually fine. I just think it's, it's one of those, it's, you know, it's a lot like we, the same discussion we just mm-hmm. had around swords. You know, it waxes and wanes in the very contextual. Um, I played this in my first Alpha League with three of them. And I never, I played against Mono Black once in which it was obviously dead, but against everything else, it was just amazing. You know, you know what's interesting? How, where it really shined was when I was playing against Regeneration. Oh, nice. Which, which creature was that? Yeah. Um, there was a bunch. I played against a red deck that had like Uckton <laughs> Trolls and, and Sedge Trolls. Um, and then, oh, they, I mean, there are a lot of regenerators. Now it's not going to hit a Will right. of the Wisp, but, um, there was another, I can't remember what it was, but yeah, it, it did a very good job against the regenerators. I was, I was That's quite pleased to have it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, th- look, I remember in the revised era when this was around, like if you have a limited card pool, this card is perfectly oh, yeah. fine. Absolutely. And that was my experience with it's it in ju- the early days as well. I could rely on this to do work. It's because when I was building decks with my friends in the early days, we were not hyper-efficient. We were not, you know, Juggernaut was not the go-to creature for all of our decks. So there was a lot more diversity. Yeah. And as a sideboard card, in even old school 94, this is yeah. fine. I mean, if you're playing a mono black deck and you have this in the sideboard and you know you're playing against, I don't know, uh, mono white or Atog deck, this card is perfect against Atogs. You know, it's not going to kill a white knight or a white pump knight but it can kill a sarah it can kill a savannah lions it can certainly against atog deck i mean you'll pick off atogs all day with this <laughs> right i mean and serendibs naturally um i think it's perfectly fine uh it's also interesting that in revised this was a card that you know it was never regarded as a terrible card no it wasn't not like, terrible like people were ever yeah it was always like that's a playable card even among people who didn't have big card pools. Or the opposite. You know, people who had big card pools. There's some weirdness with this art, Kevin. Did you know that this, this art was not, um, was not painted in the direction that it's set? <laughs> I have framed? heard, I have heard that you know story that? and it was not, it was never entirely clear to me whether or not that was apocryphal. But yes, my understanding has been that no. the figure was meant to be on the floor. Yeah. Yes. That is that is in I, fact the case. I genuinely think that part of this card's appeal and the part of the power of the art is the placement in the frame. And <laughs> it 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 just increases the terror, I guess is the simplest way to put it. The the notion of where is this this being such that their that our perspective on them is so disjointed and so out of the ordinary and unexpected. It's not like they're flying, right? You know, in, in, in many That's magic right. card contexts, this, this, yeah, no the, the positioning would, of this in the upper left would suggest some kind of activity or something, but this is just, 
are we looking down into a well, right? It, do, it's just, there's so much implied to me about the placement here that it's a fantastic study in composition. Yes. Have you seen the um, full card art, full face art version that Ron I did Spencer a long time did? ago, yes, but I um, but I haven't seen it since. It's the same figure. And in fact, much of the same. It's just <laughs> placed a little bit better. Well, I'm sorry. Are um, you talking about the one that was used for the player rewards card, the the textless one? Yes. Yeah. I okay. So. I thought you yes. were talking about the the like the full art of the alpha one. Now that player rewards one from 2005, yes, is a fantastic reinterpretation of the same figure and the same concept, and it's just as <laughs> gruesome and jarring and yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah. The sinewy, uh, wiry musculature right. of this figure is very comic booky. It reminds me of like Todd McFarlane art. It's it's Ron Spencer did a great job here. Really, I really yeah. like this piece, and I love the fact that he just gave it no background, yeah. as you were saying. You know, no background means that it amplifies the sheer horror of what this figure mm-hmm. is experiencing, right? Because it's yeah, in, in a very yeah, powerful completely way. I agree. Unlike. Many, many alpha cards where the, the background is meant to fill space and with color. This is the exact opposite approach. This card was printed in the core sets for quite a while, up through 6th edition. Then it took a bit of a break until Mirrodin. And the printing in Mirrodin is noteworthy, right? Because they chose to put it in an artifact-heavy set where it wouldn't be able to kill a lot of threats in the set. So I think they purposefully... Yeah, they purposely oh, yeah. put it in Mirrodin because of its drawback, which is kind of some clever set design. And then it was in 10th edition. So the last time this card's legality was defined was 10th edition, but the last several printings were pretty spotty. 6th to Mirrodin to 10th is a definitely a disjointed ending to its life cycle in the game. The player rewards card that you mentioned from 2005 is is pretty amazing, as is, and I like to point these out, foil old frame alpha art friday night magic from 2000 has a just a beautiful terror so if you this is not this is one of those cards like uh land of War elves and stone rain prodigal sorcerer and giant growth if you want the alpha feel in foil this 2000 fnm cycle has you covered yeah i haven't cast a terror in a long long time steve the, I, I bet the last time i cast a terror was in uh, limited uh, a Mirrodin <laughs> draft or something back when that came out. That's probably the last time I cast one. Even though this card <laughs> is perfectly cromulent for something like EDH today, it's uh, it's just not on my list. Huh. It's fun. It's fun to cast <laughs> air. Especially against a creature with I have fond memories from my childhood, though. I really do. When I look at Terror, I think, oh, it, it used to be so good. <laughs> <laughs> good art yeah. on a good card. What Absolutely. more can you ask for? And if you're the sort of person who is so inclined, I strongly recommend getting, if you can't get an alpha beta one, which is understandable, get one of those um, F&M, those Magic Player Rewards ones. They're only like four bucks. And get Ron Spencer to sign it in silver. Oh, it looks so good. Ooh. The beta ones aren't that expensive. And the alpha ones aren't even that expensive, honestly. I mean, it is a, a common, so. And, and not the kind of, not an old school staple common. So yeah, you're right. The beta ones aren't that much. All right, speaking about old school staples, (laughs) except no substitutes, (laughs) the hive. So 
I want you to all just sit back in your seat and relax. Maybe take a deep breath because I've got to I've got to spin you a tale <laughs> as I read this text box. The hive <laughs> okay. is a mono artifact for five, and it has an activated ability of five colon create one giant wasp comma a one one flying creature. Represent wasps with tokens comma making sure to indicate when each wasp is tapped. Wasps can't attack during the turn created. Treat wasps like artifact creatures in every way, comma, except that they are removed from the game entirely if they ever leave play. If the hive is destroyed, the wasps must be killed individually. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to love about this card and its language, um, but that last line, the wasps must be killed individually, is pretty awesome in my opinion. It's my favorite part of this card. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So Steve, uh, there's there's no secret. This was in in many cases in old school, uh, you know, a singleton finisher in certain configurations, either of the deck or other derivations thereof. That's um that's how I encapsulate this card. Even though as a kid I had revised copies and just kind of tossed it into various decks for no good reason. But the notion of being a control finisher is uh, how this card stands out to me in this day and age. What do you think? Well, this is the first permanent that can generate mm-hmm. other creatures mm-hmm. in magic. And it, in, in that sense, is sort of the template for for what would come later. The next is... Um, serpent Generator. In Legends, it's um, yeah. Serpent Generator, right. Did the Serpent Generators, I forget, did they have yeah, um, they, they poison? Poisonous. Yeah. They're poisonous. And then there was, later on, there was Snake yeah. Basket. There have uh, been many, many and, since then, but you're right, um, Snake Basket. It wasn't the next one, can, but it was in this lineage. And then there were also lands that generated creatures would kill Jorn Outpost, mm-hmm. which was a huge mm-hmm. innovation, turn it from artifact to lands. Um, so Serpent Generator generated them on the ground, the hive in the air. The hive, so just to be clear though, Serpent Generator, co- Serpent Generator costs six and it activates Four. for what again? Yeah. A little bit of a better deal. Yeah. Um, and in between there, we also had Tetravis, which is in the same lineage. And, and, officially bottle of suleiman which can create a single token right uh, at a time at least the right. uh, the five five flying so, gin so yeah. one in arabians and then antiquities there was basically so the hive, one set the hive, <laughs> right so the hive the hive generates a one one flyer for five mana once you get into play it's not you know that much more expensive than a jam day to activate every turn and they accumulate quickly right i mean you can get <laughs> Then a couple of, if you get three tokens, that it's essentially like taking the power off right. of a Tetravis. Um, I, I think this card is really puzzling and interesting. So on the one hand, you know, obviously it's a, it's a, the consideration in the deck is a finisher with, with a moat around. I have never warmed up to this card for a couple of reasons. One is that if you draw it too late, it's, you, you need a certain number of turns in order to win. So a Sarah Angel requires five turns. So if you have two Sarah Angels and your opponent has maintained at 20 life, you need to make sure that you have at least five cards left in your library that you can draw to win, right, with Sarah. Sure. The, hi, the Hive I've, is like, it's, it's just so mana intensive that it's hard to get both protected and begin really activating on a, continu- on a continual basis. Um, I've also found that to be true, which is why I don't play it in Alpha League. 
Sure, um, I can well, see Alpha that. Alpha League, the danger is even greater because you're 40 card decks. You were saying? No, I was just saying I can see that. I agree. Yeah. Um, but I have definitely seen people with like the deck in Alpha League play the Hive. Um, the Hive also evades the Abyss. So if you're playing that in old school, you know, um, there's that. I don't know. It just seems to me on the outside. I remember <laughs> seeing the Hive when I was really young, you know, back in the day. Um, never being terribly impressed with it as a as a card. Being more impressed with, I think, the theme and the the art. <laughs> Although, um, jumping to the art for a moment, this does not look like this. Whatever this structure is that's built into this, you know, into the the environment. Does not look like a wasp hive, any wasp I've ever seen. <laughs> and I've, in my, in my youth, I used to, I would hunt many kinds of bees, wasps, and, uh, hornets. So I've seen many, many, many hives. This does not look like a hive. I've seen hives that, you know, honeycomb hives. I've seen underground hives. I've seen, uh, you know, huge ball hives hanging from trees. I've seen hornet hives, which are small hives. I've seen wasp hives, which are usually, you know, like a half dozen, um, pods, notches, you know, like, uh, uh, but I, this doesn't look like a hive. This does not look, this looks more like an anthill than a wasp hive to me. <laughs> I do think it's, I think you're right. I think it's of note that the hives in this, sorry, the wasps in this art do not appear to be emanating from this structure on the ground. They're coming from out of frame of the top of the card. Yeah. In yeah. A- which is strange because you would think that a card named the hive the the titular item would be the subject of the art and it appears not to be it appears that the hive is out of frame ostensibly unless the wasps are just kind of on a mission and not coming from their home which it's inexplicable i guess Uh, it's also worth note that the scale of this thing is a little hard to read the the primary wasps in, in the up wasp in the upper left is huge, right? And it's also yeah. got a strange bodily structure, right? It looks like an insect, but it's the proportions are different. It's it's fantasy, right? If you're reading the fact that these are one one creatures, then it's a little hard to read exactly how big they're meant to be. I think they're supposed to be big. I mean, these are <laughs> That's that's my first yeah. impression has always been that this is a a mountainous region, maybe not a full-on mountain, but it's a big, steeped mountain here, and that these wasps are enormous, that they're like 10 or 20 feet tall, which is obviously at odds with the notion of them being a 1-1 creature. <laughs> but I have a feeling that the art direction was not it was not keying on the notion of how big they are, just that they are larger than regular wasps. And so my guess is that Sandra was given some direction to make them larger than typical earth wasps. And they ended up being these enormous things, which is a little out of place with them being one ones, but I'll, it's still better than the alternative, I guess. It is funny though, that we got these insects and then in legends, we get killer bees, right? Which are zero ones. Yeah. But if you pump mana into them, they get enormous too. And then we also had, um, carrion ants, so for some reason, the early insects and in magic were really focused on being enormous. <laughs> well, they need to be in order to, to fight, you know, a knight yeah. or a hero. <laughs> Kevin, if you 
were playing an old school deck, say 94 old school, would you play Serpent Generator or the Hive? Holding all things equal. Uh, the Hive. I would definitely play the Hive. Yeah. Interesting. I'm not sure. I'm not. It's not. I don't think it's a given necessarily, but I, I would play the the Hive. But that's partly to to do with the fact that the synergy with the the Moat and the Abyss, I don't think, can be overstated because that's a, a formative part of your plan. And any deck that's running the Hive, I think, is to slow the game down and use those other effects to generate card advantage and render your opponent's creatures ineffectual. I think the Hive is best at that. I also don't want to understate your observation earlier. This is the first card in Magic that generates tokens. In fact, it's ironic that the the phrasing that the Alpha card uses starts with the word creates, because that's now also the first word in the Oracle text. Well, create. It's funny that we came full circle from this language, because for a long time, Magic kind of bent over backwards to use longer phrases like put into play a token or etc. etc. Yeah. In fact, if you go back and look at what's the most recent printed version of the Hive? Yeah, the most recent printed one is from 10th edition, which says put a 1-1 insect artifact creature token with flying named Wasp into play. There's a lot of words that have been have been condensed down into create a 1-1 colorless insect artifact creature token with flying name Wasp. There's a lot more efficiency in the active language, which focuses, <laughs> which condenses all the action into the word create and focuses on the characteristics of the, the token, which I like. So it's just funny that this alpha wording, which is hilarious yeah. and wrong in so many other ways, it was prognostic of how we refer to creating tokens today. And you just can't escape the fact that <laughs> if the hive is destroyed, the wasps must still be killed individually. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that reminder text in an environment where people are constantly arguing about about the rules, you know, in that at that point. But it, it is funny, Kevin. Uh, this is pure yeah. minutia, but in on Gatherer, the community ratings are brutal to the hive. Oh, yeah? That's yeah, funny. Yeah, in, in Alpha, Beta, Revised, and on, it's all got, you know, under two stars. Alpha's rating is uh, 1.865, which I think is the same as Revised. Let's see. <laughs> That's pretty bad. The, people, That's a bad rating. People hate this card, yeah. Uh, in, in 10th edition, it's 1.735, so even worse. <laughs> but Serpent Generator um, is much better rating. Uh, Serpent Generator was was printed in let's see it looks like fifth and fourth sorry fifth and legends in terms of paper uh-huh. it was in oh in chronicles too yep um in let's see is the legends version the legends version has two point seven five which is a full point better than uh than the hive in, oh, that's just um, not fair yeah and in chronicles version it's two point nine so basically Dang. you know. Right in the middle. People like their poison, I guess. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, minutia. Yeah. Well, I think the hive. I have a strong affection for the hive. I think it's actually a cool card. I. It, it is completely overcosted in terms of rate by today's standards. I would never even put it into an EDH deck. Like, yeah. Compare this to something like Bitter Blossom by today's standards, oh, right? Yeah. Obviously, Bitter Blossom is uh, requires colors and is a. Uh, as a life cost, but 
I'm pretty sure we're all pretty comfortable that the conversion or the comparison of one life to five generic mana is a, you'd rather pay the one life. Before we leave the hive, Steve, I really want to point to the gamma version of the card, which is very similar on paper. It costs five and five to activate, but it says creates a one, one flying creature, which can't attack first turn. And then it says, use your own counters. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, thanks. I I just can't escape the sarcastic tone that that implies. (laughs) All right. So let's move on to Thicket Basilisk. And much like many cards, we've kind of already reviewed this one. It's uh, 3GG for Summon Basilisk. It's a 2-4, and it says, Any non-wall creature blocking Basilisk Basilisk is destroyed, as is any creature blocked by Basilisk. Creatures destroyed this way deal their damage before dying. Obviously, we talked about this early on when we talked about the Cockatrice. This one, yeah. as we agreed then, is the generally the superior choice to put a lure on <laughs> because you're far more likely to kill more creatures that way. And that's something I definitely did as a youngster playing with my revised Thicket Basilisks. Uh, I I haven't obviously cast this card since two, 1994 and don't expect yeah. many other people have either. It's just not nearly efficient enough for things like old school. Although I think you, you alluded to someone playing it in um, Alpha League, though. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely appears in Alpha League, but sadly, I think it doesn't appear anywhere else. It's a cool card. It's neat to see it deployed. Yeah. It's also noteworthy that it's been printed half a dozen times in paper, but only ever with this art. There's not too many cards Good. on this Alpha list where every printing is this art. I cringe when I see the reinterpretations of these classic cards. Sometimes, yes. And it's not like it was never printed either. It was in revised 4th, 5th, and 6th edition. That's <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> Survived a lot longer than some other cards. Next up, we have Thought Lace, which, again, we don't need to really talk about. The laces, we've covered them multiple times over at this point. I really enjoy the giant, pretty well-rendered eye in the center of this art by Mark Poole. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And also, the water is noteworthy in its in its fidelity. Like, there's some subtle and believable ripples in this water. And actually, this card is kind of, the art is kind of yeah. awesome. It's a, it's a nice piece. It really is. Yeah. It's too bad the card's terrible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Next up, we have, again, another one we've already covered in Throne of Bone. This is the black iteration of the Lucky Charm cycle. Steve, where does Throne of the Bone fit? Yeah. Where does Throne of Bone fit in the, the ranking of Lucky Charms? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> so if we've ranked, let's see. Um, well, it, it, doesn't it depend on how you how we operationalize them? Uh, yeah, let's given the interpretation oh. that we're using for you can put as much mana into them you as know you what? want. I'm just going to give you that this is number one in terms of art. It's just <laughs> absolutely by far the, by far the coolest art. <laughs> not close. Um, <laughs> it's not even close. It's insanely <laughs> good. Uh, <laughs> it's great. Um, I I think Iron Star is the best. I mm-hmm. think Crystal Rod, given the, how Alpha League allows, is probably next. Just because of how good blue, blue is. Good blue is, yeah. yeah. There, from there, I, I think probably Wooden Sphere is probably the worst. Um, it's then either Throne of Bone or uh, it's the white one. Ivory Cup. Ivory Cup, yeah. Yeah, it's probably, it's probably Throne of Bone. 
at that point. Yeah. Be- yeah. I mean, maybe because just of Lich, who knows, but it's a way to gain <laughs> life with Lich. Um, it's probably, I think it's probably smack dab in the middle in terms of utility, but it's number one in terms of, in terms of art. It's yeah. An, uh, unbelievable art. This is this is on the short list of magic cards that would also make excellent uh, heavy metal album covers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have you heard Have you heard the 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 latest Keldon Warlord album called Throne of Bone? Nat <laughs> <laughs> Mose was tweeting about Keldon Warlord li- lately. Um, just someone asked, like, what art did you first see and were kind of blown away by? Yeah, brought that one up. Yeah, this this art's great. All right. Next up, we have the enduring classic the gre- Timberwolves. <laughs> the green version of Banalish Hero and Rare. So, again, we've already talked about this kind of thing at length. Um, yeah, you said it. This is Banalish Hero at Rare in green for some reason. And um, just, I, just totally mystifying. The only thing I... I mean, I've always maintained, the only thing I could think of is this was just meant to be some strong statement about the color pie and about how green wasn't really supposed to have banding but they wanted this top-down design of a wolf pack and so here we have it but this card is just well, so bad but kevin in gamma this was supposed this was a common well that's the thing is i feel like they tried to make some kind of correction maybe yeah. I-, I don't know well, i really it, don't it makes sense as a common because as sure. a common then you can build banding decks but mm-hmm. as a rare, that's totally inexplicable. <laughs> Completely. I mean, agree. It, again, I mean, in Gamma, it is a common. So they moved this to a rare. Maybe they just didn't have enough. You know what they should have done is they should have kept this a common and moved Stream of Life to rare. <laughs> that's what they should have done. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? Um, Actually, this wow, gotta be... Stream of Life. Stream of Life was an uncommon in Gamma. Interesting. There's got to be, be something worse. There's got to be some other card that would have been that would have made for a better green rare than than Stream of Life or Timberwolves, right? There's got to yeah, be something. Right. Ice Storm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe um, Camouflage. Camouflage could have been a rare, right? That's a complex it, it, card. Channel. Yeah, Channel would have been a good rare. There you go. That's a really that complicated card. Rare. Yeah. Yeah. That's what should have been the rare. Yeah. Well. I mean, uh, criticism. It's easy not- to armchair quarterback almost 30 years later. <laughs> criticism notwithstanding, did you ever play Timberwolves? Probably not. I have acquired one and I'm looking forward to playing with it, but I've never played with it before. Yeah. I almost certainly tossed this in a deck at some point in my early days, but uh, I have no, I have no recollection. It probably didn't perform very well. I mean, just as much as my Banalish Heroes really never went very far. I either. can imagine. Kevin Crowd opening up a revised pack and getting this as a rare and just being so upset. <laughs> oh man! I know. Well, it's funny. Back in 1994, I was more upset opening Dual Lands. Like I remember opening. Yeah. I remember very specifically one day opening a Volcanic Island and going, "Ah, crap! I wanted a good card." <laughs> I was hoping for we something only knew cool then, like a Shivan Dragon now. or a Force of Nature. Yeah, right. Steve, I'm excited to move on, though, because we have next possibly the greatest trifecta of cards in this set review, and they all start with the word time. I imagine that our audience has no surprises about these three. First up is Time Twister. Time Twister is to you for sorcery. It says, set Time Twister aside in a new graveyard pile. 
Shuffle your hand, library, and graveyard together into a new library and draw a new hand of seven cards. Leaving all cards in play where they are, opponent must do the same. <laughs> I like the fact that it says to leave the cards in play where they are. <laughs> uh, it, it, there's also language of a new graveyard, right? Which is pretty funny. That is pretty funny, too. Like, what happens to my old graveyard? If, my, right. if I get crypt, if I get Tormod's cryptid now, do they have to pick a graveyard? <laughs> yeah. Well, so obviously, Time Twister, as a member of the Power Nine, needs very little inter- introduction. And we've already talked on this show and other recent shows about how formative it was in the early years as one of the short list of ways to really get recursion in the limited context and the early Type 1 context. Along right. with Regrowth, this card was simply formative for its recursive capabilities. Not to mention the power of simply drawing a new hand of seven. Steve, can you talk yeah. about your early experience with Time Twister? Because I didn't well, experience it till I started playing vintage with you. Well, it's weird that Time Twister has become one of in more. I will answer that, but I just want to observe that Time Twister has become one of the more sought after pieces of Power Nine in recent years as a byproduct of interest in Commander, the only mm-hmm. piece of Power Nine that's legal. Correct. So there's this weird dynamic where it's you know from an eternal perspective, it's marginalia but from a a broader community perspective it's probably the most you know sought after it's a phenomenal card so in in some sense it actually bookends magic because in the early days of the game time twister was the most powerful really it really was regarded i think as the most powerful of the of the big blue um for a number of reasons one is that in the era before uh official banned and restricted lists Time Twister is was basically the theoretical monster, right? That you could just build decks that had unbounded looping and could just <laughs> manhandle your opponents in ways that no other effect could really duplicate. Um, but even in the early years of the game, we talked about this a bit with Regrowth, Time Twister and Regrowth was the axis upon which so many cool and interesting decks were constructed. Right, it was the it was the foundation of all recursion decks, and so if you happen to get access to the early issues of the Duelist and you read, you know, the columns by Zach Dolan, in one of the first in one of the single digit issues, there's an article that's basically I think it's called reuse reuse reduce <laughs> recycle, right? right? And basically there are all these recursion decks, recursion re- recursion fork recursion, you know, um, other kinds besides that. Are fundamentally built around that combo. They're built, uh, they're, they're designed to accelerate into them and then win the game through them. You know, they're built, they're built around, you know, even the Lich decks in the early days really used Time Twister as a critical card. So Time Twister had a strategic significance in the first few years of the game that really was unparalleled. I mean, yes, there were people who would want to regrowth, regrowth time walk, recall, regrowth and time walk. You know, to take four or five turns in a row, that was a cute thing, but Time Twister had a much larger and more outsized significance. To put it simply, like the early combo decks, yes, there were, you know, the kind of fireball, big, big ramp fireball decks, there was the channel fireball deck, you know, there were other kinds of, but basically in early type one, the big combo decks were, before prosperity, they were Time Twister decks. Mm-hmm. Even the, even by the late 1990s, the first Doomsday decks in type one, were Time Twister decks. And I think we've mentioned that before, but they were constructed around basically, you know, casting Time Twister unbounded, keeping your opponent out of the game, 
and generating infinite mana to kill them with some X spell. So, so Time Twister, and then, you know, obviously Time Twister and other draw sevens played a big role in, like, uh, Academy decks, and then later, you know, in long combo decks, you know, Burning Combo, Wish Combo decks, you know, Pitch Long later on. They play a smaller role today in, you know, um, Dark Petition decks, but they still have a niche with Notion Thief. And, and by the way, now that we're getting into the, the era of Hull Breacher, Opposition Agent, quite, you know, Hull Breacher, quite a powerful combo there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I don't think I ever saw anyone Time Twister with, um, Leovold, but that was another, another cutesy thing you could do. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Time Twister and Notion Thief is absurd. That was sometimes <laughs> used in, in Grixis. But Time Twister is, is, I would say, in the early days of the game, it, well, let me also be clear, it wasn't used a lot in control decks, right? It wasn't used in the deck. Well, I take that back. I think there probably were versions of the deck. I'd have to go back and inspect that used Time Twister. Um, yeah, but, but it was mostly the anchor. It was the, it was the key to a lot of combination decks in the early game. And in fact, we didn't have the kind of range of combination decks because you didn't have, you know, the two card synergies like Illusions Donate or Flash Erector or Hulk Flash, right? You didn't have a lot of that kind of thing. Combination decks meant something different in the early game, right? Combination meant basically that you were playing a lot of broken cards, that you were gen- you were doing, you were playing a sequence of spells that were generating often lots of different kinds of resources, and you weren't winning the games through creature attacking, and you weren't winning the games through permission. So combination was almost basically like defined by what it wasn't combo decks, right? And that, that kind of, to some extent, that kind of carried through the early era of Type 1 and, and the, the early era of Vintage, when Type 1 flipped over and became Vintage. The combo decks were defined kind of almost by their negation in Eternal formats. But but the point I'm trying to make is that Time Twister was, especially in the era before free counter magic, the anchor point of many early combination decks. Mm-hmm. And it had its place, not lately, but a couple of years back, it had its place as kind of a, a fail-safe haymaker in PO and Vintage, too. The sort yes. of thing you could fall back on if your first PO got countered or you didn't have sufficient material to, to really advance your game state. You could always mystical for Time Twister and try to rebuild that way. Yes, that's definitely true. I predict, for reasons that you've already alluded to, that we're going to see an increase in Time Twister play in Vintage with the advent of Hull Breacher, in addition to Narset, Leovold, Notion Thief, because uh, the value of disrupting your opponent's draw just keeps getting greater and greater in Vintage. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the same token, though, is the symmetry. You know, there was a point at which the symmetry, especially, you know, as a very experienced combo player, you know, in the in the long, burning long, pitch long era, um, you know, there was a point at which, I don't remember what that point was reached, but there was a point at which draw sevens simply became non-viable in Vintage. Yeah. That people stopped playing Memory Jar and Wheel of Fortune, and, <laughs> you know, that changed a little bit with Notion Thief, as we pointed out. Um, that it was the counter magic, but that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, it was. It was basically you. You hit a critical mass. You know, at some point around the printing of mental misstep, mind break trap. You know, and mm-hmm. now you have force of negation. Basically, all of the counter magic is free in vintage. There's, with the basic exception of flusterstorm, I think is in, in pyroblast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the only exceptions these yeah. days. 
We pay at most one mana for a counterspell in Vintage. Yeah. So so when you refill an opponent's hand, it's hard to leverage that asymmetry. You know, you could... What you would try and do circa 2002 or 2003 or even in the Academy days is you try and draw out the counter magic such that they'd finally be tapped down, right? And then once they're tapped down, you play the draw seven and you gain all the advantage. But that just doesn't happen anymore. Even if you, you, you know, even if you have like duresses, the only way to really break that symmetry is through cards like Defense Grid or I guess Lea, uh, uh, Tavinia. Lavinia, Teferi yeah. certainly, but but combo decks aren't playing aside from P- PO accepted Teferi mm-hmm. or Lavinia, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, the, the ritual based decks are still heavily blue black. That's right, R- exactly. Doomsday, Dark Petition aren't going to be using Lavinia or Teferi. Um, so the draw sevens have kind of been weaned out of vintage, mm-hmm. um, as the number of inefficiency of Free counter magic has increased, and that has not been abate. That's not abated through the restriction of misstep because it's been replaced by, in some respects, in a more powerful one in force of negation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In the sense that it's closer to an actual force of will that you know, whatever the typical next play is, like let's say, tutor into Yogmoth's will. There's a greater chance that 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 blind will fail. Absolutely. Steve, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your personal affinity for Time Twister. You alluded to its place, especially in the vintage metagame. Obviously, it overlaps a bit with old school, but how do you feel about Time Twister and how has that shifted over the past, say, three decades? Wow. Um, like, when did you first start playing yeah. Time Twister? Yeah, I, I, I'll be candid. I did not, I never played Time Twister back in the day. I owned one, but in the 90s, I just felt that it wasn't very good as a permission card. The only mm-hmm. reason that the that versions of the deck would play Time Twister would be that it gave you a way to recur win conditions like Brain Geyser, right? That you would use a Brain Geyser in the early game to generate, especially in like Keeper-type decks, but even before that in versions of the deck, that you would use certain cards as either removal, like a Fireball as removal, or... You know, Brain Geyser it is tactical card advantage, but you would eventually need to recur it to eventually to use it as a win condition. But honestly, well, I just I just preferred using Feldon's Cane for that purpose. Question for about that, that slot. Yeah, there were early precursors to the deck that focused on their own Tormod's Crypt and Swords to Plowshares to yes. gradually exile their opponents. Ability well, it to was win, actually. Right? It was actually Tormod's Crypt and Time Twister. <laughs> it was the well, that's what I mean, play. though, is, is yeah. the, the combination of Crypt and Plow kind of yes. resetting the game over and over again so until I your opponent think, couldn't win. So, so Kevin, um, Time Twister actually... Brian Weissman did play Time Twister in like the classic versions of the deck. Um, but Time Twister, I think, became a more salient element of the deck when... Uh, when Jester's Cap was released in Ice Age. And so if you uh, look at the deck right around the time Ice Age came out, uh, circa May 95, uh, you have a Tormod script in the sideboard and the main deck Time Twister. And, you know, it wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't be uncommon to find, I think, as a, as a defense against Jester's Cap to bring in, you know, the, 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 the Tormod script to give you another, a, a kind of fourth win condition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the two Sarahs and Brain Geyser, and then then Time Twister becoming another. It's very now that's a very slow route, right? <laughs> uh, 
Right, but you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, and and Brian continued to play Time Twister, you know, consistently through the '90s. I'm actually a little re- surprised. You know, one other reason for that, though, I should say, is that Time Twister is a good response to your opponent gorging on Necro. Ah, uh-huh. so it's also it's one, also a way to rebuild from from Mind Twist too. Yeah, getting getting wiped out by hymns and yeah. so on. Um. But I, I never used it back in the day. I I was too, I guess you could say, you know, um, strategically conservative to play a, a card that's so... <laughs> I mean, Time Twister requires you? such... No. <laughs> <laughs> such precision and good timing. I mean, I don't know if there's a card in the deck that requires more precise timing than Time Twister. And it's a deck that's built on timing. You know? Yeah. Playing every spell at the right moment. And Time Twister in particular just requires such precise timing. And I, I I think Brian's spoken to that extensively. I really got on Time Twister, I would say, probably when I started really testing combo decks, you know, with, with Burning Long. Yeah. And I began to really understand its function, how to use it to try and swamp your opponent's resources, especially control players. Like, yeah. when do you use it as bait? When do you use it as your as your key haymaker? Um, and I think I grew, my appreciation grew with it over time, probably peaking in the, in the pitch long era when Time Twister was really one of the best spells you could play quickly because you could just deploy a bunch of things, Time Twister protect it with misdirection and just continue to sequence out. Right. Um, but it also had, it had notable dissynergy with Yogmos Will. When you're trying to build a Yogmos Will, it became a, you know, do I want a Time Twister or would I rather Windfall here or Tinker for Jar? became a really critical thing and knowing how to distinguish between those situations. I don't sure, think sure. I don't think I played with Time Twister much. I played it dabbled a bit with DPS in recent years. We played it I in think, stacks a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's extremely yeah. anomalous. We I mean we had <laughs> meditates in very early right. versions of stacks, but I think in the last decade, I think I'd play, I played DPS at a Waterbury. It probably the wrong moment and that was probably the last time I really seriously played with Time Twister. I'm trying to think of other examples. I don't think I... Maybe I played with a Time Twister in one of my VSL versions of, of PO, but I, I doubt it. I don't think yeah. I play, play it in that deck. So so my my experience with Time Twister is in it, probably the most experience I have with it is during the 2000s. And the least in the 90s, certainly almost zero experience in the 90s, and minimal in the 2010s. What about you? I didn't cast the card until we played it in those early stacks decks which uh, they those decks were not long lived and they but they focused on a lot of card draw power as you said meditate and there was a, a point at which I was playing I played wheel off and on in five color stacks but never twister but the wheel was obvious because you were a welder deck for most of that time period but in general my experience with time twister and my affinity for it is matches yours in the the early 2000s eras like i didn't play burning long as much in tournaments as you did but i remember testing it a lot with you and gaining an affinity for time twister that way (laughs) and and really just more recent experience with things like po a little bit of grixis steves that kind of thing yeah i i'm enjoy and respect the history that Time, spot, uh, time Twister has and the, the place that it occupies over the history of the game and I find it fascinating the way it has ebbed and flowed all, all the ways that you just described. At the same time, it's obviously the one of the power that I have cast the least. 
That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And that's counting time vault <laughs> by a large what about, margin. <laughs> <laughs> what about um, in other non-vintage formats? Well, I know, as you said, it's legal in Commander, and that's driving a lot of its interest of late for the last few years and driving the price up. At the same time, I have Time Twister in all of one Commander deck, and it's not even the best card in that deck. It's just kind of there as a way to rebuild, potentially as a, as a reset button. So, no, I don't, I don't think it's very good in Commander. It's fine in aggressive, competitive EDH, CEDH-type decks, and there are some decks there that it's, it's actually quite good in. But... Uh, I don't feel the same way about Commander as I do about Vintage. I don't. I don't have the same goals. <laughs> yeah. What about in five color? Uh, I was never in. I was never really in the the kind of space from an archetype standpoint in five color to be casting Time Twister. I probably did it once or twice, but uh, I was almost always trying to be the control deck. And for the reasons that you didn't play Time Twister in say 1996, I did not play Time Twister in five color in the year 2002. <laughs> It was a good card in five five color though in the right deck. I'd like to, I wish I could do an experiment with you now, but it's not going to work because you and I have been looking at the card and discussing it for the last half hour already. <laughs> but the um, one thing I did on t- on Twitter recently when I was getting a time twister altered was to ask my followers without looking, and I can't do this with you right now because you've been looking at. It, but without looking, what do you consider to be the salient or most important parts of the art in time twister? And yeah. I got a lot of fun answers. Um, I don't. I won't ask you exactly that same question, but I want to ask you, Steve, a variant of it, which is, what do you believe is going on in the time so I, time twister art? <laughs> I I have never put too much thought into it, but I basically assume that there is the that the powerful wizard in front of the hourglass is the one who's doing the action here, mm-hmm. and basically causing the uh, the hero figure. Um, in the left part of the frame to age rapidly and to disintegrate, basically. A reasonable theory. So manipulation of time is what I assume is happening. I partially agree and partially disagree. I believe that the hourglass in the right-hand part of the frame that's ostensibly in front of the acting wizard is meaningful. I believe there's a relationship between the orange and red lava goo that's in the hourglass and the orange and red tendrils of something that are engulfing the warrior on the left i think that mark tadeen was given a kind of amorphous art direction here that said this is kind of what this card does it sort of resets things i think that this warrior is being undone in time i think that's, and obviously that's, sort of that's what not I'm what time sister does to a creature it, in play but i think that the it the, the warrior is being sucked into the hourglass and maybe reconstituted in some way well that's not inconsistent with what I said, but the question is, what does it mean to be undone? Is is this person <laughs> being like rapidly aged to the extent that they're disintegrating, or you yeah. know, or what? Um, and I, I also assume that the the wizards behind you know this hourglass because they're use they're channeling power through it or drawing power from it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, consistent. It's it's a pretty remarkable piece of art actually. The, the kind of cloudy, atmospheric background that seems mm-hmm. to surround the figures is phenomenal. The gnarled knuckles of the wizard, the robe, you know, the details of, it's both cartoony, but also like, f- like creatively rendered and also fantastical. I don't know. It's a, it's, mm-hmm. 
setting aside kind of the associations that we have through play of the three big blue, I think it's maybe the most compelling piece of the piece of art. It's certainly the most active and I find the composition to be fascinating. I don't have this information offhand, but there can't be many magic cards where the primary actor is off is out of frame and yet you know who's doing it. Like hands reaching in from out of frame has got to be unusual yeah. and rare in, in magic art. I find that element of the composition to be fascinating. I've never really been I've never really been attracted to this art, uh, even though there has a lot of fun qualities. And getting it altered recently gave me an appreciation for how tricky it is to interpret what's going on here. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I think your read is pretty good. I never really read about the aging, although changing you know time twister as a process might obviously might involve aging. But but either way, it's pretty obvious that what's being done to this poor warrior is involuntary. <laughs> well, so the the first signal of it is the weapon and the shield. The sword is like quickly decaying, like yes. beyond, you know, so which suggests it's rapidly aging. Then the armor and the exterior, you know, like basically you can see this guy's drawers, like yeah. you know, like the Stuff's clothing been torn away or disintegrated. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, either way, um, it certainly stands out as a noteworthy piece of art. It has a lot of interesting things that draw your eye the hourglass is huge and in the foreground and much larger than the primary figure which is interesting yeah. it gives the sense of uh, it gives the, the picture a sense of depth which is nice i think it's pretty cool that, well that's what i'm saying i think it's yeah i think it's probably the most i mean the most interesting piece of the three of the power blue my favorite is still walk but we'll get to that all right what else to say on time twister steve i think we covered it it's also the most expensive of the uh of the power blue in, in terms of mana cost. Yeah. But as you alluded to, it also does the most. It has the most like zone changes and stuff. I yep. think it is the most abstractly powerful. Yes. All right. Next up is Time Vault, another Mark Tadine classic, which I'm going to ask you about the same question for. But this one in the alpha context is two mana, a mono artifact, tap to gain an additional turn after the current one. Time Vault doesn't untap normally during untap phase. To untap it, you must skip a turn. Time Vault <laughs> begins tapped. Obviously, there's a lot we could talk about, Steve, here. The, you know, the language and the wording is something you have personal, yep. personally oh, more yeah. experience with than probably most other humans on the planet. <laughs> yes. So I guess maybe we should start there because I think it's sure. pretty clear that the the interpretation and ruling of the language on Time Vault has been directly formative in its play in any and every format that it's legal in. So the first thing I want I want to talk about the history but let, yeah let's start with the text. The first thing is that there is a legitimately semantically ambiguous phrase. There's a there's a key ambiguity here. And the ambiguity is in the phrase to untap it you, comma you must skip a turn. And here's here's the issue. One plausible reading of that text is that in order to untap it under any circumstances, you must skip a turn, right? Mm-hmm. The, that to to interpret it that way is to disconnect the text that follows the semicolon from the text that precedes it. Mm-hmm. An alternative, which I think is the more natural textual reading, is to connect that phrase to the text that precedes the semicolon, and the semicolon there being a cue that those two thoughts are conjoined. 
mm-hmm. or at least related. But that is the source of so much frustration in terms of, you know, interpreting what this, this card means. So before I, so I feel a little bit like Obi-Wan Kenobi in A New Hope where he's, you know, he, he's a veteran of the Clone Wars. I'm a veteran <laughs> of the Time Vault Wars of, of the, of the, of the aughts. I, and, I like this analogy. So I think <laughs> I knew you would appreciate that. Let me just begin with a brief historical rundown of Bannon restricted list and errata with respect to Time Vault. Okay. So Time Vault is restricted in the very first Bannon restricted list announcement that, that is announced uh, on January 26th, 1994. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it's banned two months later on March 24th on the next Bannon restricted list announcement. It's actually out just outright banned. And it's basically the first card banned for power level reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to get back into the explanation for that in a bit. Right. What it was capable of then. <laughs> right. The next thing that happens with Time Vault is that on March, well, sorry, April 1st, 1996, there's a ban and restricted list update. And Time Vault is unbanned and issued errata. And the errata is power level errata, classic power level errata, where the card was given a time counter so that in order to, when you untap it by skipping a turn, Time Vault gains a time counter. And then you can still tap it. You, in order to take a turn, to activate the ability to take a turn, you have to remove a time counter. So what that does is it prevents any sort of usual untapping for example, with a twiddle being the most obvious example, in order to untap the time vault and then tap it to take a turn. Mm-hmm. So you had basically a two-year period. It's almost you know exactly two years where it was banned, and then it's unbanned and given errata, and then it sees very little play until until a couple of important things happen. <laughs> There's a card that's printed called Flame Fusillade, and I, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll read I'll read the text of the card because. Probably most of you aren't familiar with it. Mm-hmm. But Flame Fusillade is a card from Ravnica, City of Guilds, the first Ravnica set. It's a, f- it's a four mana red sorcery. It costs three generic and one red sorcery. Until end of turn, permanence you control, gain, tap symbol, colon. This permanent deals one damage to any target. So this became a two card combo with the errated time vault in that you could, um, Untap Time Vault at any time to skip a turn. Tap it through the Flame Fusillade ability to deal one damage. So you would just skip 20 turns. You skip a turn, deal a damage, skip a turn, deal a damage, skip a turn, deal a damage. Mm-hmm. That's basically how it would work, right? Um, because the, uh, it, you didn't have to, uh, it would gain a time counter, but you were, you weren't tapping it through the time counter. So you would just keep, <laughs> keep untapping it. Um, Wizards didn't like this. <laughs> and this, by the way, this was legal in Legacy, and we played in the first, in, I think it was the second big Legacy GP. Mm-hmm. Our team fielded a bunch of players who were using this combo, and I referred yep. to that earlier. The, Rich Shea played the Stasis version. We played. The, I played the quote-unquote workshop version, mm-hmm. meaning my deck had Mox Diamond, Ancient Tomb, City of Traitors. You know, it was just designed at four Time Vaults and four Flame Fusillades and four Burning Wish, and... <laughs> God, I, maybe it might have had transmute artifacts. I can't remember. I think we had Grim Monolith. It was just really, really fun. 
And the idea was just to get a two-card combo. You know, I think I had Trinispheres in there too, Kevin, which was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just, you know, trying to play this combo. Um, Wizards didn't like that. And so on April 3rd, 2006, you may recall this, but Wizards used to have a column called Ask Wizards on, on Daily MTG. I don't know if they still do. I don't think they do. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> in which they basically had, you know, staff, often in critical positions, respond to questions from the community. And so on April 21st, 2006, they posted this question and this answer. This is from Sam in Oakland, California. Question. When cards are designed, they are tested to make sure they aren't too powerful, right? I read that Scythe of the Wretched used to give plus two plus one, but had the toughness boost increased to prevent a two-card win with Triskelion. The rule I heard was that designers try not to print cards that can generate a two-card instant win. With that in mind, when Flame Fusillade was designed, was the card, was the combo with Time Vault discovered? If so, why didn't this apply to the rule? Does the combo have to be standard legal to disqualify a card because of two-card I-win combos? So let me just say that I actually like two-card combos that win if they are unusual synergies or come close to winning. Like, like I said before, mm-hmm. my favorite my favorite two-card combo in Magic history is Illusions Donate because it <laughs> was like so obscure you couldn't possibly have designed for it, right? right. It's just, just awesome. Yeah. Here's the answer from Mark Gottlieb, who was then the rules, the magic rules manager. And by the way, the magic rules manager is the entity or the authority responsible for the Oracle database, right? Deciding how to interpret cards, issuing errata, issuing clarification, et cetera, et cetera, right? They, they, they do the, the bulletin updates and so on. So here's how he responded. Sam, you're right about the effort we make, we take to avoid game-ending two-card combos, but no one in R&D saw the Time Vault Flame Fusillade combo. There are a few reasons for that. One, we generally limit our degenerate combo search to standard, and maybe extended if something jumps out at us. There's so many thousands of cards that we can't do an ex- exhaustive search, so legacy combos aren't a priority. Doesn't even mention le- vintage there, but this was very, you know, this was primarily a problem in legacy. For the sake of our sanity, uh, sh- I should have mentioned, by the way, parenthetically, that one of the early Gifts Ungiven combos that Andy Probasco and Ben Kowal had worked on, Kevin, used Flame Fusillade Time Vault. Because you would get Flame Fusillade as one of the cards, along with Recoup and Yogwill, and then you get Tinker for the Time Vault, right? And so it's basically impossible to eventually stop that combo. Mm-hmm. Okay, two, getting back to his answer. Two, for the sake of our sanity, we generally ignore the very existence of Time Vault. Three, time, that doesn't really, doesn't really answer his query, but fine. Three, <laughs> time vault doesn't work like it's supposed to work, so none of us anticipated anything like this combo. Okay, here's where he gets in the nitty gritty. For those who don't know, here's the combo. Flame Fusillade grants your ability. I, I won't, I'll skip that because we already, I just explained that. And he goes on to explain that you can do 20 damage by skipping 20 turns. He, he, I, I will add this quote. He has a little rhetorical flourish. Your opponent will be fried to a crisp and in no position to take advantage of your generosity of skipping turns. So, <laughs> nice. But but wait, didn't I say that the way Time Vault works is wrong? There are two problems with it. One is the cost of this activated ability. A cost can be spending mana or paying life or discarding a card or various other resources you can spend. But a cost really can't be spending something you don't have yet. Mana doesn't have a concept of debt. Look at Chronotalk. It was printed with skip your next turn as a cost, 
but that was changed in the Oracle long ago, so it's now part of the ability's effect. Time Vault should have been changed at the same time, but wasn't. Okay, so there's a lot there. <laughs> he has two more, par- right. a couple more paragraphs here. The so so there's that's the first is the concept of 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 a co- of debt and a cost. The next paragraph says the other issue is the original intent of its untappability. Okay, he uses the term original intent here, which I just want to flag that intent and functionality are not the same thing. Right, design intent mm-hmm. is what is the intention of the designers when they made the card. Original ruled functionality is how the early rules teams interpreted or understood a card to work in its original environment. There's an analogy here in terms of law and constitutional law in particular. So there is the legislative intent behind, say, a statute, and there is the original um, meaning of text, meaning how was it understood at the time that, say, a, a constitutional amendment was adopted. And those can be very different things. They're generally going to be the same, but meaning, like original public meaning is not necessarily the same thing as the drafter's intent, right? And those can be different things. So I just want to flag that. So he continues, check out this ability from a different vault in alpha. Mana vault doesn't untap normally during untap phase, semicolon to untap it, comma, you must pay for mana. Mana Vault's Oracle word, wording treats this ability like so. At the beginning of your upkeep, you may pay for it if you do untap Mana Vault. This reflects the clear intent of the ability. Untapping this card at the beginning of your turn costs extra mana. You get to do it once since it's the card's functional substitute for the normal untap. Having this ability trigger at the beginning of your upkeep is the modern treatment of that sort of thing. So I, before going on, I want to make a comment about that paragraph too, Kevin. We've gone through lots of cards that have that text, right? We talked about mm-hmm. Mana Vault. We talked about Time Vault. There are others that say don't untap normally or don't do something normally. Basalt Monolith. Right, but, right. But here's the thing. The logic that he's suggesting is that you that you must pay for would suggest that you couldn't untap Mana Vault with a twiddle without paying for, right? Right. Same That's, construction, different right. effect. But clearly you can do that even with, <laughs> you know... Um, even at this time, even with the oracle wording he has here of Mana Vault, you can just untap it with the twiddle at that time in 2006. So it's a weird sort of logic he's leading towards. Okay, these are the reasons why Time Vault, as well as Brassman, Colossus of Sardia, and Island Fish Jaconius, have all been given a rata in the latest oracle update, which goes live on Monday, to restore the original intent and functionality of their untap abilities. They'll all be upkeep-triggered abilities that you can use once per turn. Par- he's, he is parenthetical here. Black Carriage and Marjan aren't getting the same errata because they were only ever printed with the activated abilities of their un- activated version of their untap abilities. Last paragraph. This means the Flame Fusillade Time Vault combo will no longer work. However, this change was not done to kill the combo. In fact, the existence of the combo is rather irrelevant. <laughs> if a combo occurs naturally and is degenerate, our response would be to ban one of those cards, not change its functionality. But in this case, Time Vault and Flame Fusillade should never have interacted this way. Through the years of Oracle changes and rule system changes, Time Vault drifted away from the work working the way it's supposed to. It's being changed because it's the right thing to do for the integrity of the card. So there's I've written volumes of articles. This this <laughs> article here triggered multiple, often very long Star City Games columns on the problems with the logic here. I won't rehash all of them because they're too extensive and involved. 
I'll just make main a, a few key things that I want you to comment, Kevin. The first is the notion that it drifted away from the way it's supposed to work is really silly because it, the errata was in 1996. There was no changes to Time Vault in that time. So to say it drifted, it didn't drift. It was actually a, a kind of a, a model of consistency. What drifted was that there was, what changed was there was a combo they didn't anticipate. So I don't know how they can say it drifted when, you know, it was given a route in 1996 and this, this change happens 10 years later. The other thing is it's conspicuous that he, he ignores basalt monolith in this analysis. Because basalt monolith, right, I've already pointed out the flaw in the logic with respect to Manavolt. But basalt monolith isn't even mentioned and it has basically the same text, right? And if you look at basalt monolith, um, it cut, the text of basalt monolith cuts the other way. Um, so I think, I think there were a lot of problems in this. Also, he conflates original functionality with intent. But I think the biggest problem of all was that he assumes the original intent. And there's a way of actually checking that, Kevin. Oh, yeah. And the, and the way of checking that is to ask the designers and developers of Alpha what was the intent. So this is, after years of frustration, I actually won the Time Vault War. I got basically nowhere. I, you know, I, well, I shouldn't say I got nowhere. I got nowhere on Time Vault. I got everywhere in terms of a crusade against power level errata. I, this launched a crusade that I enlisted Rich Sheehan and others to try and reverse decades, well, a decade and a half of power level errata. And that led to a major policy change, uh, later, a couple months later in, in 2006, where on July 14th, Wizards of the Coast announced that they were removing all, all power level errata from Magic, and they took a systematic effort to clean up Oracle, and that led to basically the path under which Flash would get restored. That screwed up Legacy for a bit, <laughs> Kevin. Right, and but, EDH for years thereafter. Right, but here's how I got Time Vault finally fixed. So I didn't realize the impact on EDH, by the way. I got Time Vault fixed this way: the 2008 Vintage Championship was held not at Gen Con, as, as was normally the case, but at a special event. Um, I think, it, what was it, Kevin? It was like, um, it was the 15th anniversary of Magic, but they brought it to, I think it was U.S. Nationals, if I'm not mistaken. It was some event like that in yeah. the summer of, of 2008. And Richard Garfield was there. They had a whole cake for the 15th anniversary of Magic. A whole cake? They had a cake. It was, del- <laughs> you know, they, they had all, well, they had a, they had a bunch of, what I'm trying to say is they had a bunch of birthday accessories and things like that, you know? Right. Um, and I got a chance encounter with Richard Garfield, got to speak with him several times. And during the course of one of those conversations, and by the way, I had written before going, <laughs> this is, looking back at one of my columns, I said, I'm looking forward to speaking with Richard Garfield about this. <laughs> so it was part nice. of my plan. So I asked him, I said, point blank, you know, after I got into a conversation with him, was Time Vault originally understood and designed to be able to work with cards like Tink, like Twiddle? Um, and he said, oh, absolutely, that was the case. That was the design intent of the card. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Time Vault was banned, I think, as we mentioned before, because of Animate Artifact and Instill Energy. It's a three-card combo that just wins the game. Right. Back in 1994. It was restricted for that reason and then banned. And even Mark Rosewater, by the way, had written about that. So they could have also asked Mark let alone, you know, any of the original developers like Joel Mick or, or the lead designer like Richard Garfield. They didn't. So that was how I got 
finally won is I spoke with members of R&D like Eric Lauer at that event, and I, I reported what Richard had said. So it was just undeniable at that point. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll verify, basically, we'll ask Richard Garfield. And then this is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> As part of the September 2008 update bulletin, which arrived the same time as shards of Alara, Time Vault was given errata and was also simultaneously restricted. So the, that would have, I think, been fine if we had done it two years before. The problem was that it arrived with Tezzeret, the Time Vault tinker, <laughs> 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 which I think left a, you know, a black eye on my efforts. Um, I, I can't say I'm proud of my efforts. <laughs> I'm proud of my efforts to restore. Well, I'm proud of the efforts to restore the original ruled functionality of the swath of magic cards, but I, I think that my, um, you you're know, not responsible for how broken Time Vault is. <laughs> no, I'm not, but I do think it didn't, it didn't, I mean, it, it kind of screwed up vintage for a while, you know, and I think I should, what I should have just, I should have just used the tactic I used at the end at the beginning. Instead of trying to win, I spent unbelievable amounts of effort trying to win a legal argument, you know, by writing briefs, comparing Time Vault's text to other cards, right? I, I spent too much time yeah. trying to compare it to Basalt Monolith and make a textual argument, which is my skill, right? That was the wrong approach. I should have just, <laughs> you know, you, like lawyers don't go to legislators and just say, hey, what was your intent here? Would you go on the record and tell the court what your original intent was as the author of this <laughs> bill? You know, that's just not how it works. What you do is you go in the legislative history, but we don't have that, right? We don't have file notes on Alpha. <laughs> right. We do have contemporaneous notes on the Constitution. We have the Federalist Papers. And so, you know, conservative textual jurists will often – it's called originalism. Originalism in constitutional jurisprudence is the theory by which you interpret constitutional text as it was originally understood at the, at the time the text was framed. So you try and find contemporaneous notes on what an ambiguous phrase like, oh, I don't know, um, cruel and unusual punishment in the Bill of Rights. Textualism is a, a related but separate judicial philosophy in which you try and interpret text not according to the legislative intent. So it's actually the opposite of looking at intent. Mm-hmm. If the intent can, if the co- intent contradicts the text, you actually go with the text according to textualism. Textualism well, in, is in the time vault case, the, uh, both approaches yielded the same result, though, right? right. Because right. the the objectionable interpretation that you that started this whole thing really in catalyst form was both an a misinterpretation of the text given yes. precedent as well as a misinterpretation of designer intent. Right. Yes. And and there are other you know interpretive mechanisms. I think our very first episode of the show, Kevin, we talked about the three major interpretive processes. Right. Oh yeah. In fact, if anyone really enjoys this this brief history lesson, go back and listen to episode one of this show, where this is the primary topic. Now, I just for completeness, I should I should mention that the 2006 errata that was given. I I don't have it in front of me. It's hard to find errata that's you know no longer functional. But it basically <laughs> right. had text that said like, if you want to untap Time Vault, choose one. Right. Either skip a turn or something and then it remains it remains tapped or something like right. that. It was right. very like if your goal is to try and hew to the text, 
the errata that they issued was totally ridiculous. Like it was totally unbounded from the original text. It was pretty much a pure interpretation of power level errata. There's just no two ways to put it, right? It was them being afraid of what the card could do from an interaction standpoint when Richard Garfield clearly, and in hindsight, extremely clearly, intended to be he he was the you know he was a champion of emergent gameplay he wanted it to interact with things like voltaic key right but they disclaimed being afraid of that in fact in the ask Ask wizards column they specifically say you know whatever that is is irrelevant to us right yeah well that's that's patently observably untrue right (laughs) whoever was doing this was was aggressively avoiding combinations is what they were trying to do so, yeah. so in Aaron Forsythe's Power Level Errata Be Gone article from July of 2006, I just wanted to note what he, what he, um, he's referring back to that Ask Wizards thing. He says, to that end, Mark rather famously changed the functionality. Uh, well, let me just, let me just go back a little bit. He says, as the evil genius currently in charge of maintaining Oracle, Mar- Magic Rules Manager and former cult-leading columnist Mark Gottlieb is a strong, strong believer that cards should have functionality that matches their printed intent as often as possible. So so think about this. First of all, he uses the term printed intent. Yeah. That's basically <laughs> a contradiction in terms, right? Intent is the opposite of text, is the opposite of functionality. Print pr- – well, pr- sorry – Print Doesn't is have text. to be the opposite, but is is separate. No, what I mean is that printed intent is con- is is conflating two entirely opposite content concepts. Text is the opposite is not the opposite, but it's the opposite methodology yes. of discerning intent. Right. So you don't you don't in- discern printed intent. You discern you discern the design intent. You can discern that from the print, the printed text, by inferring what they may have intended. But that's right. not the same thing as printed intent. Printed intent is a nonsensical term. That's what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> yes. So he continues. To that end, Mark rather famously changed the functionality of Time Vault right out from under the then popular Time Vault Flame Fuselade combo as detailed in Ask Wizards. Making changes in Oracle is unfortunately not terribly scientific. He goes on to say about the you know how the kind of factors they weigh. Um, so on and so forth. But the conclusion is, I, f- I fully believe the original power level errata changes were made by our predecessors with the best intentions, but times change and now and with new policies are implemented. This is not an easy task, blah, blah, blah. And he also cites the article I wrote with, with Rich. But the point is that he basically says that they're not going to change Time Vault. So when he gets to Time Vault, he says, Time Vault, the big one. Um, Oh, by the way, they have an image here of Time Vault from Magic Online that has that weird text, so I can actually tell you what it said in 2006. But let me, <laughs> nice. before doing that, well, should I give you the text first before I read what he says? No, read what he says first and then okay. go back to it. The big one. Our current wording makes some assumptions about printed intent. That's for sure. The printed text is slightly ambiguous about how untapping Time Vault is supposed to work. The key question we asked ourselves when the card was made was the intent that it'd be incredibly easy to skirt the drawback. We went with no. Well, okay, well, why didn't you just ask Richard? You know, like, <laughs> we, w- we went with no. Does that make the yeah. card feel weak? He continues, yes, but we feel the initial intent is captured regardless of how people have been playing the card for the past several years. And by several years, he means decade. Does that mean it's impossible to abuse? No. While Flame Fusillade is no longer a combo with Time Vault, there are there is another little-used Ravnica block rare that does do crazy things with it. I'm sure you'll hear more about that in the future. And by the way, he's referring to Mizium Transweliquat there, which was uh. the the other combo that became, by eradicating it this way, it actually made it a combo with another card. <laughs> um, so that, was, why did, that was a fun period. 
Yeah, it was a wild time. So why did Time Vault get the errata when its alpha brother, Mana Vault, did not, right? That was the point I was making earlier, and that was one of the main textual arguments I made in my articles, mm-hmm. which is how can, you, how can you make Time Vault work this way and Mana Vault doesn't? It's ridiculous. I can twiddle a, a Mana Vault, but I can't hear. Right. The truth is that Mana Vault was printed more recently with different wording. Mm-hmm. Now that the majority of Mana Vaults in existence have the, the printing wording that works, regardless of the initial alpha intent, we are beholden to that functionality. Okay, so my next column after this was, well, what about Basalt Monolith, right? <laughs> anyway, here's... It goes on like this. <laughs> right, it goes on and on. Um, here's the... He says, Time Vault's current text. Time Vault comes, comes into play tapped. If Time Vault were to become tapped, instead, choose one. Untap Time Vault and skip your turn, semicolon, or Time Vault remains tapped. <laughs> what a choice, right? Tap, take an extra turn after this one. <laughs> uh, yep. So it says, so it can become, like, I can literally untap it, right? With, but if I don't skip a turn, it just remains tap. Yeah. So anyway, it, was, you, it gives you a sense of the, the wars that we fought, but it just, you know, goes to show that the I spent too much trying, time trying to fight the rules manager on their own terms, when what I should have done is just, say, ask Richard, you know, and yeah. res- I would have resolved this to, to now probably the most important for magic as a whole outcome from this battle was that wizards gave up doing kind of ask wizard, you know, issuing errata behind the scenes that they decided that going forward, they were going to create an update bulletin that would in a broad, transparent and very public way, right? Unlike how they did with illusionary mask on the judges listserv, right? Right, it, right. It, or in an Ask Wizards column, like who's going to see that? <laughs> they would create an update bulletin. So that I'm I'm proud that my efforts yielded that. I'll say. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Are they still doing update bulletins, Kevin? They are. I mean, Oracle updates. They yeah. do Oracle updates for general rules as well as card specific changes, and they I try to that. be very careful about which ones are, um, are are functional. But what I mean by that, did they create a coterminous article or a, you know a, an adjacent article where they describe the changes? Not yes. just list. That's that was yes. the byproduct of this of this debacle. <laughs> so I I think I've given the full complete history of Time Vault in terms of the errata <laughs> and ban and restriction. It's currently continues to be restricted, and it's amazing. Time Vault Time Vault was basically for a five year period with Yogmas Will and Tinker, the most powerful trifecta in the format. I, I don't know if there's an analog today, Kevin. Maybe. I know, in terms of like restricted cards that see so he- that are so heavily played, um, I, I don't know. It, like for a while, it was like um, you know, dig through the, the prevalence of dig through time and treasure cruise came close to that feel. You know, yeah. I don't think they're quite but as ubiquitous. It has a unique place in vintage as a restricted win condition, right? Yes. There aren't cards really in vintage that are restricted that are also win conditions. The, the, I should say the list is very short. I would argue that Tinker is on that list, and if if anyone still played it, Flash would be on that list, for example. But this is a card that is still holds a unique place in vintage history, not for just all the reasons that you listed, which are very noteworthy, but also just because you got one copy, and if you can Tinker it or Tezzeret it or something else in, into play, then... Yeah, you can sometimes just win the game. So, I, I, actually, I was 
everything you said is correct. As I was thinking about the comparison of how it was like to play the Grixis Time Vault deck with, with Yawgmoth's Will and Tinker, I think actually the close ana- closest analogy is probably like when you're playing a Xerox deck of the middle uh, middle 2010s, when you had Gush, Treasure Cruise, and Dig Through Time. It's kind of what it felt like, but even more powerful and even <laughs> more central, right? That's. Do you think yeah, that's a, because your win condition was like, yeah, three generic yeah, mana? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to it's hard to put that into context, um, just because. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's hard to articulate. We haven't had a win condition this compact that was also omnipresent for a long time. In a sense, Mentor served in a similar. Yeah. capacity but at the same time mentor was unrestricted for you know the, the times at which it was omnipresent is because it was unrestricted yeah it's this just kind of nothing like time vault right that's the thing is when when we were fighting the time vault war part of the reason i wasn't concerned is because painter grindstone was a thing and it was just i mean well it's really only one less than painter grindstone right because well, it's four mana yeah, grindstone okay it, it is costs two. yeah six mana in total to execute Right. And Time Vault costs four. four. Yeah. So, I mean, that it's a marginal difference that's significant, but I don't think I realized just how significant it was until we hit that point, <laughs> you know? Right. Well, and Tezzeret really served to amplify things. Definitely. Te- yeah, Tezzeret was the, right. Yeah. The critical the critical part for a long time. So, um, today, I mean, it's Time Vault sees, I don't even know if it sees any play, really. Just so marginal. It's marginal is how I would describe it too. Yeah, it's it is noteworthy if someone includes time or time uh, vault in a deck, even even decks that actively have the only place I I think it even sees play is sorry even decks that actively have keys in them yes. don't always play time vault today right yeah. keys are normal for outcome and yet time exactly. vault is abnormal right the only place it would probably ever see play in this environment is probably outcome. Yes, absolutely. And that's for a number of reasons. I mean, there's a lot of downward pressure on efficiency in Vintage these days. And the even though the Time Vault combo itself is efficient, the card itself is of no value, basically. Yeah, it's a brick. It's just an inert win condition. And so there are lots... It's just... There's too much opportunity cost to draw it and, and not immediately win. Yep. What a wild ride with Time Vault, Kevin. <laughs> no kidding. So what about you? I mean, what what was your highlights with time vault well i was never deep into playing the 4x time vault decks even though i acquired four time vaults in order to play that flame fuselade deck i never had a a strong affinity for it or a strong experience with it i didn't play in the legacy gp that you alluded to i should have in hindsight but i did not the the simple truth is is that i was along for the ride because i talked to you a lot during the process right and so i was obviously you know, I had probably the second best seat in the house in terms of watching this whole thing unfold. At the same time, I, I like I said, I was just kind of along for the ride. I played Time Vault. I had I had enough experience testing with it to know when it was good in the vintage format and how to prepare for it. Right, mm-hmm. and the um, the Star City Games Power Nine Syracuse, where I won with the Welderless Stacks list, was one where I think Andy Probasco was playing. Uh, gifts with yes. the fuselade combo in that one yes and he was not alone and i just didn't i just dodged it i, I didn't end up playing against him which was a, a an issue into an in in and of itself which i can tell you about some other day but um yeah i i am very grateful to the crusade that you went on here because 
number one, it produced, I think, the right outcome in the end, but also it led to me owning four time vaults, which I still do. <laughs> I, the sad part, the sad code of the story is that um, I had six time vaults when I started this crusade oh, because I picked them up. They were alpha and beta. And I went, once I won the crusade and time vault got restricted, I got rid of all of them. But oh, one. that's sad. <laughs> I know. Yeah, now I have four different time vaults. And you might say, how can you have four different time vaults? Well, I have alpha, beta, and two unlimiteds, but one of my unlimiteds is altered. <laughs> so <laughs> if you fan out my time vaults, they all look different. Pretty funny. <laughs> well, what else to say on Time Vault, Steve? I want to ask you the same question that I did on Time Twister, which is, what do you think is going on in this art? Well, it's another great and very different piece of Mark Tadine art. In some ways, yes. I think this is more representative of his style than Time Twister, which is yes. like feels much more fantasy. You know, I don't know. Um, I don't even want to speculate, honestly. It's just like some sort of like Mandalorian tribe. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. I- what do you think? I feel like this one is actually a bit more literal yeah. in the sense that the, the the object and the item in the the background left is the the titular time vault. Yes. It's a it's clearly a vault and there's a crystal and some energy going in. I mean, and it's pretty clear that the two figures in the foreground are are walking away from it carrying hourglasses filled with the same white energy that's coming out of the crystal. So it seems pretty clear to me that in the universe of this card and this art, you are meant to bring a vessel and go to the vault and fill it with time and then and then walk away. And you can also see that there's a bunch of broken vessels in the foreground in front of the figures. I, I think it's actually a little bit literal, and I think that's it's a little bit satisfying as compared to Time Twister. There's a lot going on <laughs> there here. There is a lot going on here. This one also was a bear to get altered to try and figure out what was, what was appropriate and important in this art. Yeah, the two figures are obviously... Uh, dominant in the art they're in the foreground and they take up a little more than half of the frame i would argue but at the same time they're not the title right they're just the beneficiaries of the time vault i think it's pretty cool definitely all right oh i just want to point to the gamma wording on time vault which is also two mana and zero to activate it says if you tap this card on your turn you get an additional turn the vault can't be untapped unless you skip a turn the vault begins tapped. It's a pretty efficient wording, all things considered. But there's some noteworthy things. It says if you tap it on your turn, you get an additional turn. That would suggest that tapping it on your opponent's turn doesn't do anything, which is funny. And also, obviously, it didn't get implemented this way. But the vault can't be untapped unless you skip a turn. It's a far more, uh, what's the word, authoritative statement on how it would work. And actually in line with some of the errata that it got at one point. Yeah. Right. But uh, didn't get implemented that way in Alpha. All right, next up is one that really needs no introduction. <laughs> time Walk. So in the Alpha context, Time Walk says, one U, sorcery, take an extra turn after this one. Which is an improvement over the gamma wording of Starburst. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which was a red spell for two mana that said opponent loses next turn. Yes. Which is very famous for having been misinterpreted as your opponent loses the game on their next turn. Perfect example is, of, a, of a semantic ambiguity. <laughs> syntactical ambiguity. Yeah. Um, Steve, Time Walk, I mean, of all the cards that we're about to review or have reviewed in this episode, I would argue that Time Walk might need the least introduction. Well, <laughs> right? the, yeah, there's there's not, it doesn't have this like strange history. It's not a strategically centerpiece, centerpiece card like Time Twister. 
It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have the bizarre uh, historical backdrop that Time Vault does, but it does, it does some deceptively interesting things. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, it provides a counterpoint for theoretical, you know, analysis of what magic is. You know, as you think about it it, in a very important way. Also, Mm. it deals in a resource in a very direct way that we don't get to deal with very often. That's right. Um, and it, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it also has played a very important card in very critical situations. You know, uh, Time Vault with a Necropotence in play. Time Vault with a Monastery Mentor in play. Um, you know, there are lots of situations that have been very important with Time Vault. And, I mean, sorry, Time Walk. <laughs> and Time right. Walk being very, very critical in those moments. But the thing, the thing that I think is a thought experiment, you know, beyond the intellectual theoretical question of, Everything is a time walk. <laughs> um, years ago, I think around 2011, I wrote an article, what is the least unrestrictable card in magic? Mm, yeah. And, and I actually ended up concluding it's time walk because, you know, all the other cards, even Black Lotus, uh, you can unrestrict and you could at least there's a, you know, a potential that your opponent can do something, can interact. But if you were to build a deck of just time walks, you could essentially functionally deny your opponent the ability to do anything, no matter yeah. what else was banned or restricted around it. You know, yeah. so time walk <laughs> is in some ways like the most one of the most interesting cards in in Magic. The it's also so simple. Like we we started with Ancestral Recall very early and Black Lotus by by association. Simplicity is is part of what can make Magic great. It's part of. Yep. You know Richard Garfield's adherence and and affection affinity for emergent gameplay is the cards don't have to be complex. It's the combinations of them that can become complex and interesting once you get two or three of them interacting. Now, granted, time walk isn't typically part of complicated interactions. There are some, but but still, the point is is that you can build a complex and emergent system, and he did, and and we are enjoying to this day based on simple elements and time walk unfortunately is far too efficient but uh represents that to a t i would say now we know by today's standards and through a couple decades of of innovation and development that the proper cost for an additional turn is approximately five mana yeah and i can say that with some confidence because it's been printed i think three different times that way in time warp capture of jing chao and um time manipulation three uu is the going rate for an extra turn Obviously, part of the reason why, and the primary reason why Time Vault, sorry, Time Walk is so uh, is so well known, is because of how efficient it is, right? If it, if, this, if this had been printed at three UU in Alpha, then well, Magic would be a different game today, right? <laughs> There's just no two ways about it. The fact that we refer to all these effects, as you already alluded to, as as Time Walks. In, in similar ways to that we refer to things as bolts or giant growths or bears, right, is because of this card and because of just how uniformly powerful it is in any place in which it's legal. How often do you counterspell time walk? Force it. I would argue less than half the time, but the amount of times that I counter, the rate at which I counterspell time walk has increased in the last decade as opposed to the prior. Yeah. In the early aughts, it was it was more often the case that time walk was just viewed as a as a well that's pretty it's a pretty transparent effect sometimes let's just let it go 
But these days, if my opponent, if I've had a turn and my opponent leads like Landmark's Time Walk, I will pyrobrass the heck out of that thing uh, a lot of the time. Really? Yeah. I, I'm most apt to counter a Time Walk when I will win the next turn. If, if you know, if, if I'm about to win and um, I only have one counter spell, I will, and, and they'll be completely tapped down after playing Time Walk, I will almost always counter it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I believe that the calculus on that has changed in recent years for the reasons I've already alluded to with respect to the downward pressure on efficiency. Games of vintage are so compressed in the dimension of time that that just landmarks time walk is sometimes a liability. And I'm, I'm definitely willing to <laughs> abuse that liability if my opponent gives me the, the appropriate opening. So, Steve, you obviously played Time Walk at probably every opportunity you could <laughs> throughout your years of, of vintage, especially. I mean, there there were there were arguments in certain combo decks about whether Time Walk should be included. So, mm-hmm. so you can basically create a situation where a combo deck is designed to not have a second, like basically have consistently one land in the opening hand, so that you don't actually gain a second land. And there's mm-hmm. an argument in that kind of deck design. That you could, or you could take it more extreme, like a deck that doesn't have lands at all, like Blue Belcher, that the opportunity cost of the slot is too high, and that's a legitimate, mm-hmm. legitimate argument. That you'd rather, you'd rather have like the a same conclusion for different reasons in the multicolor workshop decks, the stacks decks uh, of the early aughts. Well, for for about ten years, when we were playing colored mana in our workshop stacks decks, we concluded and i led the charge on this that all time walk did in your opening hand for a deck like stacks was make your mulligan decision more difficult right because it just it just represented the top card of your library and you didn't get to know what that was (laughs) and so and 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 in the mid game when you're when you're playing a deck filled with tangle wires and smoke stacks taking another turn was actively a liability in many cases and so yeah time walk got cut from those decks even though they were ostensibly five color good stuff decks yeah i think it's it's pretty illustrative of Time Walk's place in the vintage format that it's more interesting to talk about the places where you didn't play it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's just no two ways about it. I mean, this uh, Time Walk has been proximate to victory in in many, many games of vintage. In fact, there's I, I, I don't have any kind of analysis on this other than intuition, but it might be second only to Black Lotus in terms of being proximate to victory in games of vintage throughout the whole history of the format, right? Yeah. There are just so many contexts and so many decks in which time walk either enabled the, the quote unquote turn one win, right? Landmarks time walk second turn. I've got the necessary amount of the win and, or you had necessary victory on board in some combination of creatures or other permanents and time walk gave you the extra time necessary to do it. I, I don't have any evidence to this fact except for a couple of decades playing the format, but um, I would argue that Time Walk is responsible for more wins than many, 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 many other cards in Vintage. Well, I wouldn't say responsible. I'd say proximate to more wins. But... <laughs> That's right. Proximate, yeah. But hey, you know, causality works in funny ways. It's, it's hard to make that assertion one way or the other. So what about the art, Kevin? You said it's your favorite of the big... Yeah, big I like blue. it because it is evocative... And yet ambiguous, you know, in many of the ways that Drew Tucker's art is. And <laughs> just because, again, I think this is probably a case, much like Time Twister, and, and perhaps 
every card in the early days. I don't know. But I'm guessing that Amy Weber was given a kind of simplistic assessment of the card, but not very much art direction. It's called Time Walk. It's a fair guess. And it, get, and it gives them an extra turn. And that's why that's why you have figures that are ostensibly going for a walk, right? That's why walking is part of the implied action here, even though it's not obvious. They look like they're standing still. But the point is, there's a path on which figures are walking. And then these skeleton, partially fleshed creatures have time uh, representing their faces. It's just, it's just beautifully and deliciously ambiguous about what's going on. Is this what it's like to take a time walk? Is it, you know, do you walk this path that these figures are on? Do you have to go a certain distance? You know, it reminds me of the sometimes joked about um, riddle, you know, how many roads must a man walk down? Like, <laughs> it evokes that kind of simple ambiguity to me, and I just love it. Plus, it was really fun to get altered, because I, I, I put some snow around and put a snowman in the foreground. It was great. But descriptively, what do you think is, is occurring here? I believe that these figures are symbolic of time and that this path that they are on is symbolic of our traversal of time and that one can adjust one's position in time by walking this path the way these figures are. That's how I read this. So the landscape resent, represents different portions in time or does it, what is it's It's figurative rather than literal. I, I take it as a literal interpretation of time. I would argue that this, path that they're on is kind of an analog um, method of traversing time. But that's just my reading. Into the fourth dimension. Yeah. <laughs> what do you make of what appears to be a kind of a tombstone mausoleum in the back? I think I, I don't make much of that, except that that could be where you either go to or where these figures live uh, in order to take this path a long time. It's entirely up to the viewer in terms of how much you must walk along this path, right, in order to meaningfully impact your position in time. It could be that each one of the, I don't know, traffic cones on the left side of the path that seem to demark you know, length. It could be that those are meaningful, or it could be that you have to walk quite a ways in order to take the equivalent of another turn in magic. I, it's deliciously ambiguous. Fair I don't enough. have much to say other than that. I can't resist commenting that I really like the reinterpretation of time walk that was done for the vintage championship series 2011. I love it. Oh yeah. The figure, the figure standing on the, the, the clock face. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's very, what's the word? It's very dramatic. Yeah. And the perspective and, yeah. is, is yeah. And the perspective is great. You're right. It's a dramatic perspective. Yeah. I do. I do really enjoy that art. And I think that in every case, you know, you and I are, you know, we're old farts. We have a, a strong affinity for the original magic art for for many, many reasons, as we've already discussed. The The simple truth is, is that like so many cards, if the alpha or limited edition version of Time Walk had been printed with this second art, this reinterpreted art by Chris Ron, that I would love it just as much. <laughs> just has everything to do with, you know, how one experiences something for the first time, which is a well-known, a well-known yeah. Phenomenon. Yeah. Cool. All right. It seems a little inelegant to move on from the three time cards, <laughs> but we have to do it somehow, and we have to talk about tranquility. Tranquility is quite simple. 2G for a sorcery. All enchantments in play must be discarded. 
I'm very grateful that it says in play because yeah. otherwise we'd have a textual nightmare. God, <laughs> why does this art remind me of a golf course? <laughs> well, I don't think that's too much of a stretch. You know, the very, very green uh, landscape evokes manicured grass. I think my, it's because eyes. it's overly manicured. Yeah. Here. yeah, it looks for the purposes of the magical setting. There's no reason this would actually be manicured, right? The the only thing that would be responsible for maintaining this grass would probably be goats in the magic universe. But I think it's just a a fact that the ground is so simple, simply rendered that it's so smooth that it looks manicured. And anyone who wanted a golf course could, you know, do much worse than this. This would be a great setting for a golf course. It's very Bob Ross, right? Is it? These, I guess. The trees, the trees are very ambiguous right the leaves on the trees especially in in the background are just they're just splotched on there i i feel like bob ross deep with a wide brush i feel like bob ross is more naturalistic than this this just feels it feels artificial to me but well that that may be true but i'm just talking about the the method by which trees and distant leaves are rendered here is the same approach he would take just just dabbing a a multi-bristled brush in the distance to make leaves so how important is this card in the history of, of magic? I argue that this card is important to have existed for a number of reasons because it cements green as the color of enchantment removal. You know, in addition of to enchantments. white. Uh, yeah, of enchantments and enchantment removal. But it opens the door for mass permanent removal in a way that was formative to other spells, and the, and the most direct one, I believe, was Shatterstorm to follow this, isn't it, right? But isn't it interesting how Shatterstorm uh, is not yes, here? Yes, it's very interesting. But and I think that, is. Uh, in hindsight, it's a, it stands out a lot. And I, you, there's definitely a universe where Shatterstorm is in limited edition, and that universe is it would I wouldn't bat an eye at that, right? It would yeah. seem very natural here. At the same time, uh, Green did not get. Uh, erase or any kind of one mana remove an enchantment spell in limited edition right and so that stands out as noteworthy i'm very glad that tranquility exists in that sense even though it's it's pretty it's just slightly over costed and we we got many cheaper versions throughout the years that had a similar effect for it that were more efficient it is very interesting to me that there is no single use removal enchantment removal in alpha but there is for yeah. artifacts. There is for creatures. You know, there there are. Well, we get the. That's why disenchant is so formative. There are for lands. Yeah, but there's shatter for you know. There's removal for everything yeah. in a in a one off in a targeted well, way, except for enchantments. You know, I I don't mean to argue with you, so to speak, but it's noteworthy that you're not including creatures there, because. Well, no. What I mean is that there. It, it took until terminate for us to get a spell that just said destroy target creature. Like, it was deep into magic before we got an unconditional... I guess. I was counting a creature. Yeah. Obviously, swords does, you know, does, does more than what is called for when it comes to removing creatures, but it, it technically has a drawback, right? Every creature removal spell in alpha Truth. technically right. has a drawback. Um, and it took until terminate before we got that. But still, your point is well made. I mean, tranquility... Tranquility puts its foot in the door in terms of what it's like to remove uh, mass remove enchantments and positions green as the color that does so. And as we said, it's... it's di- Yeah, I mean, there's so few ways to remove encha- enchantments in this... Well, yeah, and it's deceptive how important enchantments are 
to Alpha. Yeah, that's especially, I mean, especially given that there's the COPs and et cetera, and there's so mm-hmm. many, you know, of the cursed land cycle. <laughs> so many auras. In this <laughs> yeah, session. that that they had so little enchantment removal. I mean, I, I just find it extremely puzzling. And then when you do get it, you get it in the mass form. And in green, yeah. which is not, given that green has enchantress, I mean, you can understand the thematic resonance, but I don't know, and from a color pie perspective or from a kind of a fantasy flavor perspective, if green should really be the, you know, the color of enchantment removal. Yeah. It is a very interesting exercise in analyzing the color pie. And uh, I don't feel like I'm expert enough in order to elucidate that at this time. But I'm with you that it doesn't entirely make sense that green should be the color that does that. in a mass, Especially in a mass way. Yes. However, green still sits among... Green and white it, are basically paired in the colors that can remove enchantments in bulk. White does more of it historically than green does, though. It it makes sense in this in the one sense that if you view enchantments as these as these artificial magical constructs, and green is the is the is the source of natural, you know, magic, and and kind of in that sense it could be like a cleansing magic, you know. But I mean, white has that. I could even see what are the colors if it wasn't in green. What color would you see this in? Well, white, white, yeah. White obviously hasn't, yeah. And then beyond white, beyond white, it's kind of impossible to say because we know that black yeah. doesn't. T- I mean, red would be my next choice. Me too. The, the short answer is red because black doesn't touch enchantments at all, and blue is is the color of not removing anything really. Blue would, could bounce enchantments theoretically, and it can with right. you know with non discriminatory things like boomerang, right? But red would be the third choice because it's the color of destruction. Yeah, and I would argue that red has, from a top-down perspective, red has a stake to being the color to um, undo things from a from a kind of a purification standpoint. But at the same time, I'm talking about like burning, right? <laughs> burning has a certain purification to it. It's not the only way, of course. <laughs> but uh, but the simple truth is, as I'm pretty sure that red's not supposed to do it either. So. Green and white are the obvious homes, but this has shifted away from green. We got tranquility variants for years and years and years. We got essence filter, which recapitulated it in Ice Age. You know, hush, reverence, silence, calming verse. Like it's been going on this way for a while. We got a tranquility that just draws you a card for five mana for some reason in Tranquil Path, but then it switched gears to white pretty directly because white took over with cleansing meditation and torment. It's just one WW destroy all enchantments and it has threshold with upside. And then it got Nova Cleric, which is a creature that sacks to do the same thing. And then white kind of took over. So, but then in M11, we got back to nature and that was a really strange kind of repositioning green as the color that does this. But I mean, that's a long time ago now. M11 is not recent. And then in Innistrad, we, we stepped back into white doing this with Parasolini, which is, strange so r&d has i think stepped away from green being the color that does this but then they went back to it in m11 and now we're back into it been back into white doing it in 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 innistrad the the simple truth is is it's been a while innistrad is the last card that we had that just had the language destroy all enchantments and that's a long time ago by today's standards right so destroying all enchantments i think it one of the things that we've learned over the years is regardless of which color can do it is that 
it's not that interesting of an effect to just have. Enchantments are not that commonly played in bulk in competitive magic, and therefore competitive magic just kind of doesn't justify having a quality sweeper in this regard. Targeted removal or things that remove multiple uh, permanent types, like, pulling an example out of the top of my hat, um, Ratchet Bomb. Like things like Ratchet Bomb, Oblivion Stone, Little Nev's Disc, things like that are more interesting and useful from a competitive standpoint. And that's why we just don't get uh, tranquility variants anymore. Kevin, I think what that speaks to, or your entire analysis speaks to, is the fact that the conception of magic was that enchantments would play a much larger role. And we see that both in terms of the sheer quantity and variety of enchantments, but also the fact that they selected to to create a nuclear option here yeah. for green. Yeah. I think that's the right read based on everything we've seen. And that is reinforced by the fact that Tranquility itself was part of the core sets of magic for uh, up until 7th edition, including inclusions in three of the otherwise core-like large sets, Tempest, Masks, and Invasion. They Those sets also all had Tranquility in wow. them. Wow, those are Temple sets, yeah. Isn't it amazing that Invasion had Tranquility in it? I mean... It's hard to understand. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But it's just one of many things as we've done in this in this set review is that there are so many things that reviewed as core components of magic as an identity for much longer than they needed to be. Also, the, the, the lack of targeted enchantment removal helps explain why Tranquility sees so much play even in old school today. Yeah, do you remember how big of a coup it was when we got Emerald Charm in Visions? <laughs> yeah. A one mana instant in green that could destroy an enchantment? It's it's more amazing to me that it went that long until they printed it. Right, exactly. So Kevin, we haven't completed the set yet, but as a partial summary, I think there are about three things that we can say the design of magic turned out to be very different than the I don't know, the way it's practiced in a, in a regular sense mm-hmm. um, or would be experienced. Number one is that clearly the laces, shifting colors, magical hacks, slide of, slide of mind, that sort of thing, were intended or thought to play a much larger role. Right. Number two is enchantments were designed to be a much larger part of the game, like psychic venom, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. I think those are I think those are clearly two of the things. And now, of course, number three was that magic was not designed to have four four card caps. But those things really stand out. All four, yeah. all three of those. Yeah, that makes sense. And I would argue too that related to the color changing effects that you observed is the fact that it was originally expected that being punished for playing a different color was meant to be far more structural and well punishing. Right. Yeah. All the color hosers in limited edition are just incredibly, incredibly powerful compared to what we get these days and incredibly disruptive. All right. So let's move on from tranquility to tropical island. Personal favorite of mine. I mean, the the simple truth is, is that I played a lot of tropical island in my day because I was a very strong uh, proponent of the Sapphire Oath deck. Mm -hmm. Right. One of the great. Uh, experiences that you and I personally and directly had in Vintage was in GP Cleveland back in the early 2000s when we went and played in all those side events. And one of the matchups that was formative in that particular weekend in our time at that period was Sapphire Oath versus uh, Brown Paper Bag, right? My blue-green Oath deck, which oathed up Morphling and Spike Weaver 
versus your mono blue ophidian deck those were good times oh yeah yeah i don't know what else we can say about tropical island i mean the the art is another uh, jesper mirfors and it is a very uh, i would argue literal interpretation but as i've objected to with many many other of the dual lands and to some extreme i would say the opposite about this i mean this is a textbook uh, intersection of two land types right it is a forest on an island, and it, it works very, very well in that regard. The rendering here in the art is it's a little simplistic for my taste, <laughs> but it still it still does the job. You know, it's it's pretty obviously a, a deeply forested island in the middle of the the water. I would concur. I find the perspective interesting, um, in two respects. Number one is that the image is very flat. It basically yes. has two dimensions. It's got the foreground with the the waves, and then it has in the distance this island. You don't actually see the entirety of the island, which is interesting, but it's very different than, say, the perspective you get on Tundra or some of the other, you know, where you have like an upward and maybe slightly askew tilted angle, right? Mm -hmm. This is very kind of straightforward, boxed, you know, straight ahead perspective. And it's noteworthy, too, that the island takes up the full breadth of the composition. Yes. Unlike, say, Birds of Paradise, where the island is, it, you've got a little bit more of a three-quarters perspective and the island is more in the distance, cementing it as being in a large body of water. One of the strange things about the tropical island composition is that you can't get a really a feel for how large the body of water is. Sure, or it's a plot. Yeah, sure. It's impl- that too. It's implied that you're in the middle of an ocean, right? But you don't get the perspective that you do on Birds of Paradise or Island Sanctuary or Volcanic Island. This could be a bay, or it could be, you know, the edge of an enormous ocean. You just can't right. tell. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I still like it. And in terms of my power rankings of the quality of art of a dual land, it's it's probably in the middle. It may, yeah, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> But the only ones I really dislike are the ones that like positions seven, eight, and nine on the list. <laughs> <laughs> Jesper had posted on social media not too long ago that he had hidden a figure on the beach of this island somewhere that no one had oh, ever nice. picked up on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, my examination of the relatively modest art that's available on Scryfall is that there's a lot of um, tree trunks visible, even in the small art. And so picking up a figure and differentiating it from a tree trunk, I think, would be a bit of a a task, but I'll take his word for it. (laughs) All right, let's move on to Tsunami. Now, I just alluded a minute ago to the punishing nature of of color hosers in limited edition, and this is a perfect example. 3G for a sorcery, all islands in play are destroyed. Very simplistic, very effective. It's a mirror to flash fires, which we've already reviewed, and I don't know too much more to say about it in terms of function that we haven't already said with all of the other color hosers. Uh, it's pretty brutal, though. This is one where it's pretty brutal among most of them to to get this thing magical hacked, and I know that has happened, although I can't say I have any direct experience with it, <laughs> uh, but getting this hacked to forests in response is, uh, that's just good clean living. <laughs> <laughs> So, that is, among many things, magic as Garfield intended. <laughs> <laughs> this, so we, we've you know discussed the power of color hosers. We've talked about flash fires, tsunami, etc. Karma. 
in the in the ranking of how good they are, how far up is this one? Let's take well, the COPs out of it. Gosh, that's a really good question. I don't know how to articulate that. Um, I have not done this analysis at all, but off the top of my head, this one's got to be in the top half. It's probably in the top five because mana is so funk critical to how blue fights green mm-hmm. that losing all your islands is just crippling. Yeah. And I don't know how to evaluate that. So many of the color hosers in limited edition have to do with either destroying or rendering your lands inert. Um, but as compared to something like karma, gosh, I, I don't know how to answer that. This is just I think, very brutal and it's, it's gotta be super punishing. Well, if we take the COPs out, and and also the blue and red elemental blast. I think, you know, just these like pun these like color punishers, like karma or gloom. Mm-hmm. I think gloom is probably the best. Um, but I yeah. think I think tsunami is is a really interesting case. Um, I think it's better than flash fires because yes. I and specifically not just because blue is better than than white. <laughs> That's certainly part of it. But I think it's because white can recover off of a small mana base more quickly than blue in, in limited edition. I think, you know, blue needs a more expansive supply of mana. I also think that, um, blue is more self-reliant. So, you know, it's less likely to diversify in some respects. You know, mm-hmm. interesting. You're, you're more likely to have a mono blue deck than you are. To have a mono white deck is what you're saying. I think so. Out of lim- out of limited ed- edition. Um, also, but- I, I, the thing I thought you were going to go to is that the white plays to the board. So blowing yes. up all of white's lands yes. after they've got two or three creatures out is much less impactful than blowing up blue's lands the turn before it got to play air elemental. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, there are some blue permanents that could have been in play prior to this, prodigal sorcerers and whatnot, phantom monster. But the point remains that. Blue tends to interact far more from spells tapping their lands every turn. And so I agree with your conclusion. Tsunami is totally brutal. The I love this art, even though I would argue that this is not depicting a tsunami, which is semantic, but true. This is depicting a tidal wave, a very large one, in fact. And if it's meant to be a one-to-one scale between the wave and the town there. It's, it's a, you know, a fantastically large tidal wave. But a tsunami does not necessarily, you know, is typified by a, a sudden but swelling of water as opposed to large frothing waves. At the same time, I love the fact that this art is a direct call to the Great Wave, and it's very beautiful. Yes, like that. this is a clear homage to the Great Wave of Kanagawa, mm-hmm. the the famous wood wood block print by Hokusai. This is clearly <laughs> mm-hmm. and a, and a good homage too. I mean, yeah, I think it's very evocative. And I love how dramatic it is. And I love, I mean, Richard Thomas was a kind of an inspired choice for this one, even though I'm sure many artists could have done it justice. Yeah. In, in Gamma, what piece of art did they use? Do you know? I assume they used the Great Wave. Let me see. Oh, no, I'm mistaken. <laughs> so in Gamma, Tsunami is the same exact thing. Four mana destroys all islands in play, but it has a Calvin and Hobbes cell. That says he's just <laughs> it's just Calvin shouting tidal wave <laughs> with, with a wave coming over him. That's funny. Looks uh yep, October seventh, nineteen eighty six, Calvin and Hobbes panel. That's funny. Yeah, I would have made this for a great wave easily, but but obviously 
the art that was used for Alpha uh, post-dates the art that was chosen for Gamma. <laughs> <laughs> it's also noteworthy, too, that um, Tsunami was printed in the core sets up until 5th edition, right? So it's like so many things it overstayed its welcome in terms of its place in the core sets of Magic. And it's only ever been printed with this art, which I think is cool. All right, let's move on to Tundra, another one of the many duels. And uh, what what can be said about Tundra, except that I think there's a case, and I don't know this to be true, but I want to get your perspective on this. I think there's a case to be made that Tundra is the dual land of all 10 that has seen the most play in tournament magic. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> well... Uh, it's hard. It's so hard to say because you're you've got so many different formats to consider, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I guess if you restrict tournaments to DC DC DCI sanctioned events, mm-hmm. then you have to further restrict it to the um, formats in which this has been legal. So this was legal, obviously, in '94, '95. It was legal in extended and for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Legal and standard. Wait. How long were dual lands legal and standard? I don't even remember. I'd have to pull up. Oh uh, no, that was not very long. That was, that was a short period of time. Right. Um, so you're mostly talking about legacy and vintage over time. Mm-hmm. Um, Tundra, I would say, is is for most of the 2010s was not not did not see more play than Volk or C or even Trop for that matter. Sorry, the two I meant the 2000s, not the 2010s. Right, right. I would say of the blue duels, I mean, it's easy to it's easy to say it's it's seen more play than the non-blue duels. We can stipulate to that. <laughs> the blue duels are the top four. There's no doubt yes. about that. Yes. So the question is, which of those have seen the most play? In the well, 2000s, and Tropical is clearly in fourth place. Well, in the 2000s, Tropical was in the Tog deck, in the Grow decks, it was in the Oath deck. You know, it was it was yeah, but it was okay. So maybe in that era, Trop may have been tied with C in that era, but not over time. Taking any other era, Trop yeah, is, so, is in so fourth let's break place. It, let's break it up by decades. I think it's easier to analyze that way. Okay. In the '90s, I would say that Tropic, that Tundra may have been the most played dual end in Type One. I'd say yes. that's a very very strong possibility. Yes. Um, just because the deck and you know blue white control decks were so popular um it's hard to know because you know you know like necro decks were very good zoo decks were very good um trop trop was probably <coughs> close trop and volk probably saw more play than c in the 90s is my guess um at least until the late 90s because the middle 90s the zoo decks were very popular in <coughs> in vintage sorry in type one <laughs> and the zoo decks were built around Trop and Volk. I mean, even in, even go back to like even Bertrand Lestray's deck, right? That was Taiga and Trops. And so all of those. Yeah, but look at the deck that won that year. <laughs> yes, but the deck that won the the deck that won the ninety the ninety six Type One Championship and the ninety seven Type One Championship were both zoo decks. Now I don't want to conflate what was the right deck to play. I'm talking about what deck was played the most. And yes. throughout that period, would you describe that period as the period of Zoo or the period of the deck, right? The deck, I mean, the deck, no, the deck kind of went away, frankly, when Necro ascended. Like it, it, like Brian Weissman got like 40th place in that big PT when it was like yeah. the deck, when the metagame was control, Necro, and Zoo. 
Yeah. It was really more zoo-ish, honestly. So Tundra jockeyed for a position throughout still, the 90s. Like the, the, I mean, the 90s, is in terms of competitive magic, is only like a five-year period, so we don't want to overanalyze it. Yeah, it's the smallest true. period of all. I still think I still think Tundra is probably in the top two. It's yes. certainly the top three in the 90s. It's in, in, in of the blue de- blue of the blue duels. C is clearly the distant fourth in the 90s, um, yes. and it's it's hard to compare. I think probably probably Tundra, and then probably I don't know. It's hard to say which is second or third in the 90s. Might in be the, Taiga in the 90s. Yeah, might it might be Taiga in the 90s. Honestly, yeah. Um, in anyway. the in the 2000s though, I think. So so let's keep let's keep at bay the Grixis era because the Grixis era kind of started around 2008 2009 right. 2008 that's when that's when Underground Sea became the the top duel yes that that's true and if for most of the night for most of the 2000s red was by far the worst color in Magic mm-hmm. in the 2000s so I would put Volk at the bottom mm-hmm. of the blue duels in the in the 2000s and the aughts <laughs> I think. It was well, yeah. I, I would put Volk at the bottom in in the aughts. I think it was probably it would be C in that portion. Yes, of the night of the of the aughts. Yeah, I think it was probably C. I think I'm just I'm thinking about all the different decks. So think here are the decks of the 2000s. The big decks of the 2000s were were Gifts, Control Slaver, uh, Control Slaver, Gifts, and Psychotog decks of various mm-hmm. versions. Those are basically the three dominant blue decks of the aughts. Right. So one, one's blue black slash Grixis, and yeah. one is blue red. I think that I think that C probably wins because yep. C was used in all three of them. But that was so that what we're talking about is this is the textbook period in which white need not apply in vintage. Yes, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we alluded to it earlier in this show, right? This is the period where Tundra is in fourth place of the blue duels. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we. I meant I said Volk was the. I meant uh, t- white was the worst color by far. Yes. In the, to 2000. I, I said t- volcanic. I you meant said tundra. Volk earlier. You meant tundra. Yeah. I meant tundra. Yeah. So 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 yeah, then the, Grixis kicks in. The, well, the, well. Here's the thing. So for the f- here for the f- first few years of the 2000s, I I think it's I think it's C and Trop because mm-hmm. you have both because Tog, you have Tog Grow and Oath all being a thing. Yep. Um, I think that at some point in the middle part of the decade, Control Slaver and Gifts replace Tog as like the the top deck and then Volk becomes the second dual land. Yeah. So and the then, point is is this well, this on. is this era is won by C predominantly and Tundra is in fourth place. Yes, but when you get to the end of the of the aughts, then it's then it's there really aren't a lot of green left, is there? It's mm-hmm. like greens I mean I'm trying to think there was a brief period with like Tyrant Oath. No yeah. you know what there is? There was a resurgence in Grow. In 2007, for one year, there was a big resurgence in green. There was Tarmogoyf. Well, we're getting from a little too granular here. But, but I know. I'm talking but about I'm the whole history. Saying, we're getting a little too granular. Well, well, I'm, I, I know. But look, there was a period in which Oath and, and Grow come back. I, okay, if you want to keep it simple, I'll say C is the top duel of the 2000s. We'll just mm-hmm. keep it simple. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then once you get to the to the 2010s, I'll let you opine on that. I I think Jeskai is very popular through most of that time. Well, what happens yeah. is Mentor and Containment Priest and and Fragmentize all come in around 2012, 13, Yeah, where 14. Jeskai jumps in 
and then there's a point, and then after, well, I mean, but it was before Mentor that that Valk was clearly the number one, right? And yes. then Mentor gets printed, yes. and Tundra becomes, you know, yes. first and second with Valk, and third and, then, and fourth are Trop and C. Yeah, but there is there is the one exception, which is that the Brian Kelly brings Oath back in a big way. Yeah, but, but that was always a yeah, five to ten percent deck. I think Trop yeah. is probably the fourth in the 2010s. Then, you yeah, think that, see, that's fa- that's fair. Yes, it is. And I would you agree. would and you would you would notch. I would notch Tundra and in, in Volcanic. I would probably say Volcanic is number one. Volk's got to be number one because there was in all the, that Delver the, period that was Sans White. Yeah, in the 2010s. And it's also used as a splash in the other other colors. So if yeah. we just separate, say Tundra Dominant is the best in the in the nineties, C in the in the aughts, and Valk in the teens, that's hard to space out. And that's that's only in vintage. We're not even talking yeah. about the dominance I, of like, like Delver decks in Legacy for the last ten years. Well, then uh, Delver is obviously omnipresent in Legacy, but so was Miracles for years and years. True. Right. True. So my assertion was designed to, you know, evoke debate. This conversation, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's pretty clear to me that you could do some scientific analysis and really measure the thing. But when I think about the history of old school and and vintage type one and vintage type one point five legacy extended, I just the... can't shake the notion that tundra tundra ekes everything out. Every other land had its day, and and it's close. I really do think it's close. Here's why I think Tundra does not win out for a very specific okay. reason. Basically, most of the the versions of the deck or variants thereof played Volcanic Islands too, and yeah. see and often sees as well. Not always, but often sees as well. Yeah, I mean, in, in the latter days of in the yeah. latter days of Keeper, there were four color decks, right? But even and then but the, the four fetch the deck lands, in they old were all yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Lots of in, in in the days of the deck, they were still four three and four color decks. And so your point Five is well color, made, even though yeah. I, in, yeah, even though the I cities. encode those decks as blue white decks, that's not, that's not accurate in terms no. of measurement. They played, they played regrowth, <laughs> you know, in red blast main deck. I think, I think it's possible that volcanic Island is the most played of all time. Yeah. I also think that that's possible. And it's also fair to say that I encode the early days of magic as being heavily blue white as the deck is heavily blue white. But that's also the the point at which Magic was the smallest, right? Yeah. I mean, it's formative. The number of tournaments were by far the smallest. <laughs> that's right. It's it's formative and strongly impactful and dominant in its day. At the same time, a fraction of what's played today. So yeah, that's that's pretty meaningful. And you're right. Legacy is over time is almost certainly the format in which tournament tournament format in, in which Duel has got the most play, play, right? And Delver is just so omnipresent in that format for years. That it probably goes to Volcanic Island. Are these dual ends legal in Commander? Yes, they are. Are they just? Did the Commander decks just play all of them? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the simple truth of the matter is, is they're too expensive because they're reserved, and even the cheapest ones are eighty to hundred bucks. You know, is they're they're not very heavily played. If you go to EDH Rec and just look at, say, the most popular two color Commander in each combination. The limited edition version of the dual land for that commander is going to be halfway down the list of lands that are played wow. because they're so expensive. Yeah. Wow. Even though they're ostensibly the best for many reasons, they're not strongly played. And there's a lot of, I mean, commander is part of the, a lot of the contemporary push for abolishing the reserved list because people are like, I've got all these other dual lands, so I don't have to play this land. It really is okay. 
but at the same time, why? Why? Why is it's this optimized. one? You know, yeah. why is this one one or two hundred dollars when it would it would be the most obvious inclusion in my deck? When and a those dark people, heart waste is four dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so the fact of the matter is, is that I it's it's one of the many reasons why I am a strong uh, proponent of abolishing the reserve list. The commander players far and wide will tell you that um, you don't have to have these. You, you really don't. There's just plenty, plenty of options. But the simple truth is they shouldn't be hundreds of dollars. <laughs> they should be five um, or ten bucks. That's a we'll we'll cover the reserve list in another episode someday. <laughs> that's right. Um, I I really love the art on this. It's it's in my top two or three favorite arts. It might be my favorite. I just love the again the perspective isn't straight on. It's it's kind of you're a little bit up in the air it appears or maybe up on a hillock. You know, you're looking down. There are these, you know, basically some sort of animal caravan, possibly caribou. human caribou. There's a caravan of caribou crossing the tundra. <laughs> you know, there's a there's an uneven distance. The snow appears to be falling as the scene unfolds. It's just, I love this piece. Yeah. Well, as a well-documented aficionado of winter, this is my favorite dual land. How do you even touch this one up for your project? <laughs> you don't, right? You just leave it as is. The only thing that that I did for these was to add aurora in the the night sky up at the top. Yeah, but otherwise, I love this dual land because it needed the least altering for my project. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I've always really enjoyed tundra, and I love the scale. Right, like yeah. the, the caribou for scale is fantastic. They're tiny. It's, yeah, it's, it's magical. It's a huge scene. I actually just got related directly to this art. I actually just got a um, artist's proof of a collector's edition planes from Yester Mirfors, where he did a reinterpretation of Tundra on the back in in full frame, like top to bottom. He repainted the Tundra. Oh, it's fantastic! It's lovely. It's it's a gem. Yeah. Anything else on Tundra, Steve? Big nope. big fan. All right, let's move on from. Uh, one that is much less noteworthy, <laughs> and that is Tunnel. Red, for an instant, destroy one wall. Target wall cannot be regenerated. This is another one of those things, Steve, <laughs> that goes on that list of things that that apparently magic was supposed to be about in the yep. early days, and that <laughs> <Yeah>. is walls. <laughs> yes. I mean, how do we have a one-mana destroy target wall, but we don't have a one-mana destroy target enchantment? Right? That's a very, very good question. I've never played with this card. Likely never will. Yeah, same. Even in my early days when I would throw a wall and do a deck here or there, it was relatively normal when I was a casual starting out to have a, a wall of air, you know, wall of bones, wall of stone. I was never driven to play Tunnel in any of those yeah. contexts. Yeah. It's a little bit of a shame, too, because from a top-down standpoint, the card is perfect. Just, just chef's kiss perfect in terms of the way that it addresses a wall, right? I suppose you could say it would be maybe more appropriate to make it an aura that made the wall not be able to block, which would also be pretty funny. But the simple truth is, is um, yeah, this card's just terrible. <laughs> and it was printed until 4th edition, which is a, a pretty big head-scratcher, right? That's just them like, not understanding where magic was going for a, a couple of sets, which is excusable, I guess, to a degree, but wow. Tunnel the, was in 4th edition. Good the grief. gamma version of this did not have the clause about cannot be regenerated. Oh, that's it, interesting. It was even weaker. They decided to power it up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad they did, too. Yeah. It, it also, it doesn't make any sense. Like, 
I dig a tunnel under your wall and you regenerate it. Those two things are completely disconnected in my mind. All right. Anyway, let's move on to to one that is noteworthy, and that is Twiddle, right? And we've already talked about it for a number of reasons. You, for an instant, I love how this, the first word here is caster. Caster may tap or untap any one land, creature, or artifact in play. Again, simple component, Steve. Simple. The Can you read the beta version? Because it has different text. Yeah, sure. By comparison, the beta version says, Caster may tap or untap any one land, creature, or artifact in play. No effects are generated by the target <laughs> card. <laughs> I guess there was a lot of confusion about uh, tapping a land meant that um, it produced mana when that was yeah. not the case. Right. Yeah, Twiddle, this is such an interesting card. Hey, Kevin, I have to confess some surprise that this card is far more like constructed playable than I would imagine. Number one, um, it's shown up in old school in a deck called Twiddle Vault, which is basically a deck designed to, to gorge itself on Sylvan Library and then accumulate, get find Time Vault with Transmute and then just twiddle the hell out of it and use recalls and, and Howling Mind, recall to recur twiddle and just keep twiddling it. And it's just a massive combo deck and it's quite competitive. I've, I've been on the victim, I've really? been victimized by that deck. Yeah, I've been victimized by it. It just hits a critical mass so quickly. Um, and, uh, That's cool. yeah. And it, it, I think it also sometimes uses Howling Mind. So it's a cool combo in environments in which recall is not restricted. Um, but even in like alpha, context like twiddle's remarkably versatile you can use it to untap a basalt monolith or a soul ring at the right time you can use it to tap someone's land in their turn to prevent them from playing spells you can use it in combat i mean it's just it's kind of remarkable how many uses you can get two uses out of an icy manipulator which would be redundant i suppose um but (laughs) you know my point is that there's a lot you can do with it yeah and it just speaks to the fundamentals of Emergent gameplay and the intersection of game pieces. It's uh, there's just no two ways about it. The the time vault example is the prime example, possibly one of the most powerful, right? And get the resource you gain is a whole turn. Yeah, but it's powerful in the extreme, but not in the exception. <laughs> yeah, I must admit that I had you know I had a bunch of twiddles when I was when I was uh, just starting the game because. They were in fourth edition eventually. For some reason, this is this this card has a unique reprint pattern in that it was in unlimited, then skipped revised and came back in fourth edition. So that makes it unique. But I ended up having a bunch of them. At that point, <clears throat> my perception of magic had become more, even though I was not a tournament player, it had become more like efficiency, kind of power based, and Twiddle just wasn't powerful enough. Maybe because I wasn't targeting Time Vault with it. But so I never played this card ever in, in my whole experience with the game. But I do still respect its historical position and the the niche that it fills in so many ways, even inside of limited edition only. Right. It's a unique and interesting card. Yeah. Simple and by design, powerful as owing, a combo. Yeah. Owing to my uh, observation of some cards having fingerprint-like uniqueness in their reprint patterns... I'm pretty sure that Twiddle has a wholly unique reprint pattern. Okay. Because Alpha Beta Unlimited, then skipping revised. Right. Then fourth. Fourth. And fifth. Then skipping sixth. And then seventh <laughs> and eighth. <laughs> is that so the last printing is eighth? Eighth edition is the last printing. Yeah. Wow. 
So it's it is in every core set until eighth, but it skipped revised and sixth edition. I'm pretty sure that's a unique reprint pattern. That's a unique fingerprint. That's another good trivia question. I hope you're writing these down. <laughs> before so we Steve, move on, but before we you, move on to the art, though, I wanted to just say one other thing about its application. Sure, sure. It's important to remember that under first edition rules, tap. First of all, tapped creatures don't deal damage, and tapped artifacts basically turn off. Mm-hmm. Very so, important. Yeah. Um, so, so what it means is that, you know, you could in combat, if your opponent decides to block, you could tap their creature in blocking so that, you know, it, I mean, if you really wanted to kill their creature without losing yours, you could do it that way, right? Tap their creature, theirs dies, yours survives. The other thing you can do is use the effects with like winter orb and howling mine and so forth, right? Turning those off very critically, tactically important, um, in those contexts. We've already discussed some of those. Yeah, pretty big upside with Winter Orb, right? Probably second in line to the Time Vault interaction, right? There's nothing better than just gaining an extra turn for a single blue mana, but gaining a hole on tap when your opponent is not getting them is pretty close, right, in power. And so tapping your own Twiddle, or your own Winter Orb with Twiddle on their end step is pretty big game. Unlike Time Vault, though, we had IC Manipulator to do that job on demand, so Twiddle was not necessarily called upon to do that on a reliable basis, but still there. The art is enigmatic, and one thing I love about it is the just photoreal reflection of the stone mound in the water, the rippled water at the base. Yeah. It's really... In low tide. It's really... um, It's just jaw-dropping, actually. The, the rendition of the reflections in the rippled water, it's so good. What do you make of, I mean, I, I want to hear you comment on that, but what do you make of what's really being depicted here? So, descriptively, it, it appears to be low tide. It's some sort of, you know, um, I don't know, sandbar where the, you know, or, uh, you know, uh, volcanic rock where the, the tide, it's a low tide, so the tide is out, and you've got this, like, er- erosion around this I guess you call it a mound right that has a rock formation coming out of it I really don't know what to, I don't know how that relates to anything <laughs> anything in terms of a magical sense maybe it's just I honestly don't know I don't know well I'm with you uh, if I didn't know better I would call this slush art I would call this <laughs> art that was commissioned for something else and then just slapped onto this card because they couldn't find a better place for it well, it's hard there's to just, represent. There's it's nothing to... about. The, well, there's nothing about this card that represents tapping or untapping in my book. That's and, the thing. Is it's hard to represent something that's tapping or untapping. I think well, if you're giving an artist that says like untap, you could think like rejuvenate, regrowth, you know, something like that. But tap, you could also think something that's constrained or or repressed. But how do you represent both is very cha- very difficult to imagine. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm right there with you, and to your point. Ice Age recapitulated Twiddle in two ways. It had Enervate, which taps and is a cantrip, and it had Infuse, which untaps and is a cantrip. Enervate costs two, Infuse costs three, because I think they properly identified that untapping something was more likely, more powerful, and more likely to get you a resource, right? But in both cases, they're showing a figure being acted upon by some energy, Infuse, which untaps, is giving a kind of positive sensation, like the laying on of hands conveying energy to the figure. And Enervate, which taps, is 
again, energy being applied to a figure, but it's, it's this figure is just kind of grimacing <laughs> and feeling tapped, I guess. Um, in either case, both are just being applied to otherwise humanoid figures. And your point is well made that the notion of being uniformly able to tap or untap something is super hard to evoke, especially on an inanimate object like a rock. Yeah, I don't believe that the art on Twiddle is actually conveying the effect of Twiddle really in any way, but that's okay because I also think that the art is beautiful and the reflection of the water is worth the whole price of admission. (laughs) Also, this is another one that looks, I think, far better in beta. As you've properly observed earlier, this one got the, the colorized retreatment in beta because the wording was updated. And regardless of the utility of the wording, the darkening effect of the whole card had serves to amplify the water reflection in the lower right portion of the card. In the alpha version, it is slightly washed out, which, again, kind of compares drastically to the beta version, which is very saturated. Yeah, this is one of those cards where I think the beta version gets the better the better version. <laughs> mm-hmm. Although I will admit that the large font on the alpha version is, I think, more desirable. I really enjoy big fonts when I can get them. All right, let's move on to a really weird one, and that is Two-Headed Giant Aphorius. And I don't actually know how to pronounce that last word. I assume <laughs> it's a place, but I've never heard anyone opine on it with any authority. The two-headed giant of Phorius is 4R, summon giant, with trample and may block two attacking creatures, semicolon, divide damage between them however controller likes. Pretty funny that the word controller there is entirely ambiguous as to <laughs> the controller of what. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, st- well, Steve, it's pretty obvious that the two-headed giant here formed a model for many things uh, for years thereafter that enabled you know, creatures and other effects that enabled blocking an additional something, right? Yeah. The The creature itself has been recapitulated in a couple of different ways. The most extreme version is my favorite from, I think it's, uh, what is that, Born of the Gods, maybe? Hundred-Handed One, which is a giant that says, as long as Hundred-Handed One is monstrous it has reach and can block an additional 99 creatures each combat (laughs) which is fantastic and pretty much the apex of top-down design in this regard but the simple truth is that many many creatures throughout the years have been able to do this almost exclusively in green and white after the two-headed giant i mean the notion of blocking multiple creatures really shifted strongly into white and later green it really doesn't make any sense that red would be able to do this it's it's just obviously a defensive ability. Steve, did you ever own or play with the two-headed giant? Sadly, Kevin, I have never owned this card. Um, I want to. It's on the the list of card short list of cards I want to acquire, though. Have you? Yeah, I can see that. No, I've never owned one and never played one. I mean, the card has always been pretty enigmatic to me. I remember looking at it <laughs> in my early days because again, it wasn't in revised, so I didn't have one. Have one, but I saw one. And I thought, oh, that's yeah. kind of neat. And then I just kind of wrote it off. It's um, the later incarnations of it, because it didn't take long to get another incarnation of this. Okay, Weatherlight. It took until Weatherlight. <laughs> but the the place or the thing, whatever Phorius is, is, well, let me read the flavor text first. It says, none know if this giant is the result of aberrant magics, Siamese twins, or a mentalist's schizophrenia. <laughs> that's... um. 
that's some weird uh faux fantasy thing i don't know why they did that but not in love with that flavor text but uh, there are three cards that reference forays um after the two-headed giant the next one was the recapitulation in weatherlight foresian brigade which is a set of soldiers summon soldiers it says they can block two creatures each combat so that's just straight up rearticulation of it then we get in t- um and then we get in time spiral two references to foresian because we get foresian interceptor which is a flash defender that can block an additional creature, which is cool. And then we get the Phrygian Totem, which is a three-mana mana rock that gets to turn into a two-headed giant. You put 4R into it, and it becomes a 4-4 red giant creature with trample that can block an additional creature. It's kind of funny that the Totem becomes the giant. So 4East, whatever it is, is represented. Excuse me. Whatever it is, is represented in four cards now, obviously driven by the giant. But many, many other cards have obviously the ability to block additional creatures or grant it. Kevin, I wanted to point out the the gamma version of this card, which is just called Two-Headed Giant, and it costs four mana. Sorry, it costs five mana, four and a red. The text, it's a two-four instead of a four-four. And it says, treat as two creatures, both two-four. Each can block and must be blocked separately. If one is destroyed, both are. <laughs> That's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's a totally different card. <laughs> and I would argue that that card was... They, they tried again with making that effect when they created Stang. That was, that's Legends. where I was going next, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about the Two-Headed Giant. I mean, the art is effective at conveying that it's a large creature because you get the lower perspective looking up at it. It's effective at conveying that it's two-headed, of course. I don't know why that Anson felt compelled to put a big rock on the shoulder of the other, the left side, which is strange. <laughs> it just seems kind of strangely unnecessary, but I guess it conveys the giantness to a and, degree. And its power. Yeah. Strength. Yeah, you're right. All right, let's move on to, well, Underground Sea. What else can you say about a dual land that we haven't said already? <laughs> well, I mean, we've covered Underground a lot of Sea. Yeah, Underground Sea, uh, in my estimation, takes up a special place, especially in the vintage um, context, because this is the combo dual land. This is the dual land when you need to cast Ancestral Recall and Dark Ritual. That's that's how I encapsulate Underground Sea, <clears throat> even though that's entirely unfair for reasons you've already cited, like this is the the necessary dual land when in, for decks like Tog and Grow Tog, right? and a number of other not-combo decks, so to speak. But that's how I view Underground Sea as the the ritual enabler, and that's why it was so powerful at so many different eras throughout Vintage especially. Yeah, I think it's the... I think it's... <laughs> um, one of the to- it's certainly one of the top dual lands of all time. It's. It, I think we said it was the number one in the 2000s. Um, well, I think we maybe... In the 2000... In this past decade, it's probably Volk. But C is just, I mean, blue and black are just immensely powerful <laughs> colors in the color pie. So yeah. underground C will always be fantastic. You get the greatest density of restricted cards in blue and black, and you always will, right? It's just, that's the way it is. And when Duress was printed, that was such an incredible um, oh, signpost 
throughout the yeah. history, especially of tournament magic, right? When Duress was printed, it was just, oh, nothing is safe anymore, right? Yeah. <laughs> no matter what. And that was before the era of many, many, many great counter spells that were free, as we've already discussed yeah, in many contexts. Back then, when you got Duress, it, it was all over. Underground Sea, you know, uh, probably my favorite use of it historically and contemporarily is, you know, Dark Ritual, Doomsday, Gush. <laughs> mm, yeah, good you could stuff. Date. I find it absolutely remarkable that Days <laughs> is now a vintage playable card and is not just seen play in Doomsday, but like even in Xerox decks. I never would have thought that, you know, a well, while ago. I, I certainly wouldn't have predicted it exactly. But at the same time, it doesn't surprise me at all. Just with the <laughs> incredible amount of downward pressure on efficiency in Vintage, um, Days is a natural extension of that. There's just no two ways about it. That's incredible. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about Underground Sea, Steve. It's, uh, the art is... I've always found the art to be a little bit enigmatic, and I'll tell you but, why. But, by the way, before you talk about the art, Im- okay. imagine if they ever unrestricted Necropotence. You would have Dark Ritual Necro Days being played. Oh, good <laughs> grief! <laughs> off of Underground <laughs> Sea, all the time. Well, you could you could do that in that uh, that Vintage Unleashed format, which had a, a smaller restricted list. Oh, was Necro on the? Was it Necro was, restricted? It was. I played a Grow deck, but the first deck I built was Necro, and I didn't think it was quite good enough. But with Days, I would certainly rethink that. Mm. Yeah, rightly so. Well, uh, anyway, regarding the art, I've always found it a bit enigmatic. Okay, so C is pretty well rendered here. You've got some nice lapping waves coming up on a beach. It's clearly a C. The underground part, though, is interesting to me because obviously there are stone walls coming up in a sort of cave format on the left and right and then going off into the distance. But the thing I don't quite get is what happens in the distance there appears to be a horizon with a sun there's a and light clouds. source is what you're talking about yeah. yeah and so are we just looking out of the opening of the cave at some point at which no. point the resolution of the cave ceiling is entirely lost on me i've always so, wondered about that i'm not i'm not a spelunker i haven't spent an inordinate amount of time inside caves but that's what i have been <laughs> in a lot of caves mostly okay. because um just like tour to tour, as a tourist places you know, I've I've been into, into different caves. I was in Hawaii last year. Went into a bunch of caves. Um, nice. Uh, I can't even remember where else. I just have lots of memories of being in caves. Certainly in Ohio, there's like Ohio caverns with they have this enormous stalactite. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there are other places I've been. But my best guess as to what's happening here, Kevin, is one of two things. Number one. Out of the frame, but above the light source is an opening or an aperture in which light is streaming in and hitting the water. So I think that there's an opening huh. out of view. So it's not in the it's not in the distance of the it's it's above and out of the frame. It's a small opening. Actually, when we were I think it was in I want to say Costa Rica, there were a lot of places where you know like you had. Yeah, there were lots of little cavern areas where, like, you would have, like, a small aperture. You could, cr- you could climb down into the underground cave like this, and there'd be water sloshing in from the beach. But you couldn't, you know, v- from, you know, further away, but you'd be inland a little bit. And so I think that what's happening is there's light coming in from above, or, alternatively, light is basically being refracted in- onto the ground there. 
I think it's one of the two from from an off distance or an off panel source. I think it's one of those two things. I just disagree. It's pretty clear to me that this is a sunset. And in the center, slightly left of center, is the sun on the horizon. It's clearly reflected in the water approaching the viewer. Wow. I, that is a very different interpretation. I don't see that at all. But, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's certainly possible. I think that the problem with that interpretation is what do you make, how do you make sense? This is supposed to be underground. <laughs> that was my original question. <clears throat> Here's what I think happens. I think that... On the on the right side of the frame, the stone wall curves around, and then at some point, just right of center, the stone wall ends. Yeah. But, 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 what I think what has been depicted here by by Rob Alexander is that the clouds that are rolling in have entered the cave, and so there's a an a blurred distinction between where the cave ends and the horizon kind of kicks in yeah i think it's intentionally vague that the clouds have rolled in like in front of the cave and the cave is super enormous i but it seems un it seems unambiguous to me that that is the sun in the distance in a sunset i i agree that there is un- unambiguously a sun mm-hmm. but my disagreement is that i think it's a reflection of what's happening in the aperture above the cavern or above, or, or, or what's being, it could be double reflected. So it could okay. be off of some shiny source on the side that's getting, getting the sun light. Clearly there's a, a very powerful light source and clearly the source appears to be the sun because in the center of the, of the, that light, you get like a, a, a round image that looks like it could be the sun. But what I'm saying yeah. is I don't think that's directly the sun. I think it's a reflection of the sun. Either double reflect, reflected, or just reflected from directly above, some light source above. And the reason I say that is because my interpretation of where the water is, Mm -hmm. I think the water line is above the sun. Not Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting, okay. Well, I love how... Which means that it has to be a reflection if I'm right. Well, I would agree with you completely there. Yeah. I I just love how ambiguous it is, how open the interpretation is, how fantastical it is. I, I, I think this is one of the best pieces of art. It's 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 very hard to see it on a magic card and appreciate it. Mm-hmm. To really appreciate I think like this the the way in which the water is lapping up in the foreground and then like ethereally um going into like this cloudy mist with this enormously intense reflection, which very well could be a sunset, by the way, reflection of sun in the background. This is a phenomenal piece of art. It really yeah. is. A, it's like a top. This and Tundra. There are a couple. I, well, I said that I think Taiga is probably my favorite. This is in my top three. Yeah. This is also high on my list as well. I agree for all the reasons you stated. I like how ambiguous it is. In my And when I got this altered, I went with my rendition of the thing and changed the sun into a moon in the distance. And it's fantastic. All right. Let's move on from Underground Sea to Unholy Strength. In the Alpha context, Unholy Strength says, well, it's black with an enchant creature. It says target creature gets plus two, plus one. Pretty straightforward effect. I mean, we've already reviewed this card in a a sense when we reviewed Holy Strength, and obviously it creates a pairing there. Obviously, the black version 
of the pairing in particular is uh, more aggressive. Pairs especially well with a Black Knight and making the first striking creature even harder to deal with, but not protecting it from Lightning Bolt, sadly. While Unholy Strength, I think, is a staple in many ways in some early interpretations of Mono Black, I certainly played a bunch of them in my early days when I was experimenting with the Mono Black Weenie decks. I think that one of the things we have to discuss is how Unholy Strength has the ignominious place in history of being one of a short list of magic cards that were edited, their art, upon reprinting. And that refers, of course, to the fourth edition version of the card. Well, it actually started in summer, but the fourth edition printing of the card, which was printed with ostensibly the same art without a flaming pentagram in the background in the 90s. And then, <laughs> well, the simple truth is that, that the art with the pentagram hasn't been printed since revised, basically. And then when it was reprinted again after the pentagramless fourth edition version, it was printed with, with different art. Of note, the anthologies printing, which actually comes after fifth edition, also used the fourth edition art with the pentagram removed. But all subsequent printings have had different arts, and there have been three other different arts since then. I think it's hard for contemporary magic players to appreciate the kind of moral panics that existed in the 90s and 80s around culture. You know, the, the, the panic around, the panics around pornography, violence in video games, um, Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, it's, you know, like Harry Potter is such a cultural phenomenon, notwithstanding J.K. Rowling's, uh, problematic, let's put it that way, uh, positions on things that, you know, just that's kind of all by the wayside now, right? I mean, there's like violence in video games is not even a, a legislative agenda item. Um, I think anyway, it, magic got caught up in that. And I'll just, we'll put it that way. And in a way that's, I think quite foreign to, to the, the present moment. That isn't to say that magic art isn't censored today. There are certainly examples of that we can think of, but to be censored for depicting a religious symbol. <laughs> is not would not be a justification i think for contemporary magic you say that but it's a it was a contributing factor the reason why crusade was banned right i always thought that the the religious symbology combined with the message was part of it but but maybe that's splitting hairs the, the we do have art censorship in magic to this day although i don't know how common it is in the last several sets but um, in the Chinese markets, they don't allow depictions of skeletons. And so any card with skeletons in the rest of the world has alternate art in the Chinese market. But that's a pretty wholly different issue from the moral panic that you're talking about. I mean, I think for kids to see this card, it's kind of a cool looking card. The pentagram's on fire. The central character appears to be in some sort of, I don't know, agony ecstasy what do you want to call it <laughs> it's a little heavy Hooking metal <laughs> yeah it's cool it's asymmetric by the way like he's like like i don't know whether he's hulking out you know like having a bruce banner moment or what by the way i'm also surprised i didn't ask anson maddox to do this piece anson would have been perfect for this yeah i'm with you i'm with you i do want to ask you steve with respect to the art one thing that's always bothered me and maybe this is a well-known issue and i've just sidestepped it but <clears throat> What's going on with the arc below on the left lower left part of the art? Because it 
at a casual glance, you might think that that's the lower left portion of the pentagram, right. but it's not in alignment with where that part of the circle should be at all. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just ovoid or, I mean, if it's not part of the pentagram circle, then what is it? <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> the background is so devoid of other detail, unlike many other cards in limited edition this background is just a solid color not even a texture just orange and when you take that into account just having an, an errant line there an arc i should say is even more jarring i don't know what to make of it it is noteworthy to me that this art depicts a character apparently suffering from the the beneficial effects of unholy magic but at the same time the <laughs> <laughs> the effect that's being shown is, as you said, it seems less about like a powerful strength or enragement and more along the lines of reverence. That's like they're, yeah. they're basking in the, the unholy energy. So yeah. almost it's pretty funny that way. The power boost that this card gives is not is not trivial either. I mean, you know, it's not unstable mutation, but put this on a drudge skeleton or put two of these on something and you've got a real powerhouse yeah i remember how impactful it was in my early days to put only strength on a singer vampire right <laughs> getting a yeah. six five in the world of four four flyers was <laughs> right. was a real big game yeah i liked that aspect a lot but then you know the, the similar aspect of putting holy strength on a sarah angel was also pretty effective yeah the symmetry is great yeah absolutely steve how much is unholy strength played today in either alpha league or old school i don't i don't think it's seen much play in old school i do think bad moon sees play um and of course well, crusade is continued to be play it's not banned in old, most old school formats um but unholy strength is is definitely played in alpha league i can tell you that i faced it many times uh i don't think it's very good for the reasons it's not good in other you know okay. in other formats but um well mainly because there's just there's still too much removal even in limited edition um but it's not terrible either i mean you can put it on regenerators and it's right. in you know like set troll a control dredge, dredge skeleton and um it it can do can do a lot of damage well as i said i remember playing it a lot in my youth and basically never since <laughs> I, I i've played old school one time and it was certainly not an aggro deck that i played I can imagine that this, you, uh, as you said, in the alpha context, this could be a pretty potent card and good for curving yeah. out. Um, Put it on a black knight too. And yeah, especially good. with the Super resilient strike. threats in that set, right? You don't need it once you get Fallen Empires and Ice Age, though, because the pump knights pump themselves and have first strike and pro. pro yeah, but a black knight with unholy strength is a pretty good answer to a juggernaut. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's a good answer <laughs> to a lot of threats. That's right. Now this card and it was, can't be plowed. Yeah, this card was reprinted a number of times. So, as I said earlier, you know, the the pentagramless art in 4th edition was replaced by a different art by this one in 5th edition is Tom Kiffin, which is a pretty angry and awesome-looking photoreal kind of zombie figure. It's really fantastic. Then the pentagramless art was brought back for anthologies, which is funny. Then 7th edition, so it went from... 5th edition to 7th. 7th edition's art got a new art by Gary Rudell, which is a hilariously cartoony, hugely Popeye-proportioned figure with just enormous everything except for wrists. 
<laughs> the tiniest wrists in the world, but enormous fists and bulging muscles and teeth, but not in a scary way, teeth. Anyway, that art's hilarious. Look it up. And then what do we have after that? 8th edition, 10th edition, M10, 11, and that's it. That's the last um, booster product kind of printing of it. The last several printings have another new art by Therese Nielsen in this case, which is a pr- another pretty reverent uh, figure that enjoying the benefits of unholy strength. So Kevin, the this, been this has never lot. been, but this has never been reprinted with the pentagram art in recent years. Uh, no, that's correct. The last printing of with the pentagram art was revised. Wow. Yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, you, you might think that in some throwback context, they might have done it at one point, but no, they just sidestepped that whole issue. So if you want the pentagram art, you have to get ABU or revised. Interesting, too, that the text on this card, it's not overly complicated, right? But the text on this card hasn't changed very much over the years. You wouldn't expect a simple effect like this to... The only difference really is whether or not the creature gets or gains. <laughs> Alpha Beta Unlimited... Up to, let's see, up through summer, use the word gains. And then it was in fourth edition that they changed it to gets, plus two, plus one. <laughs> and the only other change since then is that they added the word enchant creature when auras became a thing. That's a nuanced distinction, but I think an interesting one. <laughs> because yeah. What's interesting because it suggests you know, what when you're describing the rules text of a card, what's critical? Is it the, is it, number one, is it, the mechanical effect of an of a card, or is it kind of the flavor effect? And also, what is the difference between gets and gains? I assume that the difference is that basically gets is a change in stats, or yeah, whereas gains would be, I guess, is gains even used today? But I gains maybe would be like an activated ability or something, or is gains even used anymore? Gains is not used anymore. The when you grant a like an effect to a creature, like with an equipment today, giving it like yeah. a stat ability, it still uses the word gets. And when you give a creature an activated ability, like say you have an aura or an equipment, it still says uh, the words that's used today is has equipped creature has. Yeah. This. Well, the the other thing is there's a slight ambiguity in games is that what happens if this card goes away? Does mm. it still have that? Whereas gets. I don't know. I guess gets has the same that same problem, but it's it, it. I guess gain sounds like something you acquire and you retain, even if the card goes away. Whereas gets maybe is just appears to be more of a byproduct of of, of just having this thing on it. Yeah, I don't know. I maybe think it's, not. It's a, it's a pretty pretty slight slight case, but I think you have a good point there. They wanted to remove <laughs> as much ambiguity as they could in that respect. It's also worth noting that as we've already discussed with holy strength. Holy Strength and Unholy Strength in the Gamma context were both only plus one, plus one. The difference in what whether they boosted additional power or toughness was added between Gamma and Alpha. Well, you have to make them better than the the respective Bad Moon Crusade, right? So, Yeah, and that's true. I think you should, at least. It's arguable whether or not you have to, given that they are cheaper and could be placed on a creature of any color, ostensibly. But you should make them better, and I, I agree with that choice to do so, and to differentiate them by color pie. Stay tuned for more thrilling limited edition adventures in the next part of our episode 100 spectacular on so many insane plays. Yeah.
Dave. <laughs>